Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is not just about one movie though, it's about a lot of movies from the year of 2020 because it's our annual top 10 episode where I talk to the most frequent guests on the podcast from the year before and they give their top 10s of the year and we combine it into a composite top 10 so people can see how things stacked up for the year for the people that I was talking about movies with the most. And first today I'm going to be joined by my friend Joey Magidson of Awards Radio. Radar.com, who uh, was nice enough to stop by on more than a few occasions last year uh, to talk about movies in the year of 2020. Joey, uh, thank you for being here. Not a problem. Always a pleasure to slum it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but before we get into your actual top 10, uh, I want to ask a bigger picture question to you because uh, while a lot of the friends that I have on the podcast a lot, and some of them even like work in the industry and stuff, like None of them or me watch as many movies as you. And a common thing, theme I've kind of heard when I've talked to some of these friends uh, has been that they thought it was a little bit of a down year. Though the people I think that watched even more movies compared to maybe some of the others are like, no, I found other stuff. I might just had to have dug a little deeper. And once I kind of round out my year, I'll be within like spitting distance of having watched 100 2020 releases, which, you know, is probably more in like the 95th percentile of moviegoers, I would say, but you'll have watched about like 300 more 2020 releases than that. So I think you're a good person to ask, like once you kind of look back, once you kind of finish seeing everything you wanted to see for the year 2020, did you have like an immediate gut reaction like, oh, wow, this was actually a down year compared to like the previous few years? Or did you ultimately think that like 2020 was still a pretty solid year, even if like some stuff that just blockbuster fair didn't get released that would have otherwise come out? I mean, I don't know that it's a down year. It's a different year. I think mm-hmm. that's the thing that people get caught up on. So I'm, I'm pulling, I'm perusing my letterbox as I, uh, as I talk. And, and, you know, I would say most of the things that made my 10 would have made my 10, you know, thinking about what got delayed. You know, you just didn't have the big studio movies in the same way. Those were fewer and further between. You know, you had Judas and the Black Messiah kind of at the last minute emerge as the studio film. You had, you know, News of the World, but, you know, News of the World in another world, in another realm in a normal year is, you know, one of a handful of Christmas releases vying to be, you know, a thing as opposed to this is the great white hope of movie going. At the time, you know, they everything got a bigger stake. But, you know, I look at my top four for sure. They were making my top ten. I look at some of the other films like, you know, I mean, some of them just didn't get seen is the thing. You know, we'll talk about a couple of them. Most people haven't seen them. So that's that's part of the issue. But other than that, I feel like it's a very similar list to what I would have expected. You just like you said, you had to dig a little deeper. And if you follow the awards race, some of the categories are a little you know rougher, like a best supporting actress. You, you, you know, you, you would have hoped for you know, eight or nine contenders as opposed to like, this seems like a six, seven, eight horse race, you know, things like that made a difference, I think. Yeah, you know, as as, as I kind of think about it as well, like I don't know if any of the blockbuster fair, just thinking about how much I was going to be into it would have necessarily even like been that high in my list anyway, even if I think I would have just enjoyed the movie going experience of seeing that stuff in a theater if I had that option. But still like the stuff that was like in my like top five or so, like I'm pretty confident still cracks a top 10 in a in a regular year for me so that's why i haven't maybe been like as split on and torn on how to rate the year in movies is like you know i still found like a lot of stuff to really like so i was curious to get your perspective on it because you watch more movies by like a significant degree than like most people i talk to about them so i thought a little bit excuse me i'm trying to cut down on that just a little bit (laughs) go figure running in a website which is essentially a small business cuts into your amount of time to just watch every movie True, but I mean, when 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 that website is in the is covering the movie business, I think you got a pretty good built-in excuse for doing that. I even mean, if 
I mean, I'm doing all right. I'm at 91 right now for this year. <laughs> yeah, and then when I tell people I see, like, I go to the movie theater 100 times a year, they're like, how do you even manage to do that? I didn't know that many movies come out. And then I hear yeah. you watch 300. I'm like, I really didn't know 300 movies came out. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it's funny how that works out. But uh, what was your uh, what was your number 10 for 2020? What just made the cut? So I'm going to – I tinkered with my list a little bit just to have a little fun. So my number 10 is Buffaloed. Ah, interesting. Okay, I, I'm a big I'm a big Zoe Deutsch fan, though I don't know if I quite had that quite had it that high on my list. What What did you like about Buffalo? Which is it's really a movie about a, a really a resourceful grifter. Yeah, I mean, I I just liked how smart a crime comedy it is. You know, a lot of times the crime genre is either you know heavy Scorsese esque gangsters or bumbling idiots, and I kind of like that she's very good at it. Like you know, she gets caught. Because she's a little greedy at the beginning, but like she knows what she's doing. And I, I like a character who's intelligent. And, you know, there aren't a ton of dummies in that movie. Like it's under the radar, like a very smart movie. And I mean, you know, we especially in the crime comedy genre directed by a woman starring a woman like these are these are somewhat unique things. And I think it, 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 the reason I went with it over my other one, which is Mank, you know, enough has been said about Mank. I love Mank, but Buffalo, you know, I saw at Tribeca 2019. So the fact that it, you know, came out in 2020 still had that staying power to me says something. Like the fact that I'm still like chuckling a little bit thinking about it and and just the fact that I enjoyed it. You know, it's the it's the better it's the better version of that movie when you've seen so many versions of it that are sort of like, mm, okay, I get what you're going at, but didn't didn't fly. Yeah, I kind of liked also about it that and I I I I think one thing I really liked about it is that in a way it was almost like I don't want to say it was political, but I think it had something to say about the mentality that like, oh, anyone can be fine if they just pull themselves up by the, their bootstraps. Because say what you want about that character, but she's like willing to work really hard. It's just like an attractive white person that's willing to work really hard. Even it might, even their want to and their willingness to work hard might not be enough, even if they are also very smart. It's just kind of showing that like the deck can be stacked against all different kinds of people from all kinds of economic classes. But at the same time, yeah. it's like very entertaining to watch her try. Oh, yeah. You, there's something to be said for watching a good hustle. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I respect the game. And then, then she runs a very good hustle. But yeah, I, I liked your point about the smart characters, too, because that's generally just like a big pet peeve of mine is just when characters do stuff that are stupid. But even that guy that like she ended up kind of in competition against, like he was actually pretty smart, even if he was a pretty yeah, unlikable like character. Yeah, he's just yeah. a douche, but he's not stupid. Yeah. So I, 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 I really I, re- I really enjoyed that part of it as well. So it's cool to see. I'm glad I'm glad you uh, I mean, I like Mank, too. It's, it's just it's also like just outside of uh, my top 10 as well. I think I had it. Yeah, I had it at 13. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I'm about the same as you, but I'm glad that something like uh, Buffalo uh, is, is getting a little uh, getting a little love because I didn't have a reason to quite talk about that maybe last year. I just never made the time to do an episode on it. Uh, what's your number nine? Number nine is one of the ones we talked about. It's Banana Split. Ah, so yeah, we don't have to we don't we don't have to revisit that and say a lot more on it. Joey and I did an episode on it, and it's a movie I was really glad that uh, he brought to my attention because I had just not heard about it, and it's uh, it's uh, even the, and it's very still it's still easily accessible on Netflix, and it was really cool to you know discover a new uh, filmmaker and uh, actress and Hannah Marks who I really enjoyed as I know Joey did, and I believe it just got announced like in the last couple weeks. I think she's going to be directing another movie soon or something. Yeah, like another. That. I think she's already made another movie, and then there was one that came out before. But yeah, she's directing a, like a road trip comedy dramedy 
that I think is starting shooting very soon. Oh yeah, with John Cho, who I really like yeah. as an actor. So that's really cool. And look, if uh, it, 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 Banana Split's my number eight, so it's it's right up there for me. If you want to hear Joey and I talk about it more in depth, go listen to that episode. And I think you'll if if you watch the movie, uh, which again you should, it's very easy to find. Uh, you'll really be impressed by Hannah Marks and be happy to know that other other people recognize her talent, even if not a ton of people saw that movie. So you'll get to see her in a lot more stuff soon. Uh, Joey, what's your number eight? Uh, my number eight is Palm Springs. Okay, yeah, so that's actually my number three. So uh, I think uh, we're both obviously in agreement on that. What did you really like about Palm Springs? Again, the the, the smartness. You know, it's a sweet movie, and it's just it's, it's kind of everything you want in like a good time movie, while also sort of surprisingly asking the big questions that you you know oftentimes will ask in a movie like that. Like it doesn't shy away from some of the logic issues that you might think about. Like they don't necessarily try to explain it all but they at least pay like lift service to like oh if i was in the situation i would have these questions you know and just there's something about the the, the charm of it and then the pathos that they find and everything in it is very earned and it was just it, it hit me at the the perfect moment it was you know hit at the time when everyone's like oh everything is miserable oh this is nice so for 90 minutes i you know felt less crappy about the world yeah, I'm, I've said it a few times on the podcast already. Whenever it's come up when I've talked about similar movies with a similar repeating day concept before or just a – or just even when I've talked about Palm Springs with other people, like I'm, I'm an easy mark for those kind of movies. I like most of them, but what I liked specifically that Palm Springs did was that, and you don't have to explain yourself. Like Groundhog Day doesn't explain exactly what's happening to Bill Murray or anything like that, and that's and that's fine. And here, it like it kind of does it, but doesn't do it in a confusing way. And so I like that. You know, I'm not someone that like likes to get into the science and stuff, or in, I, I don't like doing that in time travel movies, especially. And yeah. I thought that it, like I think you kind of hinted at it. it. Kind of addresses that in a smart way and efficiently the movie's not that long and still is able to ha- address that part of the story fully while like still really like doing a good job with these two main characters but also somehow the jk simmons character which is a f- really fun performance as well yeah i think that's what also sets it apart is having that third character and the way that it works with him and the ultimate resolution of his situation is uh is that a little extra where you're like oh this is a movie that's going the extra mile yeah, and I mean, I would I like that movie so much. I I wouldn't complain if it was two hours and I got to hang out with those people for extra. But like the fact that it does that and uh, does all of that in the amount of time it does is like super super impressive. One of the uh, one of the cooler bits of swag this year was they sent the beer. Oh, really? <laughs> it's a fake brand. They just yeah you, know, you know they labeled someone else's beer, but just they sent a four pack of that beer. How'd it taste? It was all right. I'm not a big beer drinker, but I I do have the rest of them sitting there on display. That's a that's a cool that's a cool souvenir. Yeah, I appreciate when they do that. What's your number seven? My number seven is a movie that probably the least amount of people have seen on my list. Uh, Spontaneous. Yeah, so I like when I asked you to do this last week, I looked at your top ten, and it was the only one I hadn't seen. I was like, oh, well, I wonder what that is, and I watched it, and it's a really fun movie. I don't know, why, why didn't more people see it, and what did you like about it? It's a, it's a very weird elevator pitch to give someone where it's like— I mean, a, my elevator pitch was, uh, what if David Cronenberg directed The Fault in Our Stars? Interesting. <laughs> it, it literally is you know what if you fell in love in high school but also you might explode at any given moment <laughs> i mean the movie even explicitly references david cronenberg in the first, like 10 minutes they you know the first explosion happens they're sitting in the police station one of the kids goes it's just like a david cronenberg movie and i and i i, I, I guess i'm an easy mark for like witty narration but there's an early scene where in that same scene where someone's like, it just it probably won't happen again. And the narrator just the main character just narrates it it did happen. It yeah, happened a lot more. 
as you always said, I don't think a lot of people had seen this. So he wasn't ex- he wasn't just like uh, using hyperbole or uh, making a joke when he said that. It's literally a movie about a town where teenagers start or seniors specifically in the high school class start exploding and. The main character, played by Catherine Langford, ends up, like, in the midst of that, like, falling for this guy, played by Charlie Plummer, and it's like, oh, they're gonna have a relationship, but this whole thing is going on around them, and where's it gonna go? By the way, both of them are extraordinary in the movie, Um, and here was the thing, like, for a movie that no one saw, was 98% of Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone who saw it liked it. Like, I admit, I, you know, it was, um, I think Paramount, Sony, whoever, you know, uh, had it, but was it was kind of coming out like not through them, and they, uh, you know, it was a it was a screener that I had like I'll get to it at some point because you know whatever, put it on sort of indifferently and was like very quickly going oh shit this is this is <laughs> something, and ironically the um, the director Brian Duffield who um, is the hardest luck writer in Hollywood this was his first directorial debut he wrote Love and Monsters which is the weirdest movie nominated for an Oscar this year. But his other screen credits include um, Jane Got Her Gun, like notoriously ruined. Oh, yeah. Like, like Blacklist got notoriously turned into a terrible movie. And like the underwater Kristen Stewart, like um, kaiju thing from like a year or two ago that some people liked. Like this guy writes a lot of different things. And this just happened to hit. It's based on a book. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it literally, it really is like you'll laugh, you'll cry type movie. Wait, are you referencing the movie Underwater that came out with Kristen Stewart? That was, that's technically a 2020 release. That shows you how like long these last year and a half has been. That that was like, I think it might have been the first movie I saw in 2020. Right. So it's funny you said like, oh, it came out two or three years ago. Nope. It, it, it it was, it made one of my friends' lists. My friend Daniel, who has unconventional taste, it's his number nine. So, that's what I say. Like, I, I thought it was fair, like, yeah, unremarkable, but I know there were people, who were really taken by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that writer, but Brian Duffield is a very interesting guy. I interviewed him and like, you know, he can't catch a break, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, one hopes the next, is, the next thing will work out better. But this movie just blew me away. Yeah. I, it's funny you mentioned the narration because uh, I'm just not, I'm j- almost never a fan of narration in movies. It's just yeah. something that gets at me. So it, for, for it to work for me, you have to do it really well. And I think it works really well because uh, I think, Catherine Langford is very good at that. I mean, she, she, she people came to know her because of the 13 Reasons Why, which I only watched one season of, but like, I guess she got a lot of experience doing that there. Yeah. And I like her character in this movie because they don't try and make her, you know, super, super likable. They just present her as she is. And it's kind of understood that she's like, maybe not the best kid, but you're still charmed yeah. by her nonetheless. And, and I just liked her vibe. And I like that they walked a very fine line. Like this movie has a scene that so easily could have gone wrong. I would say a little after the midway point, like the end of the second act, there's um, essentially a lot of kids start spontaneously combusting at once. And it is shot, it is presented, um, and it is for all the money a school shooting. Mm-hmm. Like the way it's shown is, you know, people running through the halls, blood everywhere. Like you, cause you don't always see them explode, but you'll see like, you know, the viscera come into like hit someone in the face. And and it, you know, I, I had spoken to him about it because, like, if that goes wrong, you, your movie was ruined. Like, it's over. You can't recover from that. But to do it the right way to suggest, like, this is, you know, a ridiculous concept. But also look at this scene. This is what happens. This is what people actually deal with in the real world. And then, you know, it added this extra layer that I think then fuels the third act, which is a lot more down to earth and, and, and dark for an already dark comedy. Yeah, and it's for half its runtime, it's basically a rom-com with a little bit of 
horror mixed in and it, I, it's kind of you hear joey like describe that scene but it's still it still balances all of its tones very well and it's on it's on hulu so i recommend people watch it i don't understand why it was a bigger deal and you know it's very weird like you know i think of another like horror comedy from last year that was kept a more comedic tone throughout though was like this that movie freaky which i enjoyed with Catherine oh, Newton. yeah and it, well, yeah, and like, but like, I knew so much more about that movie than this one. Even though Catherine Langford is actually kind of objectively a little bit like a bigger star than Catherine Newton, even like just the amount of social media followers he had, how big her Netflix shows have been, and it's just very weird that it like didn't like pick up a better another life somewhere. I mean, I, I watch, like I said, I watch more movies than most people, nowhere near as much as Joey, and I literally had not heard of it until I looked at Joey's top ten last week. So uh, for some reason, also, I, I was just gonna wrap up that yeah. part. And we want to do the others. It has one of the best soundtrack cues of the year when they're dancing and they and they cue and we danced mm. like what earned manipulation. <laughs> I, I love when you earn my my like emotions and I'm like, I'm being manipulated, but this is perfect. It's very true. Uh, well, go watch it, people. Spontaneous. Number, what's your number six? Number six. We also discussed the King of Staten Island. Ah, yeah. So I that was like that, that didn't quite make to my top ten. It's my number twelve. Uh, so I really liked it too. Uh, I don't know. Uh, people should go listen to our episode on that because I thought we did a, a pretty thorough job, and I think we talked about that one for like over an hour. So don't need to spend a whole lot of other time on it here. But uh, it's, suffice to say, I liked it too. And some I don't know. Saw Joey some Pete Davidson news the other day getting cast as Joey Ramone. So uh, we spent a long time talking about him as like playing a, a fictional version of himself, and it's leading to bigger and better things for him. So yeah, for sure. Uh, what's your number five? Number five also is probably only on my list, and I uh, I sometimes consider excluding it. So if you think it doesn't count, put Mank in and ten. Okay. Um, Bruce Springsteen's Letter to You, the documentary about the making of his new, latest album. Okay, I think I had seen something about this at one point, or did didn't he put out like some other kind of documentary type thing well, after so, after after uh, Blinded by the Light? So yeah, so oh, okay. that year Blinded by the Light plays at Sundance. Mm-hmm. You know, does very well. At Sundance gets bought by Warner Brothers. They mishandle it and it makes no money. But at the same time, he um, for his album Western Stars filmed a concert film of sorts, where it was half filmed stuff of him like talking and uh, half a private concert he did in on his property. And that was that made my top ten also. So go figure. Hmm. Um, and then this one was about the last album that he did right before quarantine, and it's much more of a making of kind of documentary. Like it goes from watching them create the song to then playing the song while he does some narration about like, you know, the members of the E Street Band who are no longer around and things like that. It's it's very much for a Bruce Springsteen fan, but you know, I, I feel like almost any band, if you like music, watching, you know, a legendary band, like the the way they have a shorthand, you know, how they talk about like, okay, I'm gonna cue in here and just things that like I'm not a musician, so I don't understand it. But you're watching like, well, how do they decide that, you know, he's going to play the guitar for seven seconds, not five seconds before the music starts. Like all the different like little things just to watch how they kind of know just what works best. And when they play it, as they figure it out and then to hear the final song, it's also a great album, but you know, where can you people, gotta be a where, music documentary fan. Where can people watch that? Do you know? Uh, that is an Apple documentary. Ah, interesting. I mean, I'm ashamed to say I didn't listen to the latest album of his, but I, I kind of very curious to go do that because, you know, it's obviously been a very big, you know, like, I guess almost at this point last full year for Taylor Swift. Uh, yeah. And it, it, leading up to the her re-release of Fearless, I went back and watched parts of Miss Americana, and I really enjoyed the parts of it that was like, you know, her figuring out what the bridge to getaway car was going to be just with her and Jack Antonoff in a room. So oh, yeah. I, I, I like Miss Americana. I will say I actually... 
between the two Taylor Swift documentaries, I like the Long Pond Studio sessions a little better because it's similar, similar to this where you're watching them talk about the songs and then mm -hmm. play it. And, you know, I also love that album. So, you know, I'm that guy. <laughs> I'd be curious to get to watch Bruce work like that because it's cool when they offer you that kind of peek behind the curtain. So it's Tom Zimmy who um, does a lot of the documentaries for him. Oh, OK. And like worked with him on Western Star. So like it is the guy who does this. And, it, you know, there's no like talking head stuff. He's just, you know, around filming as they're doing this over like a weekend. It's it's you know, if you like that, it's perfect. Interesting. So, okay. Well, there's I'm, a caveat there, but you know, it was it was as made for me as Blinded by the Light was. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm I, I'll definitely have to look at that. I I, I got to start getting more more of my money's worth out of Apple TV Plus because I I watch some stuff on there, but you know they probably have less less content than the other streamers at, at this point. I'm sure they got yeah. a lot more coming. Uh, what's your number four? My number four. Uh, I'm probably the only one who has it this high. It's the way back. You are actually not. Uh, sure. Someone has someone has it higher than you, I believe. That's uh, that'll be coming up later in the episode. So yeah, it, a, a, a few people really like this that I didn't talk to you about because I talked with you about it. So uh, yeah. I have a question. When we, we're, I'm not going to make you talk a lot more about it because people can again go listen to our episode on that. This is actually one of the last movies I saw in theaters uh, before we uh, went into quarantine, and uh, Joey and I did an episode on it. And I know you really liked it at the time when we talked about it, and I think at the time we saw it, you know, it was probably like. You might have gotten to see it like way earlier than me. I don't know when you got your when you got a chance to, but the fact is, it was pretty close to the pandemic. But we didn't really yep. know what was coming at that point. At the time you saw it, did, I know you really liked it, obviously, and that's kind of why I reached out to you to talk about it. But uh, did, did you expect it would like hold up against the other stuff the rest of the year as well as it did, and potentially crack no. your top five? No, I, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't expect it to hold up in terms of life either. Like you know, the fact that it had a very brief kind of like resurgence around the time of award season of like, guys, don't don't sleep on Ben Affleck, which, you know, I was saying all year long, but I'm glad people did that. It really only translated into a Critics' Choice nomination, but, you know, you're welcome, Ben. I probably did that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, yeah, I, I it was my number one for like a second, um, and then I saw something else on my list. But I, I knew when I saw it, I was like, it, it will probably make my top ten. Like sometimes you just know you're watching a movie that you're going to – watch and and honestly it's on hbo all the time now and i i like having it on in the background like it's you know it's a downer it's not a it's not an upper movie but i i just appreciate watching him and like you know in the same way that like manchester by the sea is a downer but it's hard not to watch what casey affleck is doing there yeah, he, he he. Both of those brothers are 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 good at being sad, I guess. And yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you guys can uh, go check out the podcast. Joey and I did. Geez, like probably exactly a year ago at this point. On that uh, time, freaking flies when you're in a pandemic, I guess. Uh, what's your number three? Number three is the Trial of Chicago Seven. All right, I, I actually did not know you uh, were that big of a fan of this one until I like checked out your list last week. A lot of uh, a lot of ink has been spilled on this, and a lot of words have been said about it in other places. But I'm curious, uh, what worked about this movie so much for you? Love me a good Sorgan. So mm. when you get that, I love politics. I love actors doing this. Like it's it's just it's made for him. He he aces it, and also, you know, at the time watching it in when did I watch it? September, I want to say it came out in November, right? Uh, I think it might have been actually October, but October. yeah, it came out October because it came out before the election. So I saw it in September, and uh, I, you know, I'm I'm really enjoying it because also you got to remember at that time we're, we're also starved for like a studio movie, hmm. you know, and and sometimes you uh, someone I forget who it was, but once described Spielberg movies this way is like sometimes you just want to be like cradled in the bosom of a Hollywood movie, 
Hmm. You know, and like Spielberg is the perfect example of that like, you know, does anybody love Bridge of Spies? Not not really. But damn if you don't probably enjoy watching Bridge of Spies if you just like sat down to watch it. You're like, okay, that was fine. You know, like the right a good studio movie like is is very I don't know, like there's just something about it. And this is for me like the best version of a studio movie, like prestige but fun, snappy, well written, and then by the time you get to the end, like saying something about the state of the world. And also, you know, at that time my one track mind was don't die of COVID and don't let Trump get reelected. So, you know, that it has the line of the year when uh, Abby Hoffman is on the stand. One, I know people, a lot of people like, I don't know, I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very popular line. But mine is a couple minutes later when um, Mark Rylance asked him, well, how do you peacefully overthrow your government? And he goes, in this country, we do it every four years. <laughs> I was like, that should be a Biden ad. Well, and then, and then if you'd, I mean, if you, if you would watch the, if you'd then watch the movie three months later and said that that, that, that line yeah. would have taken on a whole other connotation. Some people took the wrong <laughs> message from that, but there was something about like at that moment the idea of like, no, that's what an election is. You have the chance to tell the government like we're revolting. Like that's that's how this works. I mean, the people in January perhaps missed that message, but uh, you know, I, it just everything about it worked, and you know. In the same way, like Argo, everything about it just worked. It's that kind of movie, and I'm I'm a fan for those kind of movies. Yeah, it's funny you, you mentioned uh, your favorite line there being the, or you mentioned two of your favorite lines. The one that actually sticks with me more than anything, and maybe it's because it was played for the movie in more comedic purposes, was when the when when the uh, Jeremy Strong character. Now I'm drawing a blank on the the real person's name. But, Jerry Rubin. Yeah, Jerry Rubin. Sorry. When, the thing that really stuck with me was when uh, Jerry Rubin said in response to the, the one, one of the questions from the reporters, you posed that question in the form of a lie. And I, which I mean, that says a lot about just like the media today and like how, you know, they might pick up on problematic talking points uh, that Republicans are laying down. And then it almost becomes part of the narrative, even when it shouldn't. And it was just very perceptive about a lot of things right now. And I mean, I think Sorkin deserves a lot of credit for that, even though he wrote it 10 years ago, that it turned out to be so timely. And I mean, I was thinking about court packing as I was watching this movie and watching this, this judge. And I'm like, wow, like the judiciary has been a problem for forever, basically. And uh, this is a really great illustration of it and it's really a shame what the federal the, these lifetime federal appointments how damaging they could be because of what happened with trump and you, you had that and then you just obviously had all it was you were, we were just a few months removed from a lot of protests all around the country so i was really impressed with how like a big studio movie could feel that timely even if on the on the whole i had like other issues with the movie i, I was just, it, it was really cool how, like a studio feeling movie could have that many things to say about the moment and i so right, i agree with he, you on that. that he specifically said he did not change a word of the script like oh really it was it was that way, and when they went to go film, he was like, "Holy shit!" Um, I interviewed him actually, but that, there's also a really good line. I was doing my podcast earlier today, and I forget the exact line, but when somebody says, "You know," when they realize how many cops were, uh, you know, in the protest undercover, you know, and he goes, "Do you think it's possible that seven people led a group of you know eight thousand undercover cops in protest?" I forget the exact line, but it was you know very very like witty and smart. In the same way that, you know, a lot of lines are and anything involving Michael Keaton in that movie is great. Mm, yeah, R.I.P. R. Ramsey Clark actually died last week. The guy that he played, who had like a really, I think we talked. I think I might have talked about it on a little bit on the podcast I did. But that guy, like, it was very weird. Like, he was actually like in his early forties at the time of the trial. So Keaton was not the closest casting in age, though I think he's great in the movie. But the fact is, he was that young then, so he was still around in the two thousands and like turned into a bit of an activist, where he was like wanting to indict President Bush for like a lot of the stuff around the Iraq War for like. Yeah, any... he was one of those guys who 
you know, obviously wasn't on the side of what Nixon was doing. And just as he got older, continued to be like, no, this is not what we do in this country. Yeah, I said it at the time. and I'll say it again. Like, I, I would totally watch a movie about that guy's career in his 80s, like starting organizations to impeach Bush oh, yeah. and, then, and then turning it into an indict Bush thing when, 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 was, when Bush left office. There is something about having a, a guy like Michael Keaton in that role, because in that first scene, you know, he's he's kind of you, you realize he's just messing with them, like he's testing mm-hmm. them to see how, how they dedicated there. But he's. He's essentially like shrugging them off. Like I can't do anything. You know, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to help you. And as they get like frustrated, he finally goes, oh, I, it's not that I'm not going to help you. I'm totally going to do this. I just wanted to see if you were serious. Like, <laughs> like, fuck those guys. I'm going. Don't worry. Yeah, no, that's he's he's undercover kind of the MVP of that movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people were like assuming he was going to get like multiple acting nominations. It didn't quite go there, but they would not have been undeserved if it had happened. Uh, Could have gone all five and I wouldn't have been that upset. <laughs> what was your number two of last year? My number two was never, rarely, sometimes, always. Uh, that's my number one. That's my number one. So uh, this is the movie about like teenage girls that are having to from rural Pennsylvania that are having to face some of the really big challenges that certain states in this country pose on people seeking abortions. Again, not exactly our demographic, but why did you connect with this so much? Uh, one, it should be required viewing in school. It's literally a movie that could save lives. And two, it is it is. Among also with my number one is going to go one of the angriest movies in, of the year, but it decides to showcase its anger by just showing you the situation, like, mm. and and never quite calls attention to it, but just never lets you forget that there are essentially old white men who sit in a room and decide what happens to young women, and decisions they make, you know, that they think are you know completely harmless, you know, directly lead to a woman have to cross state lines, basically be homeless for a night to to have a procedure not for free mind you that she has to pay for that otherwise would essentially put her on welfare like this the thing that they that all these people rally and cry against is entitlements and people who live off the state but in turn do nothing to prevent people from having to do that and then just the idea of like an actress for she's that's my performance of the year sydney flanagan like i was blown away by her especially since it was her debut performance you know there's wild yeah in a year of like people doing great work, but going like big, like, you know, Viola Davis is a 10 or an 11 when, you know, maybe that role could go for an eight or a nine. Sydney Flanagan is a one. Like everything is very insular. The, you know, the, the title sequence is still like, I just watched it a couple days ago and it, you know, it's, it's devastating because she's not giving you any answers really, but she's saying everything about what, you know, her experience has been as a completely normal 16 year old girl. You know, and if that's what a normal experience is like, and plenty of people have abnormal experiences, this is a, this is a problem. And and just watching the lengths that you have to go and the, the little battles that you have to fight every day, whether it's the creepy guy who kisses your hands at work, or the the guy your age on the bus who's like hitting on you, and or or just like the the fact that you can't have this procedure in one day, like all the little things, like even Planned Parenthood, where you know is is very helpful and is a good thing it's still a bureaucracy where there are there are there are things that have to get taken care of before you can do this and there's you know it's just the fact that this person who has a mother and a, i believe a father they're never fully clear if it's her dad or her stepdad or her boyfriend you know her mom's boyfriend they don't really address it. it's not important but has a family has her cousin with her 
you know, at the end of the day, she has a stranger holding her hand when it happens. And that's what our country allows to happen. Yeah, I like that you mentioned the, the point about anger, because, I, I, you know, I, 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 I know what your number one is. And it, that's a, an angry movie in a different way. And I think it's kind of I, I hadn't even really thought of Never Rarely Sometimes Always in that way where it's, you know, clearly angry without yelling. Uh, cause you, cause it, it leaves the yelling to the audience. Cause you're just, yeah. infuri- you're, you're infuriated as, as you're watching it. And, and you mm-hmm. mentioned all the different men that pop up in the movie. And I think that's one way in which it expresses its anger is that there's not a, mo- a, a man in this movie that isn't like some kind of threat really. I mean, and, um, and none of them are, none of them are presented in a like obtuse way where you're not, where you can dismiss it and go like, Oh, well, this is a movie. You know, we've, you know, I live in New York city. There are drunk business bros on the train and, I would not put it past them to whip their dick out on the train. Like, that happens, you know. Um, more people, I mean, especially when we talk about my next film, do not realize they're being creeps when they, you know, hit on someone or, like, think they're on a date. You know, the guy who, like, kisses his employee's hands is a monster. But again, we, you know, Harvey Weinstein exists. You know, Scott Rudin exists. Like, all these, like, people in power do bad things. It's a, it's a problem. But there, there, are even, there are even moments that never really, sometimes always, I think when they're still in their hometown, I think at one point she's on the street, and there's, like, a guy in the background. I think there might be another guy in the background scene on, like, a on a subway at one point. It's, like, it just, like, makes a point to, like, you know, linger on those for, like, an extra second. And it's, the, 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 fact the, that you, the fact that you even have to worry about that just says a lot, you know? Well, it's, it's the point of, it's not saying men are evil. Like, it's not that movie. And I think people can sort of try to dismiss it as that because they don't want to have the discussion but it's much more a situation of like this girl cannot rely on them and these are the people in power and any of those guys could eventually if not now be making decisions Mm. and and nobody thinks about her like that's the thing nobody in the movie thinks about her well-being her cousin does for the most part but you know it it's it's a clearly uh it's a it's not even a metaphor it's very literal like if this happens to you in certain parts of the country you are on your own yeah, I should give Tally Ryder a shout out too. Uh, She's phenomenal. Uh, They're both amazing. Yeah, yeah. I know we had a little bit. Of, I had a little bit of hope earlier in the year that oh, maybe this will be a beneficiary of not as many movies coming out, and some of these people could get a little more awards love. Didn't they, quite happen. Maybe it did from some of the critics groups. You would know that better than me. They, but they, I mean, Sydney Flanagan did very good in the critics critics yeah. phase. Tally Ryder showed up here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think honestly, um, had the year progressed with no movies in the way we kind of thought before, towards the end, like. You know, like Paramount shipped off their movies to Netflix and things like that. And, 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 you know, Judas came out. I mean, there's a world where, you know, that happens. I mean, if you look at Best Actress, like I, I don't care for the United States versus Billie Holiday. But, um, you know, that doesn't go to Hulu, maybe. There's another spot. You know, Hillbilly Elegy doesn't get the attention that it sort of got weirdly. Like, there's a world where that happens. But, you know, we we didn't get that, unfortunately. Yeah. What's your number one? My number one is not super original, but I don't care. It's perfect. It's promising a woman. Yeah, Joey and I ha- did an episode on this that I lost, and it is this lost forever to technology. So I'm not going to ask you to talk about it too much. Do you want to give like a 20 second elevator pitch though to anyone that hasn't already seen it as to why they need to see this movie? Uh, it's also should be required viewing to everyone, especially young men a male in high school or college. Like, yeah, it is. It is the movie that explains why the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world exist. The fact that every man in this movie thinks they're a good guy and everyone thinks they're always a good guy, but nobody ever considers what being a good guy is like because the the title character of the, of the film is thought of as having wasted her potential. But when you understand what happened, she's the only one really who has done anything good of the of the people depicted in this film. And does the length she go to try to write that wrong extreme? Of course, that's, you know, 
that's also sort of a metaphor for for being a woman in this time. Like to be heard, you have to yell. To have make change, you have to force change. Last question before we wrap up. We're I'm going to be putting this episode out. I think three days before the Oscars air. We're at the point where just about every other award show has done its thing besides the Oscars. Do you do you think it has a good shot in any of the few categories that it's nominated in? Promising Woman is going to win Best Original Screenplay. Okay. Well, you had you had a uh, uh, Trial of Chicago Seven pretty high too, so I didn't know where you thought at this point it was stacking up against it. You know. I mean, they're both great. Yeah. Can't go wrong. But it, uh, Promising Woman will win screenplay. I uh, I do not know how Actress is going to go. You could legitimately make the case for three of them, if not maybe four. Mm-hmm. She is probably, if not number one, number two. Mm-hmm. So there's a very good chance she wins. And Promising Woman, I think, as a film, is probably number three right now. It's not going to pull off the upset, but it. Uh, it was coming close. Had it picked up a big precursor win, like if it had upset at PGA or had managed to uh, win Critics' Choice, just something, you know, to have a, a feather in its cap, because then they would go in with, you know, WGA winning, you know, probably the, the original screenplay Oscar, having a bunch of Critics' Prizes, and uh, they won, I think, the Ace Eddie for comedy. So they have the editing. No, I'm sorry, they lost. They have something else. They've won another like tech award recently, so they've gone in with you know a couple of things. So there's a you know they would have had an argument, but they just couldn't stack another win together. Same problem Trial of Chicago Seven has. Like aside from SAG, you just you know when so many other things go one way, it becomes a lot harder to turn the tide. So uh, Nomadland will probably win most of the big Oscars, which you know is not on my top ten. I'll just say that. Gotcha. Well, I, I, I'm looking forward to at least being able to say Oscar winner Emerald Fennel. That'll be very fun and very deserving for her. So, Joey, I appreciate you being a consistent guest with us in 2020 and taking the time to share your top 10 with us and uh, give some new insights into some movies that uh, people should check out if they haven't already checked out because you had a few, uh, a few original entries there. So uh, thanks, sure. a, thanks, for, thanks for your time, and hopefully we'll see you in 2021. Yeah, for sure. And now we're joined by recurring guest and my friend Daniel Lima to talk about his top 10 for the year of 2020. Uh, Daniel, I'm not going to like uh, make you go all in on give us some big dissertation on the year of 2020 in movies. Fair to say, though, since I've been doing these podcasts with you for three years now, maybe like your least favorite movie year during the time that we've uh, been having these kind of discussions? Oh, without a doubt. Now, to be fair, I understand why. And to be fair... Because of the why, uh, I haven't seen that much. I think this is the first year where I didn't even watch 50 movies. Mm. Um, so, like, my top 10 is pretty much, like, 20% of what I've seen. Gotcha. But, you know, it's just, like, a lot of it, it doesn't really excite me even, like, to go back and watch. Uh, I'll probably hit all the Best Picture nominees, with which I've seen probably only, like, two or three. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, I'll probably you know, get to watching the, the Oscar nominees at some point, which are the, I've only seen like two or three. And there's a couple like genre movies that are, you know, in my wheelhouse that I need to get around to like alone, which is directed by John Hyams. But, um, yeah, there's a lot, I wasn't very enthusiastic with a lot of what came out. The one thing I'll say on that before we get, jump into your actual ranking is that, you know, there have been a few years where like you have legitimately watched twice as many movies as me when we've done this before. And like, I've seen like between 250 and 300 movies each of the last few years. And you just didn't watch as many as you did last year. But at the same time, and while, uh, 
ideally you will have seen more of the Oscar movies at the time we've been recording this. The fact that you didn't make an effort to see them at this point, and you'll maybe get to them, maybe not. It's whatever. I like see. I like saying when I do these top ten podcasts, it's a it's kind of reflective of like the people that have been the most common presences on the podcast watch and what they feel the need to be watching. And so I mean, I think that says something. If like only certain movies caught your attention to a certain extent. You know, and made it made yeah. it so you felt like it was a priority. And you know, I'm guessing you haven't seen The Father, and I don't blame you for not seeing The Father. Who wants to go? And I actually really like that movie, but like, you know, I don't blame them for not. Actually, that one might that one that one might actually end up being in my wheelhouse because you know I love me a movie about an old man looking back on his past with regrets. So it's an old man movie. Were you? Were you? I, were, honestly, were, were, might you be. were you big on The Irishman? I don't even remember that. Uh, no, but like <laughs> The Irishman had uh, had some issues that I. I didn't like that overtook that. Okay, I was trying, that was the first other old man movie looking back on his life that came to my head. Uh, but, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't think that movie marketed itself well, so I wouldn't blame anyone for not seeing it. Like, it, it was way more... I, I'll just sell you on it now. Like, it, you think it... I initially just thought I was going to be watching this old man slowly die, and it is not that. So I don't know if I've even added it to my top 10 yet or not. If or I don't know if it's going to make my top 10, but it's actually going to come pretty close. But, like, the fact is, you know, certain movies are only going to, like, draw people to a certain extent. And I don't blame someone that hasn't watched that movie yet as the time recording this. We're, like, three weeks – like, three and a half weeks from the Oscars. And I don't blame anyone that hasn't made that a priority yet. So, you know, I like to see, like – what movies are like getting buzz? I feel like the, the the movies that pop up in these top tens are somewhat emblematic of that. Though you know, last year like you almost ruined the top ten and I almost didn't put out the podcast because you put in Cats one, almost made it crack the top ten. It didn't quite crack the aggregate, uh, but you know. So uh, I'm not going to say that like something that something might sneak in here that I wouldn't necessarily endorse. But you never know. I, I think it's interesting when someone hasn't actually seen a lot of them because it says a lot about what the general public maybe is prioritizing, even if your tastes are not like generally that of the general public. So without any further further ado what is your 10th favorite movie of 2020 and i'll actually before you answer that i say 2020 i think we're trying to limit this to like what was awards eligible for 2020 so that could be something that only came out in the first two movies of this year but whatever so what was your uh, 10th favorite movie of 2020 well uh number 10 is gonna be shirley shirley was uh the movie that was directed by oh i'm so sorry uh i should have had that ready but um the the lady who directed madeline's madeline josephine decker yes uh but it's you know about this uh i forgot the name of the author but a real author isn't it isn't it isn't it isn't it like um mary jackson or something like that yeah 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 and she takes in this you know precocious you know young woman and her husband uh, uh both young professionals uh, and you know Shirley herself is uh, Shirley Shirley Jackson. I don't know why I said yeah Shirley, Shirley Jackson. Jackson. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. it's okay. Shirley, but yeah, Shirley t- kind of takes her under a wing, but Shirley is dealing with her own issues and is kind of she starts tormenting her, and it becomes a kind of psychodrama. Uh, honestly, I think that it would have benefited from a more esoteric approach. We'll say something more like something because it's a far more traditional movie than like Madeline's Madeline. And I think it kind of loses something in that, uh, which is weird coming from me because, you know, me, I don't like art house stuff that much. But uh, I, I found it to be effective, although a little less than Madeline's Madeline, which was, I think, the best movie of 2018. So that's where I stand on Shirley. And this is Under- this is kind of awkward that you're saying that now, because like. Honestly, maybe I'm like don't have quite as esoteric of a taste as you do when it comes to certain things. 
And, you know, Madeline's Madeline might have been, like, and I still think I gave that movie three and a half to four stars. Like, I didn't dislike it, but it might have been a little weird for my taste. So to hear, I was maybe a little worried that Shirley, which has actors that I really like, maybe I was, I have not watched it yet. And this is kind of awkward because I tried to get in everything under the wire that I wanted to before doing this. And I, like, didn't get to that one. And I honestly forgot that it was a 2020 movie. And I might Mm. actually think, I'm honestly a little more intrigued to watch it now. So maybe I will get to it. So uh, number nine is going to be Underwater, uh, which was that was very uh, that was almost up. pre-pandemic, right? Yep, that was in January. I was super hyped for it, and you know it lived up to my expectations. It's a very solid uh, monster movie. You know, uh, there's an earthquake underwater at this research facility, and then this crew has to kind of race time in order to make it back to the surface before like they all drown. Uh, very little, very effective little horror thriller uh set in the deep depths of the ocean it's barely 90 minutes and it's a movie that kind of launches into the plot like immediately like i think five like within the first five minutes the actual earthquake happens so there's none of that like kind of like oh let's establish the character no (laughs) they jump right into it and establish the characters as they react to the situation unfolding it's very smartly written it's very tight and it's got some of the most impressive sequences of last year. Although, you know, what does that even mean? Yeah, I, yeah, um, you know, but I, I'm, I'm glad you even brought it up. And I honestly, that's when I honestly, I'd kind of forgotten about that movie because it was like, again, pre-pandemic at the time of recording. It came out probably a year and two months ago. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm intrigued that you liked it that much. Not that our tastes always overlap that much, but I did not even know it was 90 minutes, you know, or 90, like less than a hundred minutes. Usually like a movie of that budget of that kind of subject matter, it's just going to be a little more bloated and it just makes me a little more likely to take a chance on it. I mean, I'm pretty sure it probably won't crack my top 10, but I would still be like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually much more interested to check it out now that I know it's not as much of a commitment time-wise. So, yeah. Uh, the next one, my number seven Ooh. is going to be, or I'm sorry, eight. my number eight is going to be uh, Birds of Prey. Mm, we talked about that one already. The, so The fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Um, I think we both like, we, we, we talked about that on the pod, so I don't need to make you go into too much detail on that, but I just, I got to ask, yeah. do you keep yeah. a running list of top tens throughout the year, or did you just like go and do this in the last two weeks? Because, and if you did, if it's the latter, were you surprised that it stacked up like that against the rest of the year? You know, this year, actually, I had mine, uh, I had my 2020 list private. Um, I just kept adding movies that I saw in 2020, like to it as I watched them. And I was like, I'll order them later. That was something I decided in January that I was going to do. And it ended up being the worst year to try to do this because I ended up not seeing that much. But I was hoping to have like a bit of a surprise when I reordered it at the end of the year and found that like, oh, wait a minute, like imagine it turns out that my feelings of this movie wildly changed you know but you know turned out to be a poor year to do it because uh, there ended up being very slim pickings but yeah birds of prey great action i really like the stylish approach i think that the dceu has succeeded uh the more it's gone away from the snyder vision uh i still haven't seen the snyder cut so we'll see but um yeah I, i i did really quite like birds of prey the next movie is a movie we did talk about, my number uh, seven, uh, The Photograph. Ah, okay. Yeah, no, I really like The Photograph too. So, I mean, I, you know, that's what I was asking you. Like, I, I'm not surprised. I think we, you and Lissa and I talked about that one. We were all pretty positive on it. I just, you know, that was like, you know, it's funny. Like, it's funny that like two of these four so far are ones that we talked about that were like, 
very like I think Birds of Prey I just looked up came out February 7th and I'm pretty sure the photograph came out like even later than that like that was like very 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 close to like when the pandemic started and so like I remember you liking that I just like for some reason remembered yeah photograph came out a week after Birds of Prey uh Mm -hmm. and so I was just like I wouldn't have been surprised if that one had cracked your top 10 I just couldn't remember what you felt about Birds of Prey so it's interesting that like the photograph held up for you that well so yeah absolutely I like an old-fashioned romance romance you know it's nice to see uh my number six is going to be uh, Bad Boys for Life. Ah, I'm not a. I, I I tried watching the first movie, like the first Michael Bay movie, and uh, I couldn't get through it. Like I was like 20 minutes in, and I was like, I really just hate everything Michael Bay touches, huh? Well, except for Transformers, the first one. It's a good movie. Uh, yeah. But um, you know, here, like I was attracted by the trailer. I was attracted by the fact that you know Michael Bay wouldn't be directing it. And I thought it was really, really great. Like the chemistry between Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, who's, you know, doing some great fucking work. I can't I, honestly, I think that he probably should have been in contention for a supporting actor Oscar here. It's got some solid action, uh, you know, and it's just a good, solid cop movie. You well, know? so w- uh, when you say you started the first one, do you mean like you didn't even like it that much and you never even watched the second? Yep. Interesting. A lot of people swear by the second and I don't know why I, I think i liked it less than the first and i but i actually think i like bad boys for life more than both of them so that's kind of interesting that like this would mean again you obviously with the caveat you didn't see as many movies as you did in prior years i think it's interesting that like you liked it the most too because i think i did too and again it's funny that like you're popping up with all these just like first two months of 2020 stuff uh it's in my like top 25 uh like i liked mm. i think i gave it four stars like you said the action was good and it was funny and fun and i don't think the action was just like it's not like like we just we we just as of the recording of this we're like with less than an hour removed from talking about nobody and it's like it's obviously not action on the level of that and uh but like you know the fact it will is michael bay actually makes a cameo in bad boys for life i don't know if you remember that he's like in that wedding scene but, give up he's the wedding yeah 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 and but he's not. He's not the director, and I think it makes a difference. And I, yep, I you know, it's not again. It's not nobody level action, but I, I, it's a, it's a solid action, and th- these actors are charming enough. I don't think Will Smith makes good movies consistently anymore. But like, and you know, it's the cynical person's like he's only doing blockbuster type stuff and sequels. But like, you know, here he picked a sequel, and I thought they got a good enough script together. So yeah, my number five, and this is this is the. The, the the point where these are movies that I would say I actually love. These are movies oh. that probably would have made my top 10 even in a bad year. I appreciate that uh, distinction. So what's your number five? Yeah, my number five is going to be Debt Collectors. Um, ah, that's one, and, that's and one you've been trying to get very, me to watch and I feel bad I haven't gotten to it yet, but it's one yeah, of your, well, it's one of your actions. What I've been trying to get you to watch is The Debt Collector. Oh. <laughs> the, the, the prequel. I mean, this is that was the original movie. This is the sequel. Uh, also directed by uh, Jesse V. Johnson. Your also guy. starring... Scott Atkins and Louis Mandalore. Your boys. Yeah, and it's just another... They kind of just follow the same formula as the first one, almost to a T. They just go about, you know, trying to collect on debts and eventually end up turning against the person who hired them. I mean, spoiler, but also you kind of see where this one's going. I think that one of the, you know, it's one of the best performances I've seen from Scott Atkins, one of the best performances I've seen from Louis Mandalore. It's got some absolutely fantastic action. The hallmark being, I think it's going to be like a like a fight scene that we talk about in years to come. Well, 
we as in people who like action like me <laughs> um there's a fight scene between scott atkins and lewis mandalore that's very clearly inspired by the fight scene from they live huh. uh between uh you know i forgot the name of the actor but roddy piper and his friend uh over the sunglasses it's very much the same kind of conceit and it's just like a modern twist on that and it's absolutely brilliant uh i think it might be the 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 best action scene of 2020 again slim pickings but uh yeah highly recommend uh debt collectors and if you haven't seen the debt collector go fix that what's your number four my number four is going to be the invisible man ah that's a good Uh, one again good old blumhouse do you have any bigger picture thoughts do you think there's anything to the fact that like you have so many like january and february 2020 movies on there because that's that's when the genre movies come out. That's when the ah. Daniel bait comes out. And so it's, 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 not, it's not as simple as you seeing it in theaters. You think it's just more genres that are up your alley. Yeah, that and also, uh, you know, like I just haven't seen that much that came out in the tail end of the year. I did miss out on the Oscar picks and I missed out on like, you know, big summer action blockbusters. They all got pushed to this year. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's kind of how it works out. But The Invisible Man, you know. Uh, I had been always saying when after I read the original novel, I was always like, oh, this would work as a slasher. And it does. Uh, that's kind of what the Invisible Man is. I hear that it's also kind of like a kind of uh, uh, another stab at a concept that's been done by I forgot what the name of the movie is. I think it was directed by Wes Craven, but it was kind of the same similar conceit where they kind of turn it into like a Me Too thriller, mm. uh, Me Too era age thriller. And uh, I think that it's very effective at what it does. Elizabeth Moss is great. And it's got some genuinely scary moments, which is, you know, kind of unusual for me to say. Uh, they make, they get a lot of mileage out of a knife just floating, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I love to see. Uh, support, I support those Blumhouse guys in everything they do. Um, my number three is going to be Unhinged. This was actually the only movie that I saw after the pandemic hit in all of 2020. I knew that. I, I, I knew that. I didn't realize you actually liked it that much, and it was worth the, oh, the risk of going oh, to the theater absolutely. at the point which you did. I saw this on my birthday, and I was like, uh-huh. yeah, absolutely. I want this kind of hard-boiled, ugly like kind of uh, genre picture. Uh, I th- I, I, somehow, this is the kind of movie where somehow, even though it's just about a guy driving after this lady in an incident of road rage. They somehow managed to find a way to have ugly politics. I forgot what exactly it was that's uncomfortable, but there's some kind of uncomfortable politics at work. Oh, I believe it's a weird sort of respectability politics where it's like everyone's too nasty and everyone should be nicer. And if you're not nice, whatever happens is on you is kind of the message of the movie, which is a fucked up message. It's straight up fucked up. Wait, is is, is God, the Russell Crowe character like encountering people of color that it's implying should be no, nicer no, no, to no, him? No, 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 oh, oh, no, okay. no, 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 The main conflict is like a white lady who like cuts him off in traffic mm. and he's having a horrible day. Uh, you see why he's having a horrible day and uh, it kind of sparks his rampage. Gotcha. When um, you said respectability politics, my head went to an even more problematic no, place, no, I guess. No, I know, I understand, <laughs> I understand. But yeah, it's a weird sort of respectability politics being you know, put at, put at everyone's gotcha. doorstep. I gotcha. Uh, but it is one of the best Russell Crowe performances really? out there. Russell Crowe is an amazing actor and uh, one of my favorites. Uh, I, one day I hope to make a movie where it's him and Gerard Butler sharing the screen. <laughs> Fingers crossed one day. But yeah, absolutely loved Unhinged. Absolutely worth seeing it in the theater. Uh, my number two for the year is going to be Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. Hmm. 
Hmm, that actually got didn't that get a best animated nomination at the Oscars? I believe it did, yeah, yeah, which I'm very thankful for. The first one was absolutely brilliant. I loved the first movie, and I was really looking forward to seeing this one on the big screen. Unfortunately, you know, even before the pandemic, it was it, it was a Netflix release. Ah. Um, but and it's kind of a feature length episode of the TV show, which I think even the first movie did a better job at avoiding falling into that trap. But I mean, come on, it's Ardman, man. Ardman, they, they don't miss. These motherfuckers do not miss. Uh, it's hilarious. It's heartfelt. It made me made me warm inside. Made me feel fuzzy inside, you know. And it's got some very very uh, inventive, creative humor. I mean, it's an Ardman movie. What the fuck do you want me to say? It's Ardman. Go well, see it. I'm still glad you at least like stumped for it here because you know it's something that I've never seen any of the Shaun the Sheep movies. And it's, I'm not one of those guys that's just like. Oh, I thought there were. I, I did, for some reason it felt, feels like there are more than one. I know Sean the Sheep movie came out in 2015. I'm looking at that now. I just, I kind of, I, I guess there's other mini shorts and specials that have come out or something that maybe make me think there's been more. But I, I just haven't watched either. And no, I, I'm not one of those guys. that's like I'm, I'm too mature. Or I'm too sophisticated. Or I don't like animated movies. That's not me. It's just no one had ever really given me a hard sell on it. That, whose taste I trust. So. I, I'm glad you went there, but I don't really have anything to add to that. So, Daniel, as it stands now, what is your number one movie of 2020? Well, admittedly, this one's a bit of a technicality because I believe the movie was made years ago and the movie had its premiere at TIFF in 2019. But I'm sorry, I was able to see it in 2020 for the first time as part of a uh, uh, YouTube was releasing a couple movies that premiered at TIFF on YouTube for like a limited amount of time. And so I saw it there, and sorry, y'all, but, you know, th that's how the chips go. My The best movie of 2020 for me, Crazy World. I've never even heard of it. What is it? Well, yes, you have, and if you haven't, you'll know why. Um, Crazy World is a movie from Wakaliwood. This is a movie a, from the same Ugandan film crew that did uh, Who Killed Captain Alex?, the same film crew that did Bad Black. You know, it's a low micro budget, like hundred, a budget in the hundreds, not the thousands, not the millions, the hundreds. And, you know, like it's, uh, I don't even really remember the concept, the, the actual premise. A gang of child snatching mobsters make a fatal mistake when they kidnap the Waka stars, a team of pint sized kung fu masters who soon turn their cunning wits and deadly skills upon their captors. Truthfully, man. I don't remember exactly anything that happens in this movie. I couldn't tell you. What I can tell you is that Nabwana IGG, the director, the Walk Hollywood crew, they don't miss. They love to do these sort of uh, micro-budget love letters to Hollywood action films. They, they, they understand the limitations that they have in their budget, and so they just have fun with it. They lean into all the cliches. They have a video DJ kind of like riffing on the entire movie as you're watching it, just cracking jokes the entire time. Uh, and it's just, I'm sorry, it's just one of the best times you'll have watching a movie. Um, I love everything they do, and I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, although I have no I see, I have no idea whether or not you're even able to watch this now. So you saw it on like a YouTube special type of thing? 
Correct, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was like a TIFF release. It doesn't even have its own Wikipedia entry. So that 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 says something, but I look, I appreciate you even throwing it out there because I would not have known it if not for that. But I yeah. it looks, yeah, if you I, can't I, watch it, if you can't watch it, I highly recommend that you at least watch Who Killed Captain Alex or Bad Black, both of which are on the official Wakaliwood YouTube channel. Gotcha. Well, Daniel, you brought some put some new things on my radar even though like our top tens have probably did not overlap at all that i'm pretty sure that's probably <laughs> the first time that's ever happened but i think you gave me a reason to watch a few things i probably wouldn't have picked up otherwise so i really appreciate your contributions thank you for sharing your 2020 top 10 with us we will see you in 2021 and thank you all right and we're back and now i am joined by fred cobb recurring guest to talk about his top 10 of the year and i think we joked fred when you were here last time uh which was to talk about two bad movies though movies that were getting nominated for awards which were uh i care a lot and hillbilly elegy that like you hadn't really uh you hadn't really been there been with us for a while to talk about a like a non james bond movie and at the time i forgot that we had talked about the devil all the time but also that's right not an awards player movie so i realized as i was doing that like wow like i actually haven't talked to fred about like many of the oscar players it just didn't work out that you happened to join (laughs) for any of them so i actually don't really know where you stand on like the year of 2020 and movies just as a whole because again i've only talked about the average not good movies with you from that year and i i've heard from a couple people already including daniel and our friend josh brown who just like don't think it was a good year in movies so i'm curious just to think before we actually dive into your top 10 just to get a context for how you think this one stacks up if given all this that we went through with the pandemic uh and how that affected what things got released because a lot of things got pushed some stuff maybe got highlighted a bit more did you ultimately think it was a comparatively weaker year in movies compared to years past so first of all uh i have considered doing a joke top 10 for you because today is April Fool's Day. Oh, my God. of course, Hillbilly Elegy and I Care A Lot would both have made the cut. Uh, but then I decided your part is probably going to be four hours long already. So we I mean, probably I, I, mean I would have appreciated. I mean, I would not have wanted you to like do that for thirty minutes. But it would have been you should have at yeah. least like not said anything and then like got to like not number one because that would have been too obvious. But then like, tried to slide <laughs> yeah. it in like number three if you had said hillbilly elegy and then just seen how confused I looked. I, 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 that yeah, that would have been interesting. That would have right? been that would have been a good way to play it. But I I yeah, I that, that would have. Yeah, that would have told you about the quality of uh, the movies this year if I'd had to include Hillbilly Elegy. But but um, I, I appreciate you considering that, though, because this is like my favorite exercise of the year to go through all this, but it is time-consuming. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, absolutely. That You know, but that said, um, as much as I tend to disagree with Daniel on a lot of his takes, um, I would say, generally speaking, I would agree that uh, this was a noticeably weaker year on the whole and i think there are some people who said that uh the last few months kind of made up for the fact that we almost didn't get any movies for the first half of the year um because some people were joking for a while that uh bad boys for life could potentially be a best picture oscar nominee Mm -hmm. uh, which obviously didn't manifest but generally speaking i would still say that normally every year you have this nice balance between uh the big blockbusters, you know, your Marvel movies, Star Wars every so often, uh, and then the smaller independent artistic pictures. Uh, and when you look back at the year, um, there's always going to be a nice blend of the two when you uh, think back of uh, what the overall makeup was. And this year, we just didn't have that. Like all of the major uh, studio fare got pushed back into 2021. Uh, some of the stuff got pushed back even further. Uh especially uh, if one of your actors is allegedly a cannibal. That's very problematic for some releases. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, death on the Nile. But I would say, yeah, I mean, when when I look at my top ten, um, I, I did find some very good movies that genuinely deserve to be there. Um, but I would say even my top three, I'm not quite as enthusiastic about as I was about uh, my top three last year and the year before that because I just didn't feel like there were those uh, big wow moments at the movie theater for me that sometimes really helped to uh, set movies apart and at the end of the year you keep coming back to those moments when it's time to uh, figure out which films made the best impression on you. Yeah, I'd probably say that in my top it's maybe only my top five that I feel confident would could have a good shot at making a top 10 maybe in prior years though i don't uh, at least any of my top 10s in prior years even if i do think there's still like a decent like i don't definitely don't have as like many four and a half star movies as i might normally which is also kind of what daniel said but i do think like i have like a if i look at my, my list i think maybe like my top 25 movies are all like good like it's hard for me to be that negative when i can say like i enjoyed all of them but i do think i'm probably like kind of on the same page as you uh, as well now that i'm like kind of looking over my list again but yeah so yeah. sorry go I, ahead. I was just gonna say um i didn't quite realize this until i prepared for this part and mm-hmm. i was looking back at the movies from last year right. uh there wasn't a single movie last year i gave five stars to oh, and wow. that's pretty much unheard of yeah i mean i had a whole bunch of four and a half star ones actually mm-hmm. uh, and those are movies that all made the list and that i would consider to be genuinely good um and probably movies that would have made my top 10 in other years as well uh but last year, uh, my top two were 1917 and Uncut Gems, both 100% five-star movies. And this year, I just didn't quite feel that strongly about any of them. Yeah, I've tried. I've tried to get stingier uh, with five stars. Uh, with with five stars myself, and I only had I I only had uh, I only had one this year. And what did I do last year? Now that now that you're making me think about that, I did. I think I had probably like four or five last year. It was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know Parasite. I definitely gave five to. And I might have even given Uncut Gems 5 on, like, a second viewing because I think I, like, upped it in, like, my... I think my opinion of it only got better after I watched it again. Uh, Farewell, Portrait of Lady on Fire, Knives Out, John Wick 3. And, yeah, so I had, like, five... Mm -hmm. I had, like, five five five-stars. I was actually pretty generous last year. And I really liked my next five also um, the last year. Yeah, 2019 was definitely better, even now that that I'm looking at it. But, um, yeah, yeah, but, like, I still found plenty to like in 2020. So, uh, without further ado, Fred, what was your 10th favorite movie of 2020? All right, I'm going to preface uh, this by saying that both my number 10 and my number 9 movie, um, there were probably about 10 contestants for those two spots. Um, And I just ended up picking the two that I uh, think are probably the more unique picks and the ones that uh, struck a more personal uh, chord with me. So does that mean there's a definite drop-off after your top eight? Would that be fair to say then, as far as for you? Um, Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I would say a definite drop-off, but I would say that... There were just a whole bunch of movies this year that I would consider to be pretty good. Mm. Um, but yeah, those are all movies that normally wouldn't have made my top 10, probably. I got so, you. So I what's... don't know how big the drop-off is, but I definitely, like, there wasn't, like, a clear top 10 for me that I would always pick again um, if you were going to do this part with me one more time. Interesting. So, so what's number 10? So my number 10 movie of the year. So uh, not an April Fool's joke. I genuinely mean this. Um, so I... Never thought that I would actually put a Will Ferrell movie in my top 10. But now that it's Academy Award nominated, I think it's not quite as egregious of a pick. And as a European who grew up watching the Eurovision Song Contest, I do have to say that I genuinely appreciated his understanding of 
what makes those musical numbers unique, which is that the choreography is just totally bonkers and huh. often more memorable than the songs. Um, so if it wasn't clear by now, my number 10 movie of the year is Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Wow. So I, am not, I, I don't watch it. I'm not ashamed of this pick. I actually thought back to it uh, just today, and I'd only watched it about a week ago when it got that Oscar nomination for that big show-stopping song at the end. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it yet, I don't even want to give too much away because maybe now that it's Oscar nominated, you'll actually check it out. I think I think um, you, you're, you putting in your top 10 makes me more likely to watch it than it being Oscar nominated. Uh, so <laughs> I, I was thinking about going to just listen to the song before it got performed at the Oscars. Hopefully it gets performed at the Oscars. I don't know how they're logistically doing that, but it, from what I understand about this song in this number in the movie it seems like it'd be like kind of cool and unique for them to do on the level of uh you know uh everything is awesome the lego movie song getting performed like it's cool that they might do an outside the box thing like that yeah it really would have brought the house down probably i don't know if it's going to be possible this year which is genuinely unfortunate and you know for me this movie is kind of the reverse talladega nights uh talladega nights when i first watched it way back in 2006 i had just come to this country and I didn't really know anything about <laughs> yeah. NASCAR or this like super like uber patriotic uh, humor that he was using. And I actually just rewatched it last year and it was suddenly a lot funnier. Um, and this one, Eurovision Song Contest, I feel like if you grew up in Europe um, and if you kind of understand the cultural phenomenon that the Eurovision Song Contest is, um, there was just so much in there uh, for you to recognize and to get a chuckle out of. Uh, and, you know, I also appreciate like a serious actor like Pierce Brosnan being in there, kind of making fun of himself. Uh, Dan Stevens is hilarious. Hmm. Uh, some of the songs they came up with are like genuinely like catchy. Um, and the soundtrack is only about 45 minutes long. And some of the songs, uh, you know, I feel like could definitely uh, make it onto some charts. So I give Will Ferrell credit. Like, it's clear that he did he did his research, that he was interested in the topic and um he has been in some comedies that were just, uh, I think I used the expression soulless patchworks in the past, uh, but this one genuinely came from the heart and I felt that. So that's, that's fair. Definitely I'm, something I uh, really enjoyed. After, after game night, I'm also intrigued by anything when time Rachel McAdams says comedy. So I am, I, I think I'm definitely going to check it out now before the Oscars air. You've, you've sold me. So what's your number nine? Uh, my number nine. So I have considered disqualifying that from disqualifying it from consideration because I watched Lost in Translation recently, and I hated it. Huh. I think Lost in Translation. So if you will pardon me for uh, about a minute here, uh, I'm going to go on a quick rant about that movie. This is this is a pro watched... Sofia Coppola podcast, so you got to tread lightly, Fred. But go ahead. Well, <laughs> I, will, I mean. <laughs> I did put, okay, so my, my number nine movie of the year is On the Rocks, um, and I'll explain why in a second, okay. uh, but after I explain my issue with Lost in Translation. Sure. I really think people should rewatch that if they haven't seen it in a while, because I genuinely don't understand how it's not considered extremely offensive. I think that movie, like, basically is uh, a very sort of privileged uh, viewpoint of white people in Asia making fun of the culture uh, of the Japanese and having a laugh at them. Um, and this whole idea that uh, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson feel kind of uh, isolated and excluded because they don't really understand the culture or can't really communicate properly, uh, that's kind of their problem. I mean, maybe they should have learned the language. Maybe they should have tried a little harder to uh, understand uh, what country they were in as opposed to complaining that uh, 
nobody really gets what they're talking about. And there are a couple of jokes in there that are genuinely like jaw dropping in the sense that today I don't think you would get away with those anymore. And maybe back in 2003, none of that was as big of a deal. But in 2021, watching it the first time, it was a little embarrassing, actually. So wow. I was not a fan. That said, On the Rocks did resonate with me. First of all, yes, for a very simple reason. And I wouldn't quite go so far as to uh, equate him with Felix uh, on like the exact same level. But he did remind me a lot of my own grandfather and his relationship with uh, his daughter, Laura, kind of reminded uh, me of the relationship my grand my grandfather has with my mother uh, in the sense that um, he wasn't really there when she was growing up and he didn't really take family especially seriously. And he was always uh, sort of like into like the things that interested him. And he was always a bit enigmatic and larger than life. Uh, but now that he's a little bit older, he's mellowed in a way where he's trying to be a part of her life and he's really making an effort to uh, make up for that lost time. Uh, and I really, you know, saw a lot of that relationship in this movie as well. So whenever uh, Rashida Jones and Bill Murray were on screen together, um, it, was, it really was just a joy to watch that. And, you know, especially for someone who hasn't really made a lot of uh, great movies over the past couple of years. Uh, I really appreciated that he got an opportunity here to play this part again where he shows that now that he's a little bit older, more refined, um, he isn't really doing uh, like the stuff that he got famous with anymore, like the more laugh-out-loud funny comedies. Um, I thought it was a really great fit for him. I actually thought it was kind of unfortunate that he didn't get an Oscar nomination. Um, it, it was a pretty competitive category this year. But at the same time... Um, I thought this was really an underrated movie, um, and maybe because, again, not everybody can relate to these characters uh, as well as I was able to. Um, but it's always nice when you watch a movie and you see a lot of yourself or some of your family in those characters. So that's why it really resonated with me and why I decided to uh, ultimately put it in my top 10. Yeah, I don't question your observations of Lost in Translation, though I do feel like I might just be kind of an ignorant foreigner for not picking up on some of the stuff you have picked up on it but i did even say at the time that i thought that like i even though i didn't rate this movie as highly as i would probably rate lost in translation i think it might even be a better bill murray performance and i felt pretty mm -hmm. strong about that when i saw it i just felt like uh you know he's playing a larger than like broader performance in some ways but i also felt like he's also pretty subtle in some ways and it gets to emote in different ways that i don't even really feel like he did in lost in translation and i really appreciated that my bigger problem with on the rocks is that as soon as laura's husband the character's name is laura is what you said right uh yep, that's right. as soon as her husband dean says the rest of your gift isn't ready yet then i just kind of like know for a fact that like that i, I just kind of knew for a fact that like you know all of her suspicions were going to be wrong and that he was going to have some big gesture at the end and i just kind of knew where the movie was headed and i didn't like that and it was like oh man i i feel like this is a lot of wasted motion to get to somewhere where i know it's going to go and i would have rather this movie like been almost even somehow more focused on uh laura and felix you know uh and that that was kind of where I came down on it, though I did because I, I really enjoyed that corner of the movie. And I love Sofia Coppola, though my personal favorite of hers is The Beguiled, uh, which is like a kind of a divisive movie, but like is my favorite of hers. Uh, so yeah, and I'm a big fan. I'm I, I, and just just to be clear, like I'm a big fan of The Virgin Suicides as well. Like mm -hmm. this isn't like in any way like me disparaging Sofia Coppola. I just really didn't have a particularly good reaction to Lost in Translation <laughs> in particular because I, I watched it fairly recently. Uh, that came back to mind when I was picking my top 10 here. But 
you know, ultimately it's about this movie and I really liked it. So it deserves to be here. Yeah. What's your number eight? My number eight. So this is actually the last movie I watched before uh, theaters shut down uh, before the pandemic. And, you know, it's kind of nice because um, he's been getting his due over the past couple of weeks now that the Snyder Cut for Justice League is out. Um, And even though Sad Affleck is kind of a popular meme, uh, I think it speaks well for him as the kind of guy who has a strong work ethic and really cares about uh, his performances and how people think of his movies. So I was very glad that he had a chance earlier this year to really shine in a movie that was really all about showing what he can do as an actor. So my number eight movie of the year is The Way Back. Yeah, um, the, I like that movie too. It's in my top twenty, so I've, I'm 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 right there with you. It was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, and you know, uh, I'm definitely not into basketball, and I'm also not generally into sports movies. Um, but that really wasn't even the emphasis of this. And what was interesting about The Way Back when I watched it at the time was I just watched Leaving Las Vegas a few nights before, hmm. which is a very dark and just very dispiriting uh, depiction of alcohol abuse uh, when Nicolas Cage just like heads down this really dark road that uh, ends in a particularly uh, sort of gut-wrenching dead end. And this movie was a lot more hopeful where... It didn't really get overly sentimental or cheesy. It really showed the hard realities of what happens when somebody is struggling with uh, an addiction and it takes over his professional life, where even when he finds something that he's passionate about, sometimes it's just really difficult uh, to get away from something that's dominated your life for so long. And I really think that he portrayed it like excellently and I mean, the movie came out at a time when he was kind of uh, at a personal low in his life as well. And I think he really channeled that in his performance. And, you know, I really would have liked to see him get some recognition for that. Uh, But at the time, reviews were extremely uh, positive. Uh, He got a lot of great feedback. And it was kind of unfortunate a few years ago um, when he uh, directed uh, his uh, most recent movie. What was it? Live by Night? Yeah, it was not good. And I was hoping I had high hopes for that one. Yeah, I didn't even end up watching it when I saw the reviews. And it's unfortunate because he's a fantastic director. I think The Town is genuinely one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. Um, one of the great heist thrillers of all time. I just watched Argo for the first yeah. time a few yeah. days ago. Gone Be, so, Be Gone is honestly my favorite of those three. Yeah, also a terrific movie. So, you know, I think the guy is like genuinely talented. Like when he brings his A game, like it's fantastic stuff. Um, and this really was like a very nice movie to go out on uh, before theaters shut down. So it was one I look back on very fondly uh, when I decided on my top 10. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty high on at least one other person's top 10 uh, in the in the crew. So good chance that cracks our composite one. And I, I also agree. Who knows? If it had been a fall release, maybe he would have had a shot at awards. But it was, uh, like you said, really great performance. And I wrote, what I wrote at the time was it was you know impressive that it was a, a movie about alcoholism first and a basketball movie second. And, uh, and, it, and it didn't play. In, and because of that, it kind of avoided a lot of the sports movie cliches, which I think was uh, a, ve- a very important thing. Uh, what is your number seven? Uh, my number seven. I know you like this movie too because you actually recorded a podcast on it twice. You liked it so much. <laughs> um, I'm actually always really excited when uh, there's an actor or an actress that uh, I've been following for a long time, even longer than uh, most other people have, and you kind of see how their career played out. Uh, and I'm a big Doctor Who fan. I, 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 I was wondering if you were going to start talking about Blink. 
Blink, absolutely, yeah. So if you're a fan, then uh, you've been following Carrie Mulligan's career for a very long time. And even back then, it was already clear that she was destined for great things. And this right now, my number seven movie of the year, Promising Young Woman, I would say has really been uh, the peak of her journey so far. And it's a really impressive performance. The movie asks a lot of her. Um, and I think even though uh, it's a competitive category, Frances McDormand gave a great performance to uh, Vanessa Kirby in what I thought was not necessarily a great movie, also really uh, gives a standout performance. Uh, but I really do hope that Carrie Mulligan takes it home because it, it's it's definitely a very provocative work. And there are a lot of, I think, uh, justified or at least... Um, well-reasoned criticisms about why some parts of it don't work, especially towards the end, um, where I think some of the messaging is kind of conflicting or at the very least whiplash-inducing. Um, I would say it's just like such, such a ferocious performance where on one hand, um, it's really about the trauma that comes with higher education, like neglecting some of the really dark things that can happen on campus. And that's something that unfortunately I saw as well back uh, when I was still in college, where I got the sense, I mean, we were both in Greek life, uh, that some of this stuff wasn't as, wasn't taken as seriously as it really should have been, um, especially by some of the higher-ups who really could have made a difference. So when you watch a movie like Promising Young Woman that, you know, is very vicious and really doesn't let anybody off the hook, it, it, it really does work. And it really uh, was an impressive showcase for not just her, but also... Bo Burnham, for example, who I think isn't getting enough love for uh, the performance he gives here. Uh, without giving too much away, like he really has to walk a very fine line uh, to make some of the payoffs work at the end. And I thought the movie really kind of got to that point very impressively because it made you kind of realize uh, we have to all think back a little bit and uh, be aware that even though we always consider ourselves uh, holier than thou, maybe we also had moments in our past where we should have spoken up or thought about it a little more. Um, and that really resonated with me as well. So this is definitely a movie that people, I think, will be talking about for years. Um, and it's very well deserved that it's getting so much uh, attention and so much uh, critical love and awards recognition this year. Yeah, it's, it's my number four. And I was, uh, I think it's really impressive how, like you said, it, it really makes you look inward but and handle some very weighty subject matters, but it just manages to be really entertaining at the exact, at the same time. It's truly an impressive balancing act of tone. And I get why some people might not totally be there with the tone or some of the messaging, though I think all of it ultimately did end up working for me. I can understand why some people might it just might not 100% work for others, but it, it did for me. So I'm I'm glad to hear it. Uh, it was right up there for you as well. What's your number six? Uh, so I won't spend a lot of time uh, doing an intro for my number six movie, mainly because I have a feeling a lot of people haven't heard of it or seen it. Hmm. Um, so I actually don't know if you've seen it. My number six movie of the year is the uh, Romanian uh, nomination for Best International Feature uh, Collective. I just watched it a few days ago. I hadn't actually gotten a chance to uh, log in on Letterboxd yet, but I, I, I have I had caught up on it. Ah, that, that's good to hear. I'm pretty sure uh, it was also on Obama's list for the year. So that's how it got a little... Yeah, so that's how I got a little bit of attention, and I uh, was so lucky enough that... Uh, it got a nomination for Best Best International Feature and Best Documentary. And Best Documentary, yes. And uh, I got kind of lucky because uh, Romania was had just submitted it when it was playing at a film festival I was kind of uh, checking out during the fall, and I was able to watch it back then. Okay, um, so you were early on this one. Uh, yeah, I was. And, you know, it, 
really kind of resonates in a sort of unexpected and ironic way because it's about the Romanian healthcare system and specifically about the failures and the corruption uh, in the Romanian healthcare system. And considering what we've all experienced last year uh, with some of the just gross incompetence and willful negligence uh, with COVID-19. Yeah, and the events, um, the events of Collective are like 2015, 2016-ish, so really, really really like uh ahead of its time in a way unfortunately <laughs> yeah and just for uh those who haven't really heard of it yet or know what it's about uh there was a uh fire at a nightclub uh in bucharest back in 2015 and uh a considerable amount of people already died in the fire but what was much worse is uh people who went to the hospital who would have had a chance to survive uh ended up passing away because um some of the hospitals just didn't have the proper equipment. Uh, they weren't properly sanitized. There were infections and people who really could have been saved and should have been saved uh, didn't make it as a result. Uh, and the movie is really about the aftermath and uh, some of the reporting and the investigations uh, that went into it. A sports newspaper really... was the one that kind of was on top of the story above all else. Yeah, absolutely. Which was kind of interesting, right? That they were the ones who really got the scoop on it. And you know what really impressed me was uh, like when you watch documentaries, like you expect people to obviously talk and to uh, give their like feedback on what happened, and uh, you have experts uh, giving their opinions. And this really played out more like some of the great journalism thrillers um, of the past, like movies like Spotlight, movies like All the President's Men, uh, where it's more about a bunch of people like working together to uh, uncover every single facet of the story. Uh, and that's how it really played out for me, like a really good, very intense thriller. You know, uh, and that those are really the best kinds of documentaries for me. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about the movie, and I won't go into too much detail on it. I mean, you can't really spoil a true story like that, but I want people to kind of see it for themselves. It's it's easily available. It's on Hulu now. And I would say one of the things I found fascinating is because you hear at the beginning of the movie that like there had been such a like a corruption scandal that the party in power had to like basically like stepped down and they put together an independent nonpartisan government by committee until the next elections could be held. And a lot of the movie builds up to the next elections when they're wondering if the party that like actually, you know, cares more about healthcare and is going to root out the corruption will, will prevail or not. But in the interim, because of that, uh, or not necessarily because of that, because it happens a little later in the movie, but it turns out that the minister of health was like kind of corrupt himself a little bit or just did such a bad mm -hmm. job that he has to step down. So they then bring in this other guy to replace him who is like a she's trying to do everything the exact opposite of the way it had been done, basically, because he just sees how bad it was done. He's going to be like super transparent, do lots of press, uh, allow this documentary crew in to like watch everything he does. <laughs> and it's just like really, really weird to like that like or fascinating to watch a guy try and like take over an impossible situation like this but also like the contrast to our country where it's like you know america is so far ahead of romania in so many other ways like it's not even a question they can do all these surgeries where it's like the company the country doesn't even know if it can like has the capacity to do like basic lung transplants and stuff like that so like we're obviously ahead of them and stuff like that but we don't have the mechanisms in our government to like just remove someone that's super corrupt <laughs> you know it's like yeah. it's kind of funny how like they have certain levers of democracy that america doesn't even have but then even when those work like the systems that are there are just like so powerful powerfully working against democracy that like it's actually kind of interesting to see someone actually try and fight against that uh because I, I don't even know if there's a real point of comparison for like any kind of political documentary having it's a political documentary it's a journalism documentary it manages to be a lot of things and it's very impressive and we don't really have a point of reference for anyone getting that kind of media access in our country yeah absolutely and you know the story that you kind of described of this guy taking on the system and 
I mean, the thing about him is like he doesn't really strike you as like the man of the hour. I mean, the way I described him in my review was uh, he has the charisma of someone who might have been elected treasurer of his high school. <laughs> yeah, he's just um, he's just there trying to do his best, but he's not like a not like a traditional you know glad handing politician type. Yeah, but but at the same time, yeah, it's great to see like these guys at work and to really get some insight. Even, I mean, the Romanian healthcare system isn't really a topic I have any sort of insight uh, into. I mean, who does? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really great for uh, a director to tell a story he's passionate about uh, that people haven't really heard anything about, and by the end of it, you're really kind of uh, impressed, like how much uh, a you learned and b like how it got to your emotions because this is something you. Uh, obviously would really hate to see happen uh, in our country. And then you remember, oh, wait a minute, we just had a major health care crisis last year that was Sheesh. tragically reminiscent of some, some of the stuff we see here. Yeah, what's your number five, Fred? My um, number five movie of the year. Um, also won't spend too much time introducing this one because we've all heard of it. We all love it. Uh, that's Nomadland. Ah, yes. And uh, I mean, there are some people who I'm sure will uh, rank this even higher. Uh and we'll have uh, plenty maybe, of reasons. Maybe the Academy. <laughs> maybe the Academy, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, deservedly so. Um, for a whole bunch of different reasons uh, that really sort of struck me. When Fern says that she doesn't consider herself to be homeless but houseless, it really just like brings up so many like fascinating points and ideas about uh, modern-day America, especially because like we've all kind of been trained to think of... Uh, Corporate America is the end-all, be-all. Like, we as a society, we're moving towards collective streamlining. Uh, like, we work 40 hours or more uh, every week. Like, we get our paychecks. Um, and then there's this really tragic story um, in here where some guy was working his entire life and he was saving up to buy a boat. Uh, and then, I think it was the week he was supposed to retire, uh, he had a heart attack, passed away, and never even got to take the boat out on the lake. And that was really the story from that movie that kind of struck with me where you think, you know, uh, like, is the point of life working so hard that you can afford to buy that boat or is it to make time for yourself so you can take that boat out on the lake? And that kind of ties into this whole idea of being houseless as opposed to homeless, because what is really our home, right? Like, is it the four walls we live in or is our home the beautiful country that's all around us that uh, we're currently in the process of destroying? So. It really kind of gets you to think about uh, what America is all about. Uh, some of the people who've been on the road like all this time, uh, people who lost their homes, who lost their jobs. I mean, on one hand, like, it's kind of tragic to see and hear some of their stories. Uh, but there's also something incredibly liberating uh, about what the movie does, where you see that like being out on the road uh, isn't really a sign of failure so much, but it's just a different opportunity a new opportunity to meet new people and to really get to know this country uh after you've maybe lived a life kind of boxed in where you went to work every single day and you didn't really have a chance to experience that side of it um and i mean i watched the movie a few months ago already at a film festival and i haven't seen it since uh but i still think back to it like every so often and some of the points it was making and um francis mcdormand obviously isn't the kind of glamorous Hollywood actress we always kind of think of as the stereotype. Um, and just like her sort of like uh, rugged features and that just unpolished image that she has, like really allows her to uh, insert herself into this character and into this world uh, and make it so incredibly uh, credible, for lack of a better word. 
So really one of the great achievements of 2020. Yeah, I, I, what I will say is I like that you zoned in on that, uh, the, the quote about being uh, houseless, not homeless, because I, it kind of gets at what I said, I thought Chloe Zhao's main thesis of the movie was, which was that like she discovered and embedded herself in this community of this particular lifestyle in which she sees great value, but you should only really have to be a part of that. You should only really be a part of that community if it's your choice. And for some people, that wasn't a choice. It's a choice that was basically made for them by, you know, their government and this country. And uh, it's unfortunate that some didn't get to just kind of embrace that on their own terms. And it does a great job of just, you know, showing you all the different ways people ended up there and what that means while still telling Fern's story, first and foremost. Uh, What's your number four? Uh, My number four movie. um, I was very happy about this one. So uh, back in 2019, one of the last trips that I got to take before COVID was uh, a few days in Ireland, uh, which is one of my like favorite countries really to visit, like beautiful nature, the food is fantastic, love the people. Uh, and a big part of their culture is their rich mythology. Um, and a lot of people think of leprechauns when they think of Irish mythology, which is just a very sort of narrow and superficial take on uh, everything they have to offer. And uh, my number four movie of the year, which is Wolfwalkers, uh, really one of the great animated achievements um, of the last couple of years. Uh, it really sort of ties into that where, uh, first of all, this idea of uh, being a person during the day and then being a wolf at night when you're asleep, like being a wolf isn't depicted as something like bad or evil or monstrous. Uh, it's portrayed as something liberating. Like now you have the opportunity to like be a part of nature. You get to experience the world in a totally different way than uh, when you're a human. So it really goes into all kinds of interesting themes like uh, the perils of deforestation, animal cruelty. Uh, it even touches on religious extremism uh, quite a bit. And the animation style is like so unique where it really makes you wonder uh, this progress that we've made towards photorealistic animation uh, if it's really all that desirable or hmm. if the more unique, more quirky styles uh, are something we should uh, do a better job of embracing. So uh, we don't give uh, studios the idea that uh, making animation look as lifelike as possible is the end all be all. Uh, Wolfwalkers, it's available for streaming on Apple. Um, I do highly recommend it. I'm sure Soul is going to win the award at the Oscars this year. Um but this is really just such a gorgeous movie, and uh, I really do hope people make some time to see it. It, it, it did get a uh, it did get a nomination for animated yeah. feature, I'm glad, deservedly so. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad you gave me the reminder to watch it because it kind of been on my list. I don't. I'm just hearing about it. Like I'm intrigued. I don't know if it's up my alley enough that it would break my top ten. So I'm not going to sweat the fact that like I kind of already locked my top 10 in for the most part, but I'm going to try and watch it before I record Joe's top 10 because I feel like he, he he's a big animation guy and there's a chance it might have made it there for mm-hmm. him. And who knows, maybe I'll be inspired enough to try and get him to do an episode on it or something. But I feel like I should be up to date and knowledgeable enough on that one before the Oscars come. But I can't really add anything to what you said. I think you did a good job of selling it. What's your number three? My number three. So at the time, I uh, said it was the funniest film of 2020 when mm. I posted the review, thinking that, some funnier ones would come along and that didn't happen. So this is going to stay locked in as my favorite comedy of 2020, uh, which is uh, unflatteringly uh, thought of as Groundhog Day 2.0, even it's, though it's so much better than that. Uh, it's Palm Springs. That's... And Andy Samberg, I've uh, been a huge fan of his for years. I thought Popstar was uh, also a very funny movie, kind of underrated. Uh, 
and you know, I really thought that it did a very impressive job taking a premise that's uh, been done to death in some ways and really found new angles to it. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, because, I mean, the big selling point of Groundhog Day was kind of uh, Bill Murray being all by himself uh, and being the only guy who's realizing that the day keeps repeating over and over again. So he's stuck in this world and nobody else uh, knows that he's sort of omniscient because he gets to meet everybody and then everything resets. Uh, and Andy Samberg isn't by himself. There are other people that he kind of dragged into this. Uh, and that makes the whole thing a lot more fascinating because all of a sudden you uh, get to experience everybody's kind of dilemmas and uh, sort of uh, trouble. Yeah, it's a really, about, it's like, a really sm- obvious, smart twist. You know, it could easily felt like more of a ripoff of Groundhog Day if they didn't think to do it the way they did. Yeah, and, and you know, like you think of the J.K. Simmons character, for example, who's just kind of like on his revenge trip at the beginning, and then there are some like very sort of deep and philosophical philosophical points actually by the end where you kind of realize that uh he's made his peace with what happened because uh the day he gets to live over and over again made him kind of realize what he's been missing out on up until now and it's kind of tragic almost and i really thought that a movie that could have just been kind of uh silly and uh shown andy samberg doing his pranks because uh he's able to do it and get away with it uh it really ended up being a lot cleverer than that and i also appreciated that it's pretty clear that uh his character isn't just this uh irresponsible sort of poltergeist who just uh has a joke at everyone's expense like he kind of realizes that um you still have to sort of be accountable for your actions and he even says it at some point where uh sure the clock resets for you every single morning but uh when you have no accountability anymore and there are really no consequences to your actions what do you become at that point uh, when you're essentially God? And I think the movie did a pretty good job of addressing some of those themes as well. So what kind of seems like a silly comedy on the surface um, really ended up being a lot deeper and a lot uh, more intelligent than that. So that's why I think it it deserves its spot in yeah. the top three. It's, like, al- it's also my number three, actually. And I, oh, okay. yeah, and I, I mean, I agree with everything you said. And I, I think I wrote at the time that the, you mentioned the J.K. Simmons character. I mean, it's really impressive that they movie, he plays like, three different versions of that guy in different ways, actually. And he's, they give him a full arc and it's like a 90 minute movie and you don't feel like you're shortchanged on the Andy Samberg, Chris and Milotti part of it either. By the way, the Golden Globes totally snubbed her. It's, I mean, she gives, in my opinion, mm-hmm. she gives the best performance of the movie and he, Andy Samberg got nominated and she didn't. I mean, she wouldn't have been undeserving if the Oscars had found a spot for her. I thought she was that good. Uh, and so, yeah. You know how I feel about the winner of that award at the Golden Globes for yeah, this actress we, we, comedy. We, so. we don't have to talk about that again. Um, yeah, I <laughs> uh, uh, What's your number two? My number two movie of the year. So I live in Nashville, which is a city all about music. And over the past year, I've really gotten to understand uh, how much that means to a lot of people, especially because of COVID. Uh, A lot of them weren't able to perform and they rely on it for their income. Uh, They rely on it for inspiration. Um, And music, like being a part of somebody's life, uh, has kind of become a cliche in movies almost where uh, it can solve every single problem. So I really thought it was interesting that my number two movie of the year kind of subverted that by doing the exact exact opposite by removing music removing sound and what that does to a person uh who's been inspired by it for his entire life so my number two movie of the year uh is sound of metal Mm. which i thought was not really a movie that would 
go anywhere near my top 10, just because I thought it's not really my genre, like heavy metal music. Uh, don't really care much for that. Uh, Riz Ahmed is an actor who I kind of associate unflatteringly and kind of uh, unfairly with uh, his performance uh, in Venom, uh, <laughs> his performance in Jason Bourne. Um, hey, I actually kind of like his performance. I actually like his performance in Jason Bourne, but I think Jason Bourne's a bad movie. But like, I thought he actually got like the uh, the speech uh, the speech affectations of a tech bro down pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> but he hasn't really gotten a great platform, at least on the big screen yet. I mean, he did the Night Off for HBO a few years ago, which he got great reviews for. Um, but this was really his moment, mm-hmm. um, and I really appreciated that uh, a movie that could have easily drifted off into being sentimental and. Uh, somebody like embracing um, it's never called a disability, which I appreciate. Um, like he never really like full on embraces it, but he learns to live with it because he is around people who don't pity him. And that's why I'm sorry that Paul Rossi got his Oscar nomination mm-hmm. because he's really sort of the figure in this movie that al- allows him to come to terms with the whole situation because he makes him realize that this is really just a part of life that he has to go through now. He has to come to terms with the fact that even if he gets his implants, his hearing the way he's used to it isn't coming back. And even though music was such a big part of his life, he'll have to find other ways to find happiness without that to prevent him from falling back into his addiction. And I really thought the movie did a lot of just very emotional things. Uh, without going to a place that I really didn't want it to go. I mean, the performances are terrific across the board. And, you know, just looking at that opening scene where you see Riz Ahmed, like he's surrounded by his instruments. It's loud, like he's in the zone, like he's sweating. Like it's a very intense moment. And then at the very end, that final scene where he takes the implants out and everything is silent. Like it's such a nice contrast, like from the beginning where it's like all loud and that's kind of where he was in the zone. And then at the end when it's all quiet, he can't hear anything anymore and he just takes a moment to himself where he's found peace and i really thought it just came circle full circle absolutely beautifully um and it really is one of the great achievements of uh 2020 and i'm glad that the oscars recognized that yeah it, it did very well at the oscars for a movie that just kind of like really just kind of seemed to build by word of mouth throughout all of oscar season you know i it didn't feel like it was like a huge thing like I, people that really care about this stuff like you or i might have seen it near its release but i just didn't feel like it was getting like a huge buzz at the moment it actually came out and it just it just kind of kept building and building and showing up in all the awards bodies i thought and i kind of thought at first like oh it's interesting riz ahmed might get an oscar nomination but i didn't expect it to get anything else and then it it got in and you know writing picture sound obviously and paul rachi which is you know supporting actors always a very loaded category so i i really liked it too is in my top i think 15 for the year and uh just you know handled some very delicate subject matter in a way that was you know, an easier watch is my biggest takeaway from that movie than you would have thought. When you hear this, when you just, kind of the tone, it seems like it might set at the beginning when you're just seeing all the heavy metal, you know, even the title of the movie. I just thought it was going to be an angrier movie than it was. And mm-hmm. it still it had plenty of dramatic weight, but at the same time, like I watched it again because I, I did it with our friend Kayla. I did the podcast with her, but it just didn't work out to do the podcast with her till you know, over a month, I think, after my first viewing. And I was like, oh man, am I going to not like to sit through this again? And I really... It's a very easy watch even on the second time for something that's very hard to watch someone go through that physically challenging process of losing your hearing and face all the challenges he does in life. But it's it's just a very well done. What is your number one movie of 2020, Fred? My number one movie of 2020. So uh, I had to put a lot of thought into this because um, 
as I was saying earlier, like there wasn't one movie that I felt so strongly about that I thought it was like the easy pick. So then my thought process was kind of, so what was 2020 all about and what are we going to think of uh, going down the road with this year uh, really gave us and what it made us think about. And aside from the obvious one, which is COVID-19, uh, it was also a bit of a an awakening and a recognizing about the deeply ingrained racism in this country, in our institutions, in our history. Uh, and then the question kind of came up, like, who has always done a good job of addressing that? Um, and then also, of course, uh, Chadwick Boseman passed away last year. And all of the, that kind of came together where I thought, you know, this was a movie that always would have cracked my top three. And I think just some of those considerations really put it to the top. Um, when I was watching it at the time, I wouldn't have expected this to be my number one movie, but now that it's there, I feel pretty confident in uh, my choice. Uh, my number one movie of the year is Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. Wow. And, you know, I really didn't think that there were any more new things to say about the Vietnam War, because there was a time period, uh, like in the late 70s and the 1980s, uh, movies like The Deer Hunter, Platoon, um, Apocalypse Now, obviously, that really like dove deep into this uh, subject matter. And um, you would have thought that 40 years after the end of the Vietnam War, there wasn't really anything else uh, to add to that story. Uh, but Spike Lee really kind of uh, put his finger on the wound by asking, why should people who have been systemically oppressed by their own country be forced to rally behind a flag and show blind patriotism when the country isn't really affording them the rights uh, that they would or should be willing to fight and die for that country. And, and I thought it was like a really fascinating point um, because obviously we have the question, uh, like, should you kneel during the national anthem? No, you can't kneel during the national anthem, but go off and fight and die for your country. And it really kind of like hit home that point in a movie that was really just intense for like the entire two and a half hours. Uh, with like one hell of a performance by Delroy Lindo. I will never understand to the end of my days how that did not get an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. I don't think anybody really understands it. Yeah, um, I actually probably had Banks slightly ahead of The Five Bloods in my rankings, but I would have much preferred Delroy Lindo getting nominated to Gary Oldman. Yeah, and it raises some interesting point about that character too, because um, he wears a MAGA hat for most of the movie. Like he's into Trump. Uh, and I think what Spike Lee is kind of showing us here is that, first of all, that the spectrum of the people who fell for Trump's con is much wider than Americans are willing to acknowledge sometimes. Uh, and it also kind of uh, shines a light on the fact that a lot of black people have become so angry, so disappointed and so disillusioned uh, with everything that's been happening uh, that he thought the best solution would be to turn to somebody who kept saying, I'm going to make it all better for everyone. Uh, and it's really fascinating to see a character of so many like internal conflicts who is so deeply broken uh, that 40, 45 years later, like he's still like so deeply traumatized and struggles to have a bond with his friends, uh, his war buddies from back in the day, uh, and his own son, who's uh, played by Jonathan Majors, who uh, had a big breakthrough role in Lovecraft Country this year, which, side note, terrific show on HBO that I highly recommend. Um, yeah, so... Chadwick Boseman isn't really a major part of this movie. Um, like his role ultimately boils down to just a handful of scenes. Uh, 
that are mostly flashbacks. But it's really kind of a fitting performance. And I actually only watched The Five Bloods after he had passed away already, which kind of made me look at the movie in a different way than I probably would have otherwise, because now that he obviously is no longer with us, like we're going to look at his performances, we're going to dissect them, we're really going to uh, try and understand like what his legacy was. Um, and I think it's really just such a fitting final performance as this guy who is sort of like the moral center, the moral guide uh, for these characters. Uh, and even like decades after his death, they still look to him sort of for that spiritual guidance uh, when they're back in Vietnam for the first time. And uh, their friendship is really on the line because uh, once wealth is involved, uh, things can things can become tricky. And it's just a movie of like very visceral images uh, at one point, at some points too, uh, like there's one particular scene that I'm thinking uh, about involving a landmine. Yep. Uh, that will probably give me nightmares for years to come. So you know, Spike Lee is not really a director who I was particularly familiar with until about two years ago. But then I thought uh, Black Klansman was terrific. I watched Malcolm X for the first time last year, which is really one of the all-time great big screen biographies. Uh, and I think this year, you know, it just kind of... Uh, I, I, believe you watched, really seemed... I, I believe you watched one of my favorites, Do the Right Thing, for the first time, right? I remember seeing you log that. Uh, do the... No, I have not watched that yet. Oh, bro, you got a great one ahead of you then. Yes. That's, I, 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 it's like one of my five favorite movies of all time. So I'm going to be nope. very curious to hear how that one strikes you when you actually get around to it. I, I noticed some people logging it for the first time last year. So I, I, for some reason, I thought you might have. But you got a good one ahead of you. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Uh, so, yeah. Like at the end of the day, that is my number one pick. And I'm also very proud to say that uh, I just recently bought a limited edition poster uh, from uh, Spike Lee's uh, shop that he uh, put uh, his autograph on. So I'm pretty happy that I'm now the proud owner of that. Wow. Okay. I got to I gotta look into doing something like that. I, I just have like a little extra white space on the wall in my apartment. And at some point next year, I'm going to move to a two bedroom. And it's like I have some a couple paintings and I have like a, uh, you know, I have like, you know, other personal photos and stuff like that. But I feel like a movie, a good movie poster is the one thing I'm missing. So I feel like there probably are good, good opportunities for that within Spike Lee's uh, filmography. Uh, Fred, thank you for recapping your 2020 with us. And uh, I really enjoyed going through your top 10. We had some that are the same, some things I now I knew, now I need to go check out and some things I kind of feel bad about not having higher after hearing you talk about Sound of Metal and uh, Defy Bloods. So uh, who knows, maybe I'll be reevaluating my top 10 before I even like finished recording these podcasts. Uh, but uh, thanks again for joining us and I guess we'll see you next year. Indeed you will. And now we're joined by Josh Brown to talk about his top 10. Josh, I guess i'll start by saying before we jump into it i know that you've been pretty open and vocal in other parts of the internet where you share your opinions you don't think this is a good year in movies do you yeah i mean like let's let's be fair to 2020 right it it, it starts with an extreme disadvantage right where there's not that many movies coming out now that's not to say that there weren't any good movies that came out right but like you know, and I like here's the thing. Maybe I haven't seen as much as like a lot of you know, like film critics who maybe saw like fifty or six. Like I wasn't doing my average, which like every year I see around like seventy, eighty to ninety films a year, right? This year I'm at like thirty eight, right? Um, so you know, there's probably a lot of stuff that came on demand that, like, I didn't get a chance to seeing. Some of the movies th of this year that I didn't get a chance to see that people liked. Kajillionaire, um, I didn't see that. 
I didn't see um, She Dies Tomorrow. I didn't see Time or Collective, right? So to be fair, there's always going to be movies that I do miss out on. But I could also say, despite having not seen those movies, it was still a good year, right? I actually this, did. I actually like, did. I just counted now with what I haven't logged in on Letterboxd. I actually have seen 70 myself. I'm surprised I saw that many more than you. Yeah. Um, and... And again, like, so there might be things that I, uh, maybe I'm being a little bit too hard, but most years I might have like a couple, a lot of fours in my top tens. Um, maybe like the last movie, the 10th slot is just a 3.5, but it's mostly all 3.5s, two fours and one four and a half. Like there's not even anything that hit like a five, you know? Oh, wow. I mean, so, I, I think I, I was just talking about this with someone else who said something, I think, or it might have just been Daniel that said that like he normally had a lot more 4.5s. I only also had one five and he, I don't think Daniel had any fives. So I think, I, I think everyone's at about the same point where we got to cut the year some slack, but um, I think we all found a decent. I think I might have found more to like than you, but mm-hmm. you know, it, and it, I still it is like it some stuff. But like, yeah. you know, I know that like some of the stuff that might be in my top ten, they wouldn't necessarily if it had been a, a more uh, uh, normal year, they probably wouldn't have. They probably have been honorable mentions. Yeah. What's your What's your number ten of the year, Josh? So my ten, I kind of go back and forth. It's almost a tie. Can I say? Can I do a tie? Uh, I, I we got to we got to weight it a certain way. You know, we we did this very scientific system where the ten gets one point, the nine gets two points, the eight gets three yeah. points. So we can't give your we can't give your weight list weight more weight than someone else's. That'd be unfair. Okay, okay, okay. So like, so the five bloods sort of ekes out to number ten. Now, when I saw this movie, it was getting like like it was super hyped up. A lot of people wanted to do the contrarian take like oh it's better than the last spike lee movie black Klansman. and now i didn't believe it's sort of like when this movie was getting a lot of buzz it was also happening in conjunction with the black lives matter movement over the summer and so it was somewhat fortuitous for the film and and, and so like i sort of thought the movie was getting a little bit too much praise like i thought it was a little bit uneven like it's still a good movie like i would still take a slightly underwhelming spike lee movie over most movies right and that's where i'm at with this where like now after seeing the rest of the year and stuff it's still one of the better movies made this year and the stuff that it does do right it it, it has like really good highs like from everything from the opening montage to delroy lindo's performance which i think delroy was gave the performance of the year it's a shame that he's not nominated for best actor and i think this also was a nice final performance uh, uh one of uh chadwick Boatman's nice final performance and the type of character that he's playing in the film uh it, it it hits more resonance given the fact that you know in his film like his character is is dead and is much more of a presence and you know unfortunately that hey coincided with real life events but even so like spike lee he's always taking so many swings sometimes he misses and sometimes he hits it and a lot of the stuff he's doing here it's you know he's playing with genre he's he's doing his uh treasure sierra madre um also doing his vietnam war movie and his old man movie in which that was the thing i was really happy about that like 
you know, we're at a good place a little bit. You know, things are not improved in terms of like like black filmmakers getting a lot of opportunities. But I think it speaks to Spike Lee's career that he's afforded the old man movie that like, you know, some of, uh, you know, other powerful filmmakers like John Ford or Howard Hawks or Spielberg, Scorsese, like they get to do in the later period of their career. Yeah. And so, and I think it's a nice entry into that genre. So, oh yeah. And so I think The Five Bloods is a, is still a movie worth checking out. Yeah, normally I would just tell someone to stop talking as soon as they said one that we already talked about on the podcast before, but it seemed like your feelings had kind of changed a little bit since we did talk about it. And like mm-hmm. maybe you think you were a little hard on it at the time. And I, now I think you and Daniel almost talked me into being harder on it than I meant to be because it's not my top 10. It was Fred's number one. Uh, so, so when, I, when Fred was talking about how much he liked, it, I was like, what didn't I like about that? And you're right that like, you guys were right at the time. Like maybe some of the stuff was a, a little shaggy in the second half. Like, I don't think you really needed the thing with Clark Peters going back and finding the old woman and his, uh, child he never met, like could have probably yeah. done without that and a couple other things. But on the whole, I really only have positive feelings looking back on it. I also did have the thought where I went back recently and if you look at like the non inside man movies that Spike Lee has made, most of them don't make much money, if at all. Uh, so it's pretty cool that, like you said, he got to make this. And, uh, you know, even like obviously, like, you know, white filmmakers, white male filmmakers are given a lot more strikes to before they do something. But, like, you know, I, I don't know if there's that many white guys that could make as many mo- movies that don't make money and then still get to make one of this scope like Spike did. So I think that's progress in and of itself, also, you know. Um, yeah. uh, what's your number nine? Number nine is King of Staten Island. It, it marks, it, it's funny, it's, it's Judd Apatow, you know sticking to his formula it's a it's about a, a, a white male going through arrested development which is like you know not even just white males like even train wreck uh his movie um starring amy schubert they're all about like uh, these people like you know having to learn to grow up or whatever so he's trying that he's doing the same formula however in this movie he is um playing it with a different note right like this seems like a much more drama, like he's more comfortable having less laughs and being straight, like straight comedic and more, you know, a little bit more almost like, uh, like a dramedy, like, like an indie dramedy uh, where there are more darker elements willing to come out and it's a lot more shambly. So I thought that it's an interesting maturing of uh, Apatow and his uh, style. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily felt that compared to anything that came before it, but I just, I thought, I still thought it was very well done. It's basically like my number 12, which we already talked, I've almost seen twice as many movies as you. So I guess I basically have it in a comparatively strong position uh, for the year. And I, you know, I think I have a soft spot for Pete Davidson compared to like the general public and I generally like him. So maybe I was a little more predisposed to root for this one, but I, I thought he did really well and I thought it was. So I think this is also like what I do kind of like about this new phase of Apatow's career where basically now like, you know, he's sort of like telling other comic stories like up and coming, like, you know, I think Trainwreck was the start of this where he was like, all right, instead of like me writing the film by myself, I will sort of. Um, Amy Schumer he, straight up wrote that. He didn't even write that. Amy Schumer is yeah, the right, right. He he yeah. wrote he wrote this with Pete though. Yeah, like I'll be more beholden to like the subjects' uh, point of view than like you know my own. And 
what I and so I think like you know like you could see the Davidson influence on the film and it's a very interesting you know I think Davidson's an interesting leading man and and I think like the vibe of this film and it's one of those things like I wonder how the movie would have done had it gotten like its traditional summer release because Apatow you know I think we kind of take him for granted a lot uh, both as like for his eye for talent um, which has been well noted but also, A, I think unlike other comedy directors, like he is a straight up auteur, right? Like I think like he got a lot of flack for like uh, his films not being like visually dynamic as say like an Edgar Wright. I just think like their subject matters are completely different. So it was really warranted from Apatow. And I think also like his films are closer to being like a Cassavetes a movie with like jokes um than like some of his other comedic contemporaries so yeah and again like i like he is a strong commercial director like let's not forget that like you know he, he doesn't have like a franchise unless you count like knocked up and this is it uh, um this is 40 but like you know like he's making adult movies like movies for adults um, that don't have like superheroes or whatever and doing very well. Yeah. So, yeah. I also think we just take him for granted in that. Like, I don't think people realize he doesn't direct that much anymore. So it's, mm-hmm. I think, and I, I, again, I really like the King of Staten Island. And if he wants to just, you know, do his producing thing and direct every five years, that's his, that's his, that's his choice. But I, by the way, he does have a movie, um, lined up. Like oh, he's, good. In, he's shooting a movie right now that he's directing. You know what it's about? I saw this recently and I forgot though. Okay, and it has Maria Bakalova, um, uh, who's probably going to win an Oscar for Borat. And but it's a movie called The Bubble, and it's a it, it's sort of meta. Is it, like it's inspired by the making of the upcoming Jurassic World movie, where like because of COVID, they had to like you know all the cast had to be like you know hunkered down in like the same hotel or whatever under strict provisions and stuff like that and all the drama that ensued Mm. so he's doing a movie about like these actors shooting a movie during covid so i guess that's pretty exciting just as we talked about this seems like a a different type of story for him to tell so yeah all right so my number eight yeah never rarely sometimes always it's my number one oh wow okay 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 um i saw this this is like one of the first like vod movie this is a movie i saw like when i was like oh shit we're in a pandemic um i gotta buy these movies on vod now to see them and so i watched it it's a really good you know character study i like the 70 i like the 16 millimeter film photography and i and you know it's about this girl like trying to go from Pennsylvania to New York City to seek an abortion. And, and you know, it doesn't sound like the greatest hang, uh, admittedly, but it's done sensitively and honestly, and I think it's a good movie. I agree. And I just, uh, I was, you know, you called it a character study. I think it's like, I think it's an issue study, but like without like getting too preachy about the issues. And I think that's yeah. the most important thing about it is that like it, it just, it just tells, it just has its own story it wants to tell. And just the fact that like the story even has to, has to go where it goes because of where these characters are from says everything you need to say about the issue. And I think it's um, pretty ingenious in that regard. And these two younger actors, actresses were, I mean, very, very impressive. And it's a shame that like it didn't get a little more awards buzz. Some people thought it might have been a beneficiary of not as much stuff getting released. Maybe a small movie like that might get an award here or there. 
and it just didn't. But I mean, again, it's a very, very uh, moving movie, and I hope more people continue to find it. So, what's your number seven? Number seven, Boys State, a uh, documentary uh, about this thing. Like, you know, it's in every single state, but it's basically like a competition amongst like boys who get to go to the um, uh, state capital in Texas and Austin and basically um, form political parties and run their own government. Right. And they have this election um, for the roles. And this movie is a fun uh, movie about like civic engagement I actually ended up showing it to my AP Gov students and they liked it. But yeah, I, I thought it was like the documentary of the year, though I probably haven't seen that many docs and the Oscars thought otherwise. But I thought it, it it was a good, engaging movie. And also, I think in terms of movies that sort of captured the Trump era, um, this movie, you know, we're seeing it from the point of view of like kids and how like, you know, Ben Shapiro's name dropped and it's sort of like a, a reflection of how like our politics are trickling down to our, our, our kids and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, honestly probably the most uh, holy shit moment of the year for me in movies actually might have been when the when the one kid just is like, yeah, I actually am totally fine with abortion, but I'm just pretending to uh, have a problem with it so I can get elected and I was like, oh my god, like I, I was just like, it was it was like, it's like, a, it's not often you have a twist like that in a doc. You know, and I was just like, God, it's not only an incredible choice for a doc, but it basically shows what's like wrong with everything in politics now and why things might not get better. And uh, just like a incredible holy shit moment in like a movie that's like, like you said, all too real and kind of depressing that it just shows, you know, you, you get a great idea of what these kids are taking in and it's unfortunate they're just kind of running with it, you know. Mm hmm. Um, I should, I should also say it's my number, it's my number six. So, uh, we're pretty close on that one. What's your number six? So my number six, um, is a movie that should have gotten more love given, you know, this director and her standing in, and, and, you know, in, in, in movies, right? Like Nomadland. Uh, <laughs> I, made, I made a joke. I said Nomadland. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> um, no, um, but it's Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks. Mm. Um, I think probably the fact that it was on Apple TV probably like screwed it. But another example of like a director doing like a thing they've done before, like using the formula they've created, but like sort of maturing at the same time, you know, because this is a much more it's weird. I was going to say this is much more of a shaggy dog story than other Sofia Coppola movies. But like what like most of her movie like she made a whole movie about being stuck in a hotel that's kinda nice and just like chilling. Like I can't really say that like Sofia Coppola is the most plot driven director ever. This actually might be the film with the most plot of hers, where um it's about uh, Rashida Jones. She suspects her husband Damon Waynes um of having an affair. And like her, you know, her gigolo husband, her uh, father, Bill Murray, sort of goes along on an adventure with her to try to, you know, rekindle the relationship, but also see if their husband, her husband is cheating on her. And it, it again, it's just a small story, right? And, but like a lot of the, you know, it has like 
you know, like it's shot in beautiful 35 millimeter photog- film photography and just like that Sofia Coppola aesthetic and how she captures a city, and especially during COVID to see New York this way. And also like the relationship between Bill Murray and Rashida Jones, like they're such two very compelling actors and, and, and just, again, not much happens in terms of the plot. The plot's not dynamic. It's, it's kind of a sitcom plot. But you know what this reminds me of, actually, now that I say it? And I don't know how you feel about this movie, but um, The Intern. It's kind of like The Intern, where it's like, like you know, in other hands, this is very sitcom right? But at the same time, it's like the director's death touch it, it is like making it almost like a deconstruction of like the genre it is. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I like the intern though. I think I, li- I like so many other Sofia Coppola movies more, so it's hard for me to like compare the two because I just came into this one with such higher expectations than I did with the intern. And I did like On the Rocks. It's just I love almost every other one of her movies. So, and, and I'm very hit and miss with Sofia Coppola, right? So I love, uh, and this might be like, so me with Sofia Coppola, it's like every other film clicks and every other one doesn't. So, I love uh, Marie Antoinette. I, I really like um, a Lost in Translation, but like I think her best movie is The Bling Ring, right? And I was completely let down by her last one, The Beguiled. How, how, easy, easy. We're, this is a pro-Beguiled podcast. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm very ant because I'm a huge fan of the Clint Eastwood version, and I thought there was a lot of opportunity there, um, like taking that source material and turn it and seeing it from a feminine lens, but God, man, she fucked that one up. Mm-hmm. And then Agree to somewhere, disagree. somewhere I, I, I hate, somewhere is bad. And I'm not a fan of the Virgin Suicide, even though like it has one of my favorite movie moments in terms of music. So again, and I like the aesthetic of Sofia Coppola. But, you know, sometimes she clicks for me, sometimes she doesn't. This one does, and I guess I kind of like the more offbeat um, Sofia Coppola movies and I, I, I thought this balanced her like tendencies very well. I won't add too much because I already talked about it with Fred. It was number nine on his list, so who knows? Maybe it'll end up cracking this top ten if one more person has it up there. Uh, what's your number five? Five is a movie we talked about earlier today. Um, it's a movie that I'm shocked that, like, given how well received it was, it came out right before COVID, so it was a hit in theaters, uh, well liked, and deals with um, a social issue that another film nominated for Best Picture does, but in a much more allegorical way, in a less polarizing way, but it's uh, The Invisible Man, all right? I got to support my man, Jason Blum, uh, Lee Wannell. He did a good job of Upgrade, so I was hyped to see this movie. And and again, it's an age-old story. It's not too dissimilar. You know, this movie is clearly like a horror film, like in the Me Too era, but like, you know, Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man takes like a similar approach, and that was like 20 years earlier. So, you know, not necessarily doing anything that hasn't been done with this material, but doing it, but it's a fun genre exercise. Very well made. Kind of crazy Elizabeth Moss is not in the best actress conversation right now, but... Yeah, I, did, uh, I just watched Shirley with her this morning, and she's also great in that. And she was great in Her Smell the year before. So what is she, I don't know what she has to do to get a nomination. But that the knife moment – oh, actually, I, I, is this yeah, a, is, yeah, the knife moment, one of the top moments in movies this year. Yeah, I, I guess I already talked about that with Daniel. It was his number four. Uh, but, like, I mean, 
I had a lot of nitpicks with like the legal aspects of it at the end, which I mean, again, that's probably only going to bother a lawyer, but like just, (laughs) just the way it resolved itself. And like the, you know, there would have been surveillance camera in that restaurant. You probably, and also there would have been a shit ton of witnesses. right, Right now, this is like sort of like by, I think by the, by the end of pandemic, not to say there hasn't been anxiety over big tech, but I feel like there's a real animus that's like now like bipartisan against like big tech and i feel like this movie you know like i think at the time when it came out we were harping on like the me too elements but now i think also you can read it as also like the evils of big tech as well i I, yeah i honestly i don't even think i made that connection at the time but uh and yeah there's this other movie that just came out on hbo or show that just came out on hbo max made for love that i feel like is going to tread a lot of the same ground but i've heard it's good or or my friend kate recommended it when she came on to talk about promising woman the other day so who knows that might actually hit a lot of similar themes from what i understand that movie's about but uh yeah and i was telling you earlier that i was surprised that I joke that like promising young woman feels like the and I like promising young women, right? I, I like it. But I was joking and saying that like it kind of feels like the Blumhouse version of an Oscar movie where you take this like social issue drama and make it in a very like commercial. Like I think it has like a Blumhouse budget. I think like it's kind of style's not too different from like Happy Death Day or something in that ilk. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it because like I would have. You know, between the two, because, like, I think uh, Promising Young Woman is a very, very polarizing film. Now, that might be because it's taking its issue and doing it in a more explicit manner. But, um, you know, Invisible Man, like, more people liked it, dealing with the same issue. You, like, between the two, it's kind of wild that, like, Promising Young Woman, a movie I do like, is getting the awards buzz when invisible man was like one of the last hits in theaters before the pandemic. Yeah. And I'm looking back at my review of it now. And I was like, my, my big thing was like, I guess if they, it, it, they don't make it clear how she gets off for the murder in the restaurant. It was my, was my thing at the time. It's like, they don't say if they had a surveillance video there or if they like looked at the video when that whole, all that stuff goes south in the psych ward and realize she was telling the truth. It was just like such a big pothole for me. And I just like let it get to me, but I really did like <laughs> the invisible man too. What is your number four? Number four, I know this is a disagreement, but all I can say about this movie is vibes. Oh, Tenet. God. Oh, God. I can't believe it. At least you didn't put it one. Then it'd be in danger of crashing the composite top ten. What What did you like about this movie that I still could not tell you what it was about five minutes after I saw it? So I definitely can't tell you what it's about six I, I months after I will say this. Like, so, like, the plot doesn't make – like, here's the thing about Christopher Nolan. Could, right? you, could, you explain, find- any, could you explain anything that happened in the last 20 minutes with that backwards-moving action set piece? Probably not, no. But, like, (laughs) let me explain this. Let me explain this, right? So what I kind of find funny about Christopher Nolan is that, you know, he's held up as, like, this cerebral populist auteur, right? Like, he makes cerebral blockbusters, right? And I think in the last past couple of movies from uh, Dark Knight Rises uh, to Interstellar and now to Tenet, like, I feel like his blockbusters are getting dumber and dumber by the (laughs) minute. <laughs> like and sillier, and so like like literally this movie. How how much can you really take it seriously when the main character, his name is protagonist? All right, <laughs> like come on, like he just thought like the timer, like things going backwards looks cool, right? I think if you are bothered 
by like the plot and trying to make sense of it, I think, you know, you're watching it wrong, right? Like even in the movie, they tell you just like, go with it. Don't try to understand it, right? That's what Pattinson says, right? And so when you accept it just on surface level, it is vibes. It is like that Ludwig Borison score and then ending with the Travis Scott thing. And, and like, you know, like John David Washington and Pattinson look good in suits. Like, and, and sometimes the, like the opening, uh, um, sequence in the film is so well staged. Like, yeah, it's like, I wish I saw it in the theater. I, I regret that. My, 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 um, I saw it at drive-in. So, and I think people that saw it in home theaters might not have had as much trouble with the sound mixing as I think a lot of people did. And so maybe yeah, it wasn't no, a thing for you. Yeah, I have like trouble with the sound so, mixing. So there was that, but I also like... My thing is like I don't mind necessarily in a nutshell or in a vacuum a movie that is hard to follow or that doesn't have a plot you can easily follow. But like I don't want you to spend the whole movie explaining it to me like I should be able to follow it if that's the case. And then if you're gonna do that, you definitely should make it so I can hear what the characters are saying. <laughs> so that but it's just vibes. He just yeah. he just want, like this is like his like James Bond audition thing. <laughs> and, Good vibes. And and and, it, and it's I mean also there's some things that Nolan is doing too that I think it's a little bit different for him. For instance, like the neon like lighting in certain sequences and stuff like that. Um and and it, it like again and also like um you know John David Washington is like a break from his traditional like for, uh, leading men. So there there's that even though Again, he gets protagonist is his character's name. So I thought it was just like a fun Christopher Nolan's like just saying, hey, I really like James Bond and Michael Mann and Miami Vice. Like, here you go. <laughs> um, and, and and it is fun. So um, fair enough. Uh, I guess and also, that... though, that Ludwig Gorison score, undeniable. And I like the Travis Scott song. All right, so we got we got one disagreement, I think, out of all your movies. I've liked everything else you've mentioned. What's your number three? Number three, most fun I had in the theaters. Bad Boys for Life. Ah, I, I very much enjoyed that too. For the first half, it might have been one of my top five for the first half of the year. One of, and I guess one of the ones I did see in theaters also. You know, I you know I was I think I think this actually made Daniel's top ten too. And like my thing was like. It's. I was surprised. I actually liked it better than I liked the first two. Some people like swear oh, by the yeah. second. Some people swear by the second, which I really didn't like. And I actually revisited recent, more recently. Uh, I yeah. can't speak to the first as much, but like Bad Boys for Life is just a lot of fun, man. Yeah. The crazy thing about this movie is like, you know, I don't have like I don't dislike the Bad Boys movies because you know there's some good action sequences and stuff, but like they're not great. Like it's not a franchise I care about at all. Right. And so Bad Boys for Life did like the impossible. Like suddenly, wait, I actually care about these characters now. <laughs> and then also like the, the other movies, while like this movie, like and here's the thing. I think the action sequences in these in the in, in this movie, there are some good action sequences, right? Now, like are they as like as like aesthetically as stylish as say Mike Michael Bay's? No, they're not as over the top as Michael. There's not as over the top as Michael Bay's though, and I think I appreciated that. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like this movie, also the other thing is like Michael Bay isn't isn't great with humor, right? This movie's actually like funny, and also the movie get cares about the character dynamics way more than Bay did. You know what I mean? So like the movie really does benefit from Bay being away. 
uh, from it. Like, this movie has genuine heart. Again, like, they're just trying to do... Like, this is very much Will Smith not having a hit in a while, reviving, like, a franchise that people like, but also looking at the current blockbuster trends and saying, why don't we do Fast and Furious, you know? let's And, and actually taking the, like, family thing seriously. But this is a really... Like, Martin Lawrence... Like, that scene on the airplane, that should be, like, in the Oscar, like, contention reel right now. Like, his scene on the airplane about, like, trying to to talk him out, Will Smith, out of, like, going to Mexico to, like, uh, find the woman who is his, like, baby mama or whatever. And there's, like, voodoo involved. It's great. It's a fun movie. Joe Pantaleone, Joey Pants, let's just call him that. Yes. Um from the matrix he's very good in the movie yeah it did the impossible third entry in it finally made me care about this franchise and these characters very well said what's your number two another round okay we we, we can move to your number one then because we just talked a lot about that and i don't think your thoughts have changed that much since the, the podcast would have been posted on that like a week or two before people heard this so what is your number one movie of 2020 this movie was ignored all right. This movie was ignored. One of the last movies I saw in theaters. Um, this performance in this movie, one of the best of the year. I think when people finally catch up to this movie, it will become a classic on like TNT, real dad movie, sports movie. I'm talking about the best movie of the year, The Way Back. Wow. I, I I knew it was coming, but I didn't know it was going to get that quite of uh, intro from you. So, uh, you're and you're also notably not really a sports guy typically. So, what really resonated with about this movie with you? So this was this was another movie that like there's a teacher like you know he's not a teacher in the movie, but he is like a high school basketball coach, right? And like also it was coming like like you know um, I'm not like far removed from like have being at my lowest point or whatever and and then like trying to like have like a comeback or redeem myself or whatever and now like but what what i didn't before when i saw this movie i wasn't a coach now i'm a debate coach or whatever so like I, i i like so i have that little teacher dynamic going in and again but you know and i like sports movies let me be clear i'm not a sports guy but i like sports movies and this movie is actually one of the best like basketball movies I've ever seen. The way it shoots this is made by Gavin O'Connor, who's like sort of our current sports movie auteur. He made Miracle, he made Warrior, right? Those movies are well loved by people. Warrior's right very now. good. I watched that during the pandemic for the first time. You know, honestly, I've never actually seen Warrior. I know it's well liked. I, I, I missed it in twenty eleven. I've heard good things. And, and and based off the way back, like he knows the genre really well. Like I've seen Miracle, um, he knows the genre really well. And like the basketball sequences of this film are really well edited, really well done, and, and really well staged. But also, I think it's Affleck's performance. Man, he is giving it his all. This is like his most naked performance because, like the character, you know, Affleck is on his third or fourth comeback and. He has had his public um, battle with alcoholism and his divorce. And in this movie, he's fat, you know, it's fat Affleck, you know, no shame in that, you know, you know, like after you've been through a divorce, you could be drinking a lot of Dunkin' Donuts as well. But um, 
but yeah, it, he's in that mode, and it's it's a really good like he should be in our acting conversation. But this is a sports movie that has a formula that you know about or whatever. Um, well, I'll, I'll, that's that's where I'll jump in, and I I kind of I think I might have already it was in Fred's top ten also, and I might have already said this, but I like that it wasn't super super formulaic, and that you know it doesn't end in the team winning the big game necessarily. Yes. It has a very seventies ending, right? Where like the like it, it, like the, the character is not exactly in the best place, right? It has a hopeful ending, but it is not like a like um, super sad. Like it's a satisfying movie in terms of like, all right, they went there. That's a realist. That's a good middle ground that they found. Um, but yeah, this movie. It hits all the right notes. It plays a lot of similar notes with sports movies, but it hits it in a way that is a little bit more subtler. You know, it, it's a yeah, I, it, it, I, it I, works. There's a moment where like the, he has to, he lets a kid back on the team, and I was I, I like that it wasn't have, it didn't have to be some dramatic moment when it happened. The kid just kind of like yeah. became sincere, or like another star player he has to get through to. It's not really about anything other than him telling that guy to be more assertive and. Mm-hmm that's just not exactly a type of player we see often featured in movies and that be the one guy the coach has to connect with. It's like, you know, you just need to like, you know, not pass as much, which is, I think is like a, I, I just thought it was different in some subtle ways from other sports movies, even if, yeah, it does have some beats that it was smart and how it was different from your traditional team sports movie. I honestly don't even think I had big thoughts on how the scenes were shot actually, even though I'm more of a sports guy than you. And I, I just thought like it made a lot of other smart things that, just didn't follow every single beat you might typically see in a sports movie. And I agree on the Affleck performance, you know, uh, who knows it was originally going to be, I think a fall 2019 movie. I don't know if it would have been an awards player, if it really got pushed as one or not, though it would not have been undeserving if it had. So. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's a really good performance. Really good. Don't you agree with me? Like this would be like when people find this movie, right. I think people missed it a because it's just like an adult drama, but, but um, it's it's theatrical run got did get cut short because of COVID. Yeah, yeah, I think, but like it, like I remember, like its opening weekend numbers were bad, irregardless of COVID, you know. And but like, do you think this is a movie that people will like discover and like love? Because I think this will be like one of those movies where like kind of like Warrior and Miracles, similarly, where like they have like a devoted like cult. I don't know if it's the kind of thing that gets a cult following, but I do think it, there's probably a timeless element to it. It doesn't rely a whole lot on any kind of real modern uh, things. There's not a lot of contemporary references in it necessarily, and I could see it aging pretty well. And kind of like you said, uh, some share some DNA with certain kinds of 70s movies, and a lot of those movies, I would say, maybe hold up well. And I think despite the fact that like our technology has changed so much since then, and I don't think there's very much technology in this movie, so I think it could easily uh, hold up pretty well. But like, like in terms of like those like sad buying tnt i'm gonna watch a sports oh, movie dude, like i think Hoosier. i think i think it played very well on cable it's not like yeah. I, I might, I that's what remember. i mean like, yeah, like yeah. in another world this is a cable classic i i'd agree on that for sure i think yeah and i don't think i don't it might be rated r it might be pg-13 if it is rated r there's nothing too there's not i don't recall there being a that much language that would be distracting to edit it on yeah. for, for purposes of cable so i definitely it's the kind of thing i could see people just discovering in that manner for sure 100 percent um, was it on your top 10 my guy no, it wasn't my top ten, but it was in my top twenty. It was in my top twenty. Why you disappoint me like that, Josh? Well, I, why you see a gem in front of you? How can you, how can you treat it like that? Who knows? It might. It maybe it's some recency bias stuff. It's hard to say when you see. Like I, I'm seeing some of the stuff that like 
Actually, I don't know if I saw anything that cracked. I don't know if any of the stuff in my top 10 I saw for the first time. In, actually, no, Promising Young Woman and Judas and the Black Messiah, I did see for the first time in this calendar year. Oh, but, then, by the way, by the way, that's another thing I, I should have said at the top, all right? So Minari and Judas and the Black, this is the one year where, like, you know, traditionally I go by the Oscar eligibility rules, right? That's what makes my top 10, right? Um, so sometimes there's a movie that, like, is el- eligible for Oscars, right? But it doesn't get like a wide release until like January or February, right before the ceremony. But I will still count it um, for the previous calendar year, right? Mm. This year is such a mess because of COVID, right? That I just said, screw it. Like all the 2020 movies that like I, I there was a possibility that I could have saw it at some point that will be count for 2020. And the movies that like like Minari and The Father and Promising Young Woman were, um, and maybe Promising Young Woman is like actually twenty twenty, but but like Minari and Judas Black Messiah and like like those movies, they would probably be on my top ten for twenty twenty, but I'm just tabling them for my twenty twenty one. Well, well, you're just throwing our our, our composite list uh, way out of whack, and as opposed to doing what I did, which is just like Portrait of the Lady on Fire would have been in my top three last year, but I saw it too late, and I didn't put it on this one, and it would have been like my number one or number two if I just put it here. I just kind of said like, sorry, you don't get to go on either list because your producers are really stupid with their release strategy. So um, yeah, yeah, I've done that before. I've done that like yeah, like to for me, Portrait of the Lady on Fire. That's a 2019 movie. Like that, like I saw in 2020. But, but, you know I, what I, but mean? I didn't, I don't think I saw it till it was like too late to like actually put it on like yeah. my list. I was already recording same, my same, podcast. Same, same. So yeah, whatever. But I, I, I appreciate you, uh, uh, at least putting a lot of thought into how you went about doing it. Everyone's going to have their own way of coming about on their list, but it looks like you might've hurt a couple of those movies chances of making the rewinds composite top 10, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. Which, uh, which one did I help though? Which one did I help? I mean, look, there's a good, ch- I mean, f- I mean, if one other person ends up having the way back on there, it, c- it can make it, you know, I'm just, cause I don't have it, but Fred did. And if one other person does, we're only halfway through these things or not even halfway through these things. So, uh, we'll see. Josh, thanks for joining us so often in 2020, and we will hopefully uh, see you in 2021, and it'll be even in stronger movie year. Hell yeah. I have a good feeling about that. And now we're joined by Pixar slash Disney slash animation correspondent Joe Morgan. Joe, I'm glad to have you here. I think it's interesting to talk to you about this because, uh, as usual, I always invite you to talk about live-action movies. We sometimes get to a varying amount of them. Talked about a lot of animated movies with you last year. Uh, some like Scoob, which were like was literally like in my bottom three movies of the year, and uh, others that were like kind of varying degrees somewhere within there. Though I'm not sure if any of them cracked your top ten. And we only talked about one live-action movie, News of the World. Not sure if that's going to show up on your list or not. But the fact is, like. I'm pretty sure like most of the movies that are going to be on your list are things we haven't talked about, and I just don't exactly know where you are on a lot of things. So I guess I'll start by asking you, like, how do you feel about the movies in 2020 compared to the prior years? Because I'm asking everyone this question, but like, I feel like uh, your answer is going to maybe maybe be more surprising to me than most because uh, I really only talked about a certain kind of subset of movies with you for the most part. Yeah, you know, there weren't a lot of movies I loved this year. Like, it sort of felt very top-heavy. Like, as I was coming to this list, like, I kind of knew what my top three or four were. And then the rest of the six were just sort of me figuring out the varying degrees of which I liked things. And, like, you know, I don't know that, that I don't know if that's necessarily a comment on the content or maybe it's just being at home all year and not getting the theater experience or 
getting inundated with so much content that maybe just things didn't resonate in the same way they might have if things were a bit more normal outside. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Like I, you know, that's actually, I mean, it's it's interesting you mentioned that point. That's one thing I've I've already recorded a few of these and I don't know if I've actually specifically drilled down on that with a lot of people. Not upset that I haven't necessarily because then who knows, maybe every one of these would be like an hour long and I don't have that kind of time on my hands, but (laughs) I'm, I, 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 I hadn't really thought of that. Like, because this is a trend. Like, you're not the first person to say this. A lot of people are just, like, a little down on this year comparatively. And I'm wondering, like, you know, what's to say that movie that you just thought was okay? If you'd actually gotten the full theater experience, like, how many of those would just be, like, that much better? And I say that as someone who tries to do a good job of, like, being conscious about, like, not second screening. And I'm sure you do a conscious job of trying not to do that, too, when you're watching stuff. Sometimes it just just happens when you're doing it at home, and it's a lot easier not to do it in the movies. And do you think that, like, with... um do you think that matters more with a blockbuster versus like just a regular drama or something like that? Is that anything you've given more thought to as you put together this list? Yeah, I certainly think, yeah, a blockbuster is definitely going to do better in the theater. Cause just, you know, I mean, for example, like I sit down to watch Zack Snyder's justice league, which wow. Uh, questionable decision. Uh, <laughs> no judgment. People have actually been surprisingly positive. It's just, I have not carved out that time for myself. Yeah, I, I've watched like I've been watching it by chapters because he's divided his movie into chapters. Ah. I'm treating it like TV, but um, you know it definitely loses a bit when like Superman punches somebody and you don't get the full theater reverberation of it. Whereas you know I watch something like Promising Young Woman at home and like that is a bit more effective because it's sort of you can sort of see something like that being on TV. You know, yeah, I definitely think it's more effective with blockbusters to be in the theater. Well, it is I, I know you're fully vaccinated now and you made your return to the theater. I, uh, I, I, I guess I got a little careless and not, not, I wouldn't say careless. I made my return to the theater before I got my first vaccine. I'm partially vaccinated now, but like I was able to like, you know, check the AMC app and just like, be like, all right, if there's like one other person in this theater, I think I'll be okay. So mm-hmm. I, I, I did that for Judas and the Black Messiah, which I really could have just watched on HBO Max. So I, though there was like, uh, there was like a, a, a funny moment, you know, some of these, it's like, I think the theater would help even if like you weren't in a crowd, but sometimes I think they need the crowd too on on yeah. top of, on, on top of a theater. And I, and I feel like that matters almost, I think a crowd might matter more for like something like a promising young woman or like a, a get out, just to see reactions to specific, Oh shit moments. Whereas like I, I did see, I, I was just thinking of get out. Like, I mean, I don't know if you saw get out in theaters back in the day, but like the, the moment in get out with the, when the, when the TSA cars pulls up to the end and you get to hear like the reaction of the theater or something like that. Uh, but with or with promising young woman, I mean, there's a couple moments like that. But like God's, but when I saw Judas and the Black Messiah, there was like two other people in the whole theater, and I think someone like started like I think someone started clapping. I mean, this is very dark, and I have very conflicted feelings about this. But at the end of Judas and the Black Messiah, when it said that uh, Bill O'Neill killed himself when the night that documentary aired, like oh, someone sta- someone started clapping. So there, it was yeah. a very a snitches get stitches kind yeah. of moment, and I did not know how to feel about that. But I like it made me very curious. It's like. What would that have been like if there's a full theater in there, if that's just what like two people are doing? It's just me yeah. and those two people. And I was like, uh, ooh, that, that is interesting, and I wonder what a full th- packed crowd would have been like. Whereas with like Godzilla versus Kong, I mean, like, I saw that the other day, and there was this moment where it's like, I'm glad I just got to have this like being very loud and big in my face. And yeah, maybe there would have been a few like more, oh, shit, if like yeah. at, at like the moment where like I don't know Kong's like ripping open some skulls or something like that, but like I didn't necessarily need that from the crowd. But it is interesting to think about how these different things can affect your overall viewing experience. So oh 
Yeah, hundred percent. Like my first movie back was Godzilla versus Kong and IMAX, and uh, it was definitely weird to be back in that situation where there's other people reacting to things and everything's so big, you know. Yeah, and, we're still getting yeah. we're still we're still getting used to having other people around us and yeah. how to how to act around them, you know. Right. Uh, without any further ado, Joe, we'll, we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll maybe you'll talk yourself into thinking this is a better movie year once you kind of go through your favorites again. But uh, what is your tenth favorite movie of 2020? Yeah, so number 10 was definitely a game of musical chairs, and I landed on Disney Pixar's Soul as my 10th best movie of the year. Interesting. Yeah. I had a lot of issues with this movie. I'm not a huge fan of the Tina Fey performance. Uh, I thought her inhabiting Joe Gardner's body was a very problematic story element. But I will say, I do think the highs of this movie are very high. I think of like the way Pixar rendered New York. I think of the barbershop scene. I think of how much I laughed at the Jerry's in the great before, if you will. And um, you know what? Like maybe I'm being a little bit of a Pixar apologist too. Maybe that broke the tie with the five or six other movies I had jockeying <laughs> for this spot. But um, And I'm the animation guy too, so um, that probably was working in its favor. But um, yeah, you know, one thing too is um, I have gotten to listen to the score a little bit more with um, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross. The likely, the, the likely Oscar-winning score. I think that's the heavy favorite. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really just fantastic work there. So, um, yeah, I landed on Soul for number 10. I'm not going to add much because people can go back and listen to our podcast on it, but I was getting, I was curious to hear what you thought nonetheless because I know you were somewhat conflicted about that at first, but I can see how certain parts could certainly grow on you. What's your number nine? Uh, number nine, I have another round. Ah, so I just... I mean, I just talked about that one with Josh Brown the other night. That's interesting mm-hmm. that, that that cracked your top 10 also. Yeah, you know, it was... Um, it's funny, like we spent this last year plus at home and I think a lot of people had to sort of uh, evaluate their relationship with alcohol in a way, especially with, you know, the election happening, uh, the Atlanta Braves went on a deep playoff run, that sort of deal for me personally. So it was very, I thought it was a very interesting conversation that maybe was trying to have with like, what are the varied benefits and pitfalls of drinking beyond just you know your standard like dui or whatever else um and also just sort of a weirdly charming movie uh like uh well i kind of yeah uh yeah i don't know the mads mickelson performance is great and uh i don't know seeing him in sort of a suburban setting when he's sort of played creepier characters in the past was an interesting change of pace for him yeah you know i don't know i really dug it and well it's funny it's funny you mentioned about reevaluating it's funny you mentioned reevaluating your uh, relationship with alcohol in light of different events last year. The election is the most drunk I've ever gotten on a weeknight. I think, like since I since I became a member of the workforce, I should say, not since, uh, yeah. not ever. I mean, <laughs> I was on a college campus for seven years, but like, I mean, like I was just super nervous, and I just kept drinking, and I because I didn't, I didn't know, I, I couldn't even look at Twitter without getting anxious. Like every tweet I saw from someone made me upset, and like I'm not yeah. someone that actually like drinks on a regular basis. I'm having a drink right now. I had a very long day at work and a bunch of home appliance issues right before Joe and I started <laughs> recording. And I was not going to be a pleasant person to be around if I like did not have a drink before I talked to Joe. It, it is funny watching that movie and just like wondering, like you know, sometimes you think you can just like enjoy it to a certain amount, but you never, you never really know until you, uh, you, you never really know how something's going to affect you until you really get in it. And that was an interesting story about some guys that like saw an interesting way to maybe change their life, but didn't see all the consequences that could come with it. Right. Exactly. And uh, yeah. So unexpected, but great. Congratulations to the director, uh, Thomas Vinterberg, on getting the Oscar nomination. Yeah, he, he crashed the party there. What's your number yeah. eight? 
Uh, number eight, I have Palm Springs. Ah, that's a that's a, that's a that's a popular one so far. It was my number three. Yeah, I really thought this was a uh, hilarious movie. I love Andy Samberg uh, from Brooklyn Nine Nine and all the various other things he's done. Uh, pop star, never stop, never stopping. I just got to shout that movie out again because it's an all timer. But no, I thought this was like a clever way to do the Groundhog Day thing again. Like we've seen movies in recent years like try to, you know, do their own spin on Groundhog Day, and this one. By far was my favorite one, where you kind of just happen upon, you fall into the loop, and you find someone else in the loop already. And I thought it was really inventive and fun and kind of wacky. And also, like, I sort of spent a lot of the movie being like, what the hell would I actually do if I got caught in one of these things? And I look at what Kristen Bellotti's character went through to actually learn. Like, I would be screwed. I, I can't I can't do that. You know, I can't learn about theoretical physics or quantum physics or see i can't even call it the right thing. i i i i don't do science yeah either no yeah i mean we're not really scientists <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the journalism writing background so uh. yeah i mean if, if i was smart enough to do that i definitely would not have if i was smart enough to do that i definitely would not have gone to law school it's funny you mentioned the the the, the being probably your favorite version of the groundhog day thing uh, i did the podcast on this last summer with hannah and I think a point I made, if I recall, in that podcast is that, like, I actually like almost every version of this. I don't really know, like, a, a bad version of it, but this probably is the highest rated I've had one. Like, I, I obviously really like Groundhog Day. I've never, I wasn't really doing the podcast or making top 10 lists at that point, and uh, I probably have seen only 20 movies from that year or so. I really liked Edge of Tomorrow. I oh, yeah. really like Before I Fall, which is like a YA twist on this from high school uh, starring Zoe Deutsch. Uh, about in two thousand, I think it was a two thousand seventeen movie, and I really like the Happy Death Day movies. And I don't know if like those are ones, and I don't know if you've seen either of those. Uh, but they're it's just like Blumhouse's uh, spin on this on a college campus. But like they're both really good. It's like I like all of them. I just like I, I got I feel like I got more out of Palm Springs with the just the, the charming performances and the filmmaking and the I mean just maybe I mean it's it's easily the highest I have a comedy of the year. Um, so mm-hmm. I mean it's just just very 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 fun awesome movie that i'm glad got made and uh yeah i don't i don't have a lot to add because it's already popped up twice i don't want to say too much because i'm i'm talking about it multiple times but i'm glad you have it up there too uh what is your number seven uh number seven i have on the rocks from apple tv oh wow this is yeah this is probably going to crack the top 10 you're the third person to mention it what did you like about on the rocks uh you know i just think rashida jones is a treasure and like She's a fantastic comedy straight man, like right up there with Jason Bateman, I think. And like, there's just something about her and Bill Murray together that just works wonderfully. And it's like this, like quirky, cute little like caper, you know, story of them. And I don't know, it just is, you know, it felt like a hangout movie and like maybe like some of the non heist elements of Ocean's Eleven, like are embedded in my brain to the point where I'm just like, you know, like I like these like funny, like entertaining people, like hanging out with each other. And, um, you know, it's just also very therapeutic too. you know, just coming to senses with who your parents were and who your father is and things like that and seeing it reflected in your own life, you know, especially cause like, you know, we're recording this in April and like my wife, Carolyn and I have a baby due in June. So like sort of, you know, not that my, you got, you, you got a really good you got a really good example of this movie of what not to do as a dad yeah how, exactly. how, how not to re, how, how not to how, how to not yes. the, the ways in which you should not be a presence in your child's life by not being a presence the way and by that i mean be a presence in your child's yeah. life <laughs> of course i would love that little car that bill murray and 
Rashida take on the uh, on the first heist. Yeah, I, I would like to have enough money to be able to like even afford having a car in New York City, let alone a car like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, it was it was a great movie. Like I I haven't seen a ton of Sofia Coppola movies, but um, you know I thought this one was really great. Well, um, good time. Joe, I know, like, as someone that's about to be a father, who knows uh, what's going to happen to the amount of time you have dedicated to movie watching, but if you try and just, like, watch other old stuff over the next two months, I would like you to, like, inform me if you make watching any Sofia Coppola movies a priority during that time as you're okay. trying to enjoy your last days of freedom before, like, uh, you're going to be watching Puppy Dog Pals at home as opposed, in addition to at work <laughs> because I, yeah. I, I love Sofia Coppola. I just love her. I think she's a treasure in the same way you think Rashida Jones is a treasure. She is a national treasure and i love all of her movies probably more than on the rocks uh and i mean like i like on the rocks like there's she's like quentin tarantino to me and that like you know death proof and hatefully might be my least favorite quentin tarantino movies but they're still better than like 75 percent of everything else out there so i feel the same way about on the rocks it's just like i have very high expectations for her so i'm getting a kick out of the fact that it's popping up in everyone else's top 10 except for me when like most of her other movies for me are probably in the top 10 over those years like the beguiled was her last one before this and that was like in my top five of 2017 uh so it's just kind of funny but i i again i've already said it like i enjoyed this movie i just thought like some of the some of the stuff with the husband just like got a little too predictable for me but i i enjoyed like i I honestly think it's a it's a great bill murray performance there some people thought that one had a chance at one point to show up at the oscars and i would not been i would not have been upset about that uh what's your number six uh number six i have nomadland as my number 10 uh what 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 did you like about nomadland uh i like that nomadland just really like looks at forgotten people like you know i you know and i know that like in the media that's code for like white people a lot of the time and like that's not what i mean here it's just like it's just like a it's a layer of the country and life that like i personally have never had to experience and kind of got to pull the curtain back on because it's just sort of like what do you do like when you like just lose everything you know and i think there's just like we have like these flashpoints in our lives you know and like this one was directly stemming from like you know the 2008 financial crisis i think where it's just like these faults form and like we don't see them or discover them until years and years later. And we're probably dealing with something right like that right now with COVID. So just seeing like where these fault lines are and who may have fallen into those cracks. And obviously like Frances McDormand is fantastic and she does a very good job of disappearing into this movie. Like, you know, cause I, yeah, like this movie, I, I remember reading that this movie, um, had a lot of people who weren't actors, like a lot of people show up in this movie aren't actors. Yeah. They're actually people, they're actually part of the nomadic community. Some of them. Right. And just the way Francis McDormand's able just to kind of blend into those communities and not stick out. Like, you know, I don't want to drag any actor here. <laughs> By naming them, but, no, it, yeah. it's an interesting point. And I, I, it already came up on Fred's top 10 too, but I, I, one thing we didn't discuss on that was just that, you know, uh, well, I don't know if you ever saw Chloe Joe's, uh, and I think Fred or Fred or Josh might've told me it's actually Chloe Joe. So maybe I've been saying it wrong when I said Zhao. I feel like I've seen a bunch of other people say Zhao. Either way, her last movie, The Rider, uh, you know, mm-hmm. was... It, it, basically all non-professionals and so i was curious when i saw you're having a star the level of frantic francis mcdormand and then david shatharian after that like would it feel weird or like to when she's trying to just so ingrain you in this so embed become so embedded and ingrain the audience in this community and it it wasn't really distracting even if i could acknowledge like wow this is like a, a performance that a star is pulling off you know 
Mm-hmm. And like, you know, too, it's just like as someone who has uh, like most of my family's based in Georgia and I live in California right now and sort of seeing Francis go through that struggle with her own like housed family since she's a, you know, a nomad, like uh, just seeing like people like you think like, Oh, why wouldn't you be like right around family and stuff? And like, for me, obviously it's a career thing, but it's just like, you know, seeing the specificity of reason for why people hang on to certain places. And um, you know, I just, I don't know that resonated with me a bit. So. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a very, very, it's, it's, it's very, very well done and has like a ton of compassion and has a, I think a really strong message that without, without, like, I mean, it's, it says a lot about where the country is without like being overly political and not mm-hmm. that I'm opposed to movies having political messages, but it's a very impressive balancing act that she pulls off. What's your number five? Uh, number five, I have promising young woman. Ah, that's a, uh, that, that was my number four. So we're pretty, we're pretty, we're pretty close on that. It's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty intense movie. What really grabbed you about it? You know, I, I listened to your conversation with uh, Kate actually um, Kate Feldman on this very podcast uh, recently. Like I think it was just yesterday. Yeah. To, Joe, to Joe, Joe is Joe. Like Kate is also a friend of mine from college. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So that's all to say that like I think this movie was able to shine a light on like rape culture. Obviously, that's me stating the obvious, but also making like a fun, entertaining movie. And not it's that such. It's, it's it's so weird saying that sentence too. Yes. I know it, it feels so bizarre saying that, but it's true. Mm-hmm. It grabs people's attention, and then, like, you know, I mean, you guys touched on this, too, but it's just sort of, like, it highlights parts parts of rape culture where it's not, like, super intense slasher. It's just, like, you know, it's people you know and people who think they're decent people and, or some, you know, or, it, some, or someone doing nothing. Yeah. When, they, when you should speak up. Like, it's, it's a very, like, yeah. subtle distinction from just, like, the stereotypical uh, – events of that video that are so central to that movie but it touches on so much more than that you know mm, yeah and no i just really appreciated that and like there's a real specificity of voice to it too and i know you got like i keep referring back to the podcast go listen to the episode for some reason <laughs> um but uh i forgot the director's name it's emerald fennel em- emerald fennel thank you uh she seems just so intentional in everything she does in this movie like it just feels like nothing's by accident and it's really and like i know people not specifically about this but i know people tend to say that things feel too crafted and stuff i thought it was like just the right amount where it's like i know exactly what she's going for when she shows me these things and like it was just a really entertaining experience so yeah as i already again mentioned on the podcast with kate she and i've heard interviews where she talked about having a mood board and it does feel like everything is very 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 intentional but i mean when when the the final product is that polish and that powerful conveys that meaningful message but it's also that fun i mean you can't really blame it for feeling totally mapped out because she mapped it brilliantly uh Mm -hmm. what's your number four uh number four i have the wolf walkers Ah, so I, it's funny. I'm going to have to put this in the podcast after uh, Fred's because Fred had to put it there. I had not watched it yet, and then that made me go and watch it before I talked <laughs> to you because I was like, oh, okay, like that's a fairly highly regarded Oscar-nominated animated movie. If Fred liked it that much, there's a chance Joe does. I need to be informed. I have now seen Wolfwalkers, and I thought it was really, really good. Yeah, it's gorgeously animated in 2D, I must say, which is just so refreshing, but you know, that doesn't make the movie. It's just the art form. But, like, the it just really has, like, a good sense of adventure. Like, you know, I am, like, just a sucker for these, like, 
uh, child goes on adventure movies. Like that's just sort of my deal. So seeing, uh, seeing a story like that where there's like a magical element too. And then also like, you know, it, it's very much a, like, uh, a movie about understanding, you know, like, and, uh, I think we could use a bit more of that. And that's his, uh, yes, I will be vague there, but no, like, I just think it was a delightful watch and it should win best anime feature at the Oscars and it probably won't, but shout out to cartoon saloon, which is a great studio. And they that's, keep a, that's, that, that, that's a great name for a studio. I actually wasn't really aware of them as an entity before you told me that, but like, that's a, that's, I, I have nothing else to say other, about them other than that's a great name. But as far as Wolfwalkers, I hadn't written up my letterbox review. I hadn't fully analyzed my thoughts, but I just thought, you know, I can't help that I was comparing it to soul. It's probably not fair to soul or to Wolfwalkers because <laughs> they obviously are studios that, you know, have their own distinct way of doing things. But I was just, it's not just that they're both the, the, the two most probably well-known movies of the, the animated movies of the year and critically, critically acclaimed movies of the year. They both involve like, people like or be or just beings becoming uh disassociated from their own bodies and put into other forms so i mean the comparisons are inevitable but i just thought that wolf walkers is so impressive in that it, it just felt i don't know it just felt so confident and it gripped me and you know i think i'd seen it pop up i'd seen clips here and rankings and i'd seen other things and i mean the 2d animation like it works but like it was also a little off-putting when i feel like i'm more used to pixar world and I just see, and then I just like see little glimpses of it here and there. I'm like that movie looks weird, and that's not fair <laughs> of me. And I, I, and I, I'm glad I ultimately gave it a shot because I really, really liked it a lot. But I was just like, man, this looks kind of bizarre, and I don't really know if it's gonna really grab me like it should. And it was just like, it, it was so confident in the story it wanted to tell, and it just like, it just like stuck to it. And it was, a, it was a little bizarre at first to kind of figure out what's going on with the, like this, these people and this forest, and like how do they interact with this forest. And once I kind of just like got into that world, I was like, oh man, like I, I, I totally kind of get where everyone is coming from on this, and how these people feel about these creatures, and how how this how this how the wolf walkers work separately from the wolves, and it just it it had it wasn't it, the scope was not too broad, and it was. And it, it, but it, it knew exactly what it wanted to do within the scope of the story it wanted to tell and I just was totally there for it once I kind of gripped on everything and the animation was very effective when you got used to it so yeah it's a very it's it's a it's equal parts like an epic movie but it also feels like a small story you know and I think it just really balances that well yeah that's a good way to put and it and also like I'll, I want to say this too because I just want to give them credit because I feel like so many franchise movies and like not saying that this is a franchise movie but so many franchise movies designed especially for kids I feel like and I'm not going to specifically name check anything here but I feel like the mythology and the world building gets so complicated and then this one just did a great job of just simplifying the, the mythology like I think like one of the characters says like all right, when you're asleep, you're a wolf. And when you're awake, you're a person. And like, they mentioned, they like mentioned that like three separate times. And it's like, all right, that's it. And, uh, you know, so it's just, it's wonderfully crafted. Again, because I, I wish I had written it. Yeah, again, not, and I don't even say, I'm not even going to say I'm crapping on soul. Like we've already given it some love. If you put it in the top 10, but I mean, and I know you like the Jerry's and the great before, but the great before it just, it, it, it took a it took a lot of time to kind of establish what it was doing, and I yeah. mean the, the it had a it, it felt like it kind of had a lot of rules though it became, it became kind of clear what was going on with the souls and 
dropping into the other beings and stuff like that. But I was just like, it felt like a lot of effort. And like you said, they're just like, yep, when they go to sleep, you become this. And I was like, okay, I got it. Now, now let's get to the actual meat of the story. And I really respected how quickly it got in and that got into what it wanted to do in that regard. And I was able to just like really enjoy the adventure a lot. Uh, what is your number three? Uh, number three, I have Judas and the Black Messiah. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, so that's my yeah. number six. Uh-huh. This was not a good viewing experience. This <laughs> this movie, it filled me with just like with a lot of anguish. You know, like it's just, it's painful. And I am so glad it exists though, because I feel like this year too, because like I want to shout out like One Night in Miami too. I feel like in school, you, especially like, the way I went to school, like I went to a small Catholic school in the South that was mostly white people. And you kind of get these blurbs about who the Black Panthers were and who Malcolm X was. And they're either labeled as like violent or extremist or like they're given like two lines in the chapter, whereas Martin Luther King gets like an entire section, which, you know, all respect to Martin Luther King. He deserves that much. But and, he, know, and, just, and, and, and even his uh, even his get down gets a little watered down too these days. Yeah. For sure. Um, and just to sort of have my eyes opened, you know, to a lot of this stuff, or like rather, you know, I mean, I've read about this stuff obviously before, but like to see it dramatized, I guess, was just a really uh, gutting experience. So, yeah, I just, it's just the word I keep coming back to is English, but I just think it's wonderfully casted. I think it might be the best acting movie of the year. Like Daniel Kaluuya is just amazing. I think he should win everything for his portrayal of Fred Hampton. He's probably going like, to win, yes. Yeah, and then, like, shout out Jesse Plemons, who can pull off, like, really intimidating and creepy while also being, like, sort of sympathetic in a strange way because that character is, like, not a good guy. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, I just... Uh, yeah, I think it's funny. You kind of went to the same place I did when I did the podcast on it and that, like... I, I didn't go to a small Catholic school, but I did grow up in a town that was 99% white that was mm-hmm. in the southeast, and I, I mean, I don't even think I, I could not have told you what a Black Panther was when I graduated high school. And mm. in the 12 years since I graduated high school, I knew more about the Black Panthers than I did then. But I don't think I knew a lot about their political platform. That was my big point when I did the podcast. Like I knew that I knew they stood for the uh, for the liberation of black people and they weren't the radical terrorists that, you know, some bad faith uh, people might try and make them out to be. But I didn't understand that, like some of the things they stood for were basically things that have become, I don't want to say mainstream now, but our political positions growing in popularity, uh, yeah. wh- whether it be universal healthcare, like food for everyone, like pretty big for pretty stuff that, I mean, like seems common sense to a lot of people now and was like really ahead of its time. And it was just, wow, look at the lengths people are like going to, to like ensure these kind of aims are not met. And you mentioned how it was sad. And, you know, I was able to like, I, when I did the podcast with Josh and Daniel on it, I mentioned how I had heard Bomani Jones doing like a clubhouse chat with Michael Smith about about it about the movie, and they made a dark joke about it being like J. Edgar Hoover scouted Fred Hampton like he was LeBron James in high school, and they had a fun laugh about it because it's like he he looked at the potential of what Fred Hampton had to achieve great things, and they were able to laugh by making that comparison like scouting high school basketball talent because that's kind of how it's portrayed in the film. Like he's like. This is the this is the guy. This is the one we got to be worried about him. And it's like the fact that like he did like he was right. I mean, like when you see the effect Fred Hampton had on people, it's just like super sad. It's also freaking wild that he was like I think like what twenty 
less than 25 years old. Like, I mean, you're 20, yeah. like 21. I wonder, wait, I know he was like, when he became the president. Yeah, wait, wait, when he became the, 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 the head of the party, I think he was 20. He died when he was 21. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it's just insane. The effect he had on people at that age. And if he was able to have that kind of effect on people at that age, imagine what he could have accomplished with a full life. And that makes you very sad. So. Yeah. And then just like one thing for Bill O'Neill too. Like I know, like that's a very complicated thing you know with him and like i just felt such sadness for for him because it's just like you know he's obviously like you know what he did wasn't right but you sort of just look at you know and i I think the movie sort of does a good job of framing this but it's just like you know like what choice do you have and like it's not fair to right yeah he was one person have to wrestle with all that yeah he's less than 18 years old when he got put in that position by the fbi or he was he was under 18, I think, at the time he actually got put in that position by the FBI. So, yeah, he didn't do a good thing, but he, the movie makes it clear that it's kind of understandable why he does what he does. But at the same – and also it gives Lakeith, his, Lakeith Stanfield his best acting moment of the movie, in my opinion, when towards the end where he uh, is – where Fred has decided he's going to take this five-year prison stint instead of going abroad – and the last words that Bill has to him, Lakeith is like almost on the verge of breaking down because he just like realizes, wow, this guy is going to go take this prison sentence for the greater good where I couldn't do that. And instead I took this route. And again, it's understandable he took that route, but you really see the pain on Bill's face thanks to Lakeith's very impressive acting. And I'm very happy Lakeith Stanfield has an Oscar nomination because, again, he's, uh, as I've said before, I'm pretty sure on multiple occasions, he's uh, one of my favorite actors. Yeah. He's incredible. <laughs> what is your number two? Uh, number two, I have Minari. Oh, wow. Um, you just watched this one. So uh, yeah. it, it, it kind of crashed your party. Yeah. You know, it was one of these things where you see how hard people have to work to, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's a movie where I just sort of noticed my own privilege, you know, like I was just aware of my own privilege. Yeah. You had running water growing up, Joe. I mean, yeah. how lucky are you? No, it's it's like you see how hard people who aren't white or who are coming to this country for the first time, you know, I mean, these characters have come from California to Arkansas, but like you see how much harder they have to work to reach the baseline, you know, and again, it's sort of like Judas and the Black Messiah, where it's like it's stuff that you're aware of from reading and doing your own research, but just to see it dramatized in such a way is just such a stark, different feeling, you know. And, you know, it's obviously not the first time I've seen this in a movie or anything, but, um, you know, but also it's just, it's a really touching family story. You know, I just really appreciate like having to blend the family while also going through this crucible of farming in, in the South, you know, and this movie felt equal parts like a hug and also just like, I was sad too. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I just, it's really just about, you know, I don't know. I hate to get too metaphorical here, but like, you know, with the, the Minari, the title Minari in question, it's like, you know, anything can flourish anywhere if it gets like the appropriate, like care and effort put into it, you know? Yeah. It's so, a, it is a little on the nose within the course of the, yeah. within the, within the movie with what that, the purpose or that plant ultimately serves. But it, 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 I, I agree with you in that it's, it's a beautiful movie. And I mean, it's in, it's kind of intense what happens at the end with that fire. Uh, yeah. but it's also like, uh, it's also like kind of, it's just kind of there at the end. And I don't know if it really like, because of that. And it's like, okay, like 
the ending's not going to like ultimately be like, or the, the reason it wasn't higher on my list, and it's in my top 20, and I actually saw like 70-something, 2,000. I did a decent job given COVID seeing 2020 releases. So when I say it's only in my top 20 and not my top 10, it's it's still pretty good praise. I just the mm-hmm. reason it wasn't higher was because it was like, all right, that, that fire didn't gut me like I think the way it wanted to, and there wasn't maybe like a powerful moment that knocked my socks off, but everything else about it is very beautiful, and I'm so glad it got all the Oscar nominations he did because it did because I want to encourage more movies like that, and I'm uh, and and I love and I'm a huge fan of Stephen Young, so like yeah. mad props to him and uh, to for him for like getting the Oscar nomination he should have gotten for Burning a couple years ago. Although Burning would have been supporting, he got nominated in lead, so uh, good for him. And uh, Yu Yoon Jung got the SAG award the other night, as of the time we're recording this, so. Uh, Good for her too, and I'm just—it's very well acted, very beautifully told. It just wasn't quite my top ten, but uh, I'm glad you really mm-hmm. enjoyed it. And, and yeah, the the privilege thing goes without saying. I mean, I'm like you. I'm just yeah. like I'm, I, I'm just a privileged white guy. And I mean, in, in like movies that are about families that have it even better than this have also made me come to that, uh, or also reminded me of my privilege before. But it's like. Wow, mm-hmm. it's even hard. It, it's 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 something to watch. People that just like don't have running water. I mean, there are movies about poor people out there, but there are I can't think of that many other movies that like make you like sit with the uncomfortableness of people that don't have running water. It's like wow, that is a thing that people have to deal with, and it is something I'd never had to worry about. And I am now going to refer to Mountain Dew as water from the mountains. That is just <laughs> that movie had jokes too. <laughs> it's, it's so great. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like again. It's it's beautiful, so I don't want to say it's not a, it's it's a, it's a, it's a rough hang, but it's it's challenging, and that like these people really go through it. But at the same time, like, but with with that character of the grandma, like, it has room for humor too in this within the confines of this story with a family that's like really struggling. So, again, I really appreciate that it had room for that too. So, Joe, what is your number one movie of two thousand twenty? My number one movie of 2020 is The Sound of Metal. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. so I, I this is this was actually in the category of stuff that uh that Fred had in his in his top ten that made me feel bad that I didn't put it higher because he had it number two and it's another thing that's like in my top twenty I just didn't put it higher though I don't really know if I have a good reason for that so uh what what is the biggest reason why this is your number one movie of 2020? This is the best sound design I've ever seen in a movie. It mm. is just. And like, obviously it needs that just given the nature of like what, like it's a man going through hearing loss, you know, but just the way that you sound in this movie is gutting cut. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, it's an incredible central performance from Riz Ahmed, but this was a movie where I just, I, like the one I watched where I, I actually felt things, you know, because uh, I, again, like I talked to you at the beginning of this and I was like, I was like, you know, like, I feel like there wasn't like a lot of great movies this year and things that I actually had emotion, had an emotional response to. And this was like one of the few that like I actually had an emotional response to. And like, um, and that's not to call it manipulative or anything, but I just remember being just incredibly moved by the kindness and compassion at the hearing center. And then just being gut, like spoiler alert. Come on. Like if you're listening to this, no, 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 we're not doing, you can say whatever you want. This is the, this is the the year end podcast. People got to watch their shit. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's so gutting and beautiful the way that like he has to like say goodbye to his old life. Like when he and his girlfriend in the end, like realize that they like helped each other through that stage of life and that part of their lives is over now and they sort of have to move on. And like, I don't know, it's just, there's just like a certain beauty to it in the way that it's shot and designed. And like, I, I hate to sound so technical cause it's obviously like, I think it's a, 
it's a well-crafted story as well. But, you know, I mean, and it's silly, but like, is his name Joe, the guy who runs the, uh, yes, the school? I, I believe so. Joe tells him like, it's just all about like sitting in the stillness and like, that's, you know, that's the kingdom is sitting in stillness. And then like when he finally has that moment where he shuts his, you know, and it's funny he says like, that's the kingdom of God. And then it's like the literal church bells that force him to enter that, you know, that they're so agitating with the impl- hearing implants that he takes us away. And that's what brings him to his peace, peaceful moment at the end. Like, yeah, like I, I know this, like, I know this movie was nominated for a lot of this stuff and I'm not, like, I haven't taken a good look at people's top 10 lists or anything. So I'm not sure how well it's doing relative to everything else, but I just think this one was just equal parts, like beautiful and gutting. And just, if it doesn't win like the sound Oscars, which I mean, it's just an award show, so whatever, but like it deserves, it deserves our award for that. But um, I don't even know if it's nominated for that stuff. I haven't no, yeah, it. it got nominated for sound. Okay. And yeah, I really, really like this movie too. I, the only real criticism I have of it is that, I mean, I liked it for all the reasons you did. And it was, and as I've said multiple times now at this point, it was just like a pure surprise to me that it wasn't a tough hang. Mm-hmm. I just based on the the name, the trailer, that it was heavy metal. I just, I just thought the whole movie was going to be like the, like the scene where he goes to draw, where he d- does the show even after he's been instructed to stay away from loud noises i was like yeah oh my god this is just gonna be like a guy being self-destructive the whole movie and i what i was so impressed by was that in a way it was like it was a movie yeah while that place he goes to is like four addicts it's not really about the it, it, the movie isn't focused on that but it, that is like hangs over everything in that it's like you don't have to watch him being self-destructive after that point because he between the way he kind of uh, references his addiction and the way his girlfriend Lou does too it's like you get a great idea of just like how bad it must have been for him without it having to be spelled out for you and it's like he is so motivated to do right in so many other aspects of this movie because presumably because of what the alternative is and like we're just left to kind of imagine what his life was like before he met Lou and Mm -hmm. I'm like wow it must have been rough because and I I don't think he necessarily does anything wrong by getting the cochlear implants that's the thing and it's that scene where he like admits it to Joe, I mean, it is one of the best scenes in the movies of 2020 because, you know, it's clear that Joe has his way of doing things and uh, Ruben ultimately wishes he could stay there, but he to- he understands it. He doesn't give Joe a hard time about it, and we get where Joe's coming from. And I got where Ruben was coming from. While he might make a different kind of decision at the end of the movie from where we thought he- where he thought he ultimately wanted to be. I didn't blame him for doing that, partly because I didn't really understand that cochlear implants didn't sound the same. I didn't know that myself, and mm-hmm. I mean, the audiologist doesn't really do a great job of explaining that to him, I guess, earlier in the movie, yeah. and he thinks it'll be back to normal. But the fact is, given what we know he knows about it, it's reasonable to think he thinks he can just go back to being a drummer based on what is conveyed to him. So I don't think he acts irrationally, and it's I think he does everything fine. Joe does everything fine. And but the, mainly, I just thought it was going to be Ruben doing everything wrong, and he mostly acts totally rationally the whole movie, largely because of his addiction. So in a way, it's an addiction movie without explicitly being an addiction movie. It, it's a movie about a different kind of community that we're not really all that familiar with. If you listen to the episode I did with um, my friend Kayla, who's a speech language pathologist, you can learn a little bit more and get a little more insight into that. And I just think the movie it, it really accomplishes a lot. It's an addiction movie. It's a movie about the deaf community. It's a movie about this. Uh, one guy in his relationship with his girlfriend and what they've gone through. It's it just very sensitive to a, a lot of different communities in a way I found very impressive. Everybody, like both Ruben and Joe, 
like that scene that we talked about in question where he tells them about his implants, like everybody's just trying to survive, you know? And that's, I think that's just what's so devastating about it is that they're torn apart over both of them having like, they're just trying to survive. Like nobody's wrong in that scenario. And it's, I think that's what, and like, this is just, this is a movie. I don't know that just got under my skin and it's like lived there since I've watched it, you know? And, um, so anyway, it's staying, it's sticking with me. So I was like, that checks a big box for me. So. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm glad you really liked it. I think it's gonna uh, it's gonna be represented in our composite top ten. I'm pretty sure at this point. So it's really cool to hear you talk about that one as well, Joe. Thank you for being a consistent guest on the Rewind in 2020. Uh, despite the fact that Joe has a baby on the way, he is committed to continuing to be a regular guest. So I am uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy about that. Though there, I'm, I just put it up, Joe. Before we sign off, there's only one Pixar movie on the schedule for 2021. So uh, I'm sure yeah, there'll yeah. be I'm sure there'll be a couple other animated movies you'll join us for. But hopefully, we'll get you for a few more live action things uh, than normal since Pixar's. You know, actually. There's only, I didn't actually realize, so Toy Story 4 was actually the only one in 2019. I didn't realize that. I mean, there would be, there, there was so many Disney live action things in 2019, though, that like Joe is still around a lot for the Disney slash animated stuff. But I'm, I think we'll get Joe for a wider array of movies with there only being one Pixar thing, uh, coming next year. But who knows? Maybe we'll get a glut of animated movie show in the next two years because <laughs> like nothing else could be in production, uh, in 2020. So I don't know, but I look forward to having Joe back in 2020. Joe, thanks again. And on to the next one. And now we're back with our friend, recurring guest, Elijah Howard, to talk about his top 10 movies of 2020. Elijah, I'm going to quickly ask before we jump into your list, because it's becoming a recurring theme as we've recorded more of these, that a lot of people are down on the year of 2020 in movies. And I don't know how much of that is just because of stuff getting pushed back because of COVID or just, you know, just a general dip in quality. But do you agree with anyone else that's saying that? Did you find 2020 to be a down year in movies? Not really i mean i may have had to i may have had to dig some more to get you know to get to kind of the the meat and bones uh for this year um and maybe that's what other people are talking about maybe other people are really you know feeling that not a lot was handed to them and i would agree with that i would agree that you know there was not a lot of big ticket movies that you know were for me really cracked the list uh most of my films were and i don't mean to toot my own horn here but they were more obscure uh, and it was it was largely because I kind of had to to trawl a little bit more if I wanted to watch new films. And so for me, I didn't think it was necessarily a down year. It was definitely tougher uh, at the get go, kind of trying to formulate where this list was going to go. But, you know, when I really sat down with it, I did find that there was a lot of a lot of great films that I had seen. And I, I did end up actually having, you know, I always do a top 15. I know we only ever talk about 10. Yeah. But even with my top 15, there were some films that were on it for a, for a long, long, long time early in the year. And then when I finally got around to really digging in and finding some of the, the more hidden gems of the year, maybe that didn't, they, you know, ended up films get ended up getting pushed off. So, yeah, you seem a little more positive, uh, like I do, I think, than most of the other recurring guests normally do. And I think I normally have a couple more five stars than I did and a few more four and a half stars, though. I still I still feel pretty good about my top 15 also. So I'm cur- I think I'm going to learn something about your – I think I'm going to learn something about what else is still out there for me by hearing yours. Cause I think – like I already looked at your list at one point a few weeks ago. I know it's a little obscure, so I'm curious to hear it. So what was your 10th favorite movie of 2020? Uh, my number 10 film for the year was uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Oh man, so I that was one I watched, and I feel like uh, it's an experience. Uh, I, I, you went on that journey with Charlie Kaufman, and I guess really enjoyed it, though. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, well, I think that's the perfect way to describe it. Really, is is just is an experience. Um, you know, I know that there's definitely a lot of, of weird undercurrent to it and whatnot. But to me, I thought the beauty of it was that you really could read it as just sort of the last, you know, the the, the transient last thoughts of this old dude who's either dying or killing himself. It's not particularly clear. Um, but to me, that was you know, you kind of get absorbed in this miasma of things blending and falling into each other. Um, you know, somebody I heard compared it to like the sensation of like worlds being sucked in by a black hole where <laughs> you just have matter from things crashing into each other. Um, and, you know, to me, that was that was this, you know, the strength of the movie was kind of that you know how how much you could just immerse yourself in this fantastical and, and somewhat horrifying blend of of end of life experiences um and uh and yeah there, there's definitely you know and i'm simplifying it there's more to it than that um yeah you could you could do like a four-hour podcast trying to like dissect the movie so i will say for me i it might have just been a little out there for me like i think you know, as far as like Charlie Kaufman stuff, I think I watched Being John Malkovich for the first time in mm. quarantine, and I think that might be, that movie might be the right the right amount of weird for me, and uh, and I think uh, th- this one just kind of like it goes like a few steps beyond where I really would want to go. Though there are certainly moments in there that worked. Like I I kind of like some of this slow kind of creeping feeling that something wasn't right, where they keep saying Jesse Buckley's name wrong like the first few times and you're like huh that's interesting and then it turns into something else and it might go like five steps past the kind of zone i want to be in but i respect anyone that can get a can really dig what he's doing there you know totally what's your number nine my number nine film was first cow by kelly reichardt hell yeah that's uh that, that, that's uh that's my number five so uh I, we 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 talked yeah we talked about that you're you, well you're the first person that whose uh, list has popped on uh, popped up on so far I think uh so uh we talked about that with our friend Ben uh at the end of uh, last year uh what did you really like about First Cow? Um you know there's something about Kelly Reichard films that to me just um it's not something unsettling. Because I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't call this film unsettling. In fact, in some ways, I would say it, it might be, might be kind of her most like wholesome film. <laughs> I don't, I know that sounds weird, but like, there's just an element to all of her movies that is, that's kind of off-putting, and it's, it's a sort of mythology to her movies that is that that has an esotericism to it, but is also sort of innately american right um and so i really like you know how this how, how first cow kind of progresses and it has that sort of mythology to it um and it's got this you know this, this character of the cow right that is kind of like you know a a lightning rod for events and it's sort of hard to it's sort of you know it's hard to sort of sum up in in just a a minute like this but it was it was all of those things and of course just the fantastic cast uh and the late Renee Auvergenois I think I don't know if he's ever given a name I think they just call him the dude with the raven or something like um like he's great Toby Jones is great you know all these people that just kind of you know, pop up. Yeah, Lily Gladstone uh, for a minute. Had, yeah, yeah. Lily Gladstone, Aaliyah Shawkat, a 
you know, kind of getting in there for a bit. Um, it, you know, I, I was a fan of, um, I was a fan of uh, Meek's Cutoff. That must have been like 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in a lot of ways, this film felt similar to Meek's Cutoff. Um, and uh, yeah, I just really liked it. Yeah, it was like I, what, the, the big takeaway I had when I was talking about it with Ben was it felt like it was just like it's like such a combination of a, of a lot of her different movies. And, you know, and that it's like people on the run, kind of a heist, which she did with Night Moves. People on the run is like River of Glass. You had the Western aspect of it like you did with uh, – Meek's cut off, which actually isn't my favorite of her movies, but it just feels like it, it pulled everything together. It was a movie about, and it told a really nice movie about friendship, but also just like, I mean, said something about like the economy of the time. And I don't know, it just accomplished a lot of things and it felt very confident in doing so while, you know, still being like kind of a, like you said, kind of a, well, for, I already forgot what the adjective you used was, but I was about to say sweet myself in a way. Yeah, um, wholesome. Yeah. yeah, wholesome. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, just very nice vibe when like a lot of her other movies, like, you know, even though, hey, maybe things don't end in such a, a happy place in this movie necessarily, uh, it's still nice that it had that vibe. Whereas, you know, a lot of our other movies, uh, you know, are just like, I mean, are kind of just largely about characters that, you know, are at odds or doing things that are, you know, really, really kind of like more intense than like baking scones. Uh-huh. Totally. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I mean, also, what a timely film, too, you know, with Lu- King Lou, you know, with that with that character, Kang Lou, the whole thing about like the Chinese secret. Right. Like what? I mean, this is like a hell of a year for a film like this to come out. Yeah. Just a great performance um, from that guy, too. And I hadn't seen him in anything before. I don't think. Really- yeah, I think Ryan Lee I think yeah. is his name. Yeah. I think this is maybe his first like real film. Yeah. Really cool screen presence, I'd say, about him. Uh, what is your number eight? My number eight film for the year was The True History of the Kelly Gang by Justin Curzel. I think I've heard of this one, but can you tell us what it's about? So um, it is the it is the not so true story of um, of Ned Kelly, who was a real person. He was a, a bush ranger in Australia, which a bush ranger is like a like a highwayman, um, like a bandit. Um, and uh, in this film, he is portrayed by George Mackay of 1917 fame. It's very, uh, it's very postmodern, which is something that's instantly going to attract me to a film. You know, there's there's a lot of this movie that kind of plays with the concepts of reality and with real history. Uh, you know, the film kind of bounces sort of forward in time in these sort of jolts. There's a lot of it that's sort of anachronistic, but at the same time, there is this just this. You know, on top of amazing, amazing performances by George Mackay and Nicholas Holt and Russell Crowe and S.E. Davis, there's a really fantastic, you know, overarching narrative about uh, about colonialism and about the, you know, kind of perhaps the lesser known uh, side of, you know, English colonialism, where they they basically oppressed their own people and uh, all the way across the world. You know, the English, you know, were very, very cruel to Irish people as well as to natives in Australia. Um, and that's really what this movie is about is just kind of about how the, the, the fist of colonial oppression crushes everything. And it was, it was a very stylish movie. Uh, it's a very haunting movie. And, uh, and I'm just a big, big sucker for George McKay. Like I'm, I might be his biggest fan. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I guess I, ha- I guess I've really only seen him in uh, 1917 and Captain Fantastic. So I'd be kind of curious yeah. to see him uh, in, in another role. And I didn't really know anything about that movie. So uh, is that on one of the main streaming services or something? Or do you know? Off the I, 
it, I watched it on Hulu. Oh, I think okay. it's still on Hulu. Yeah, I think it's still cool. on Hulu. Yeah, we just want to give people uh, somewhere where they could head because, I mean, I'm t- writing that down myself right now. Uh, what's your number seven? My number seven film for 2020 was uh, Vitalina Varela hmm. by Pedro Costa. Where, where, uh, where, where is that movie from? So it's from Portugal. Ah, um, okay. Interesting. Pedro okay, Costa. What's it, what's it about? Uh, so it is a crime thriller. I don't <laughs> it's his movies are very, very hard to pin down. Pedro Costa is kind of one of the modern faces of um of uh of slow cinema, which I I don't know if we've really ever talked about extensively. No, I, you know, I don't I, that's another thing I don't know what it is. <laughs> um you know, it's movies that are intentionally made to be hypnagogic, that are are made to be uh, you know, incredibly slow and, and glacial and um, huh. to be kind of uh, dreamlike. Actually, um, I, feel, I feel like one of, one, of, one of such movies might have been on one of your top tens one of the last two years because now this is ringing a bell. <laughs> possibly, yeah. And Vitalina Varela, it follows very much in Pedro Costa's other tradition, which all of his films are set in uh, in Lisbon and particularly in, a, um, in this uh, area outside of Lisbon called uh, Fontenhaus which is kind of a notoriously poor uh, slum shanty town, basically on the outskirts of, of Lisbon. Um, all of his movies are done with non-actors. And in this case, that is the lead actress in the film and the, the, the titular character, Vitalina Varela. Um, and this was basically, this film was like based on her life. Uh, she is a Cape Verdean woman who goes to Lisbon to try and track down her husband who's been missing for like 40 years. Hmm. Um, and that, that's actually, you know, like in her real life, that was, that was Vitalina Varela's life kind of sort of not really, <laughs> um, you know, this movie is, um, is very much, uh, you know, a realization of Pedro Costa's. It's just, it, it's another, I, to me, he's never made a bad film, you know, starting with, I think also it's like 15 years ago or 20 years ago, or maybe even more now, um, just all the way through this one. Every film he's made has been just stellar, uh, you know, amazing use of non-actors or of un- non-professional actors, rather, and uh, amazing use of, of location, of turning uh, a place like, uh, you know, a shanty town into, into, into what feels like a real character. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, it's another one that I'll have to look into myself because uh, you you went pretty off the beaten path for that one too. Like, and I, that's kind of what you said you did had to do for some of these to dig a little more. Uh, what's your number six? My number six film was Minari. Ah, okay. So we already talked about that. So like two episodes back. So we don't have to dwell on that one too much at the moment because uh, you already got Elijah's thoughts in depth on our episode that we did with Lissa for that. So, um, but it's interesting to see that it stacked up that well for you because I knew you spoke pretty highly of it on the pod. But I, I guess I didn't. I wasn't quite sure if it was you know to the point where you would have ranked it that highly. So it's good to know it stacked up like that for you and it got those six Oscar nominations that were well deserved. Totally, totally agree on the Oscar nominations. And I think, you know, we're approaching the point in my list where we go from, you know, films that I just really, really liked to films that I felt like were complete, like really near, near perfect. And Minari is definitely, you know, it, it, it is at that stage for me where I just from start to finish, there was nothing I could really complain about. And I thought that came through on our podcast talking about it, too. Yeah, it popped up, I think, on Fred's list. I don't know if anyone else is so far, uh, but I... 
I was like, uh, as I said on that one, and as I said on our pod, like the you know the, the last act of it might have not quite knocked me on my feet like I wanted to, but I just think so much of it is well done that like I'm not that I that it didn't it didn't it didn't crack my top ten or maybe even my top fifteen, but it was in my top twenty, and I'm very happy for all the accolades it's getting. So uh, good to see it pop up pretty high on someone else's list. What's your number five? My number five film is This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection. Um, by what, what is that? Lemahong Jeremiah Mosesi. Um, it is a uh, a Sotho film, so it's, it's from Lesotho. I don't not even know um, what that country is. That's it is a, it's it's in Africa. It's a um, it's a it's an enclave of uh, of South Africa. Um, it's a it's a very mountainous uh, country, and the film is was shot there, set there, um, and it is. Uh, in the in the Sotho language, and it is a psychedelic thriller. I don't. It, it the basically the best way I can describe it is it's a Christmas story, but as a horror film. And I'm just gonna kind of let you take that as you as you want it. You know, recognizing that it is a it is it's a film from a small African country. Um, that said, it's it was a it was incredibly well done. Uh, it's one of the it might be the most beautiful film of the year to me in terms of its cinematography. It's such a unique experience. That's really, I don't want to give too much away because it's basically the best way I can describe it. Um, it's kind of a, is a sort of dark Christmas tale. Um, it's told very lightly with dialogue there. You know, there is dialogue in Sutu, but for the most part, it's a very visual film. And, uh, I, you know, I'm a sucker for that. Anything that, you know, that can communicate its ideas through those visuals alone, I think is very, it's a very uh, powerful film. There you go. Uh, yeah, you're not the first person to actually have a m- obscure African movie in your top ten because Dan- Daniel put this movie Crazy World as his number one. I don't even know if you've heard of that. I don't even really know how to describe it, even after listening to him talk about it. It doesn't even have its own Wikipedia page. So uh, some people are being more obscure than you, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, what is your number four? Uh, my number four is Nomadland by ah. Kojo. Okay, yeah. So uh, th- that was that's that's my number ten, and I it's it's popping up on a on another couple lists there. So I, I know you I know you really dug that movie, and at this point, it might be the best picture favorite. I'm guessing it sounds like it might be the highest rated for you of the best picture nominees. So, uh, yeah. what 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 did uh, what did you really like about Nomadland? As um, yeah, you know, for someone that like works as uh, unconventionally as Chloe Zhou, and it was a, you know, it's it's on a bigger scope than her other movies, and has these stars, but I still think it distinctly feels like one of her movies. What what, what really worked about it for you? Totally. I mean, I think the obviously the uh, the performances by non professional actors is another you know running theme this year, and in this film they just did a, a really a phenomenal job. But I think you know, yeah, you mentioned that this is kind of also one of her, uh, you know more stacked casts in terms of, you know, having Francis McDormand, David Strathairn in it. And I think it might be because this is also her most political movie or her most, her most intentionally political movie. Obviously there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of sub subcurrent politics to the writer and to songs my brother taught me. Um, but this is obviously her most in, in your face political movie. And so I think having that delivery method was probably important to her, but it still feels like, you know, a very much a Chloe Zhao film because she, it has that listlessness to it. It has that pensive poetic quality where, you know, the story is about feelings and emotions uh, and that's what guides the characters. And that's why there's not really like a plot 
quote unquote per se, which are sort of events. You know, we have day to day life and we follow these characters through it. And some of them are actors and we know that, but some of them are real people. And, you know, th- this was as about as close as a look into their lives as we could get without it being a documentary. Yeah, I mean, I've already talked about it a couple of times, so I'm not going to add a whole lot to that. I agree with everything you said. And, you know, and while like, I think she captured that part of the country really well in the writer, I mean, this is just like, it's like such a, it's such a beautiful movie and to look at. And yeah, I think it's, I, th- I thought she really seamlessly integrated these non-professional actors with someone that's like, you know, as decorated as Frances McDormand. I just thought it was an impressive job all around. So what's your number three? My number three film is The Lost Okoroshi by Abati Makama. Okay, where, 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 what country is that one from? <laughs> so this is a Nigerian film. It was it dropped on Netflix, and it's I believe it's still on there for anybody who wants to go watch it. I would highly recommend it. It is a psychedelic fable. It's It's quite Lynchian, kind of nightmarish. Uh, it's about a guy who, through some sort of magical process, gets transformed into an okoroshi, which is a uh, like a, a masked uh, spirit, hmm. wandering spirit. And basically, it it's just sort of this surrealist romp of like this this dude wandering around Lagos. <laughs> Um, and all of the crazy weird people that he meets and all of the kind of shenanigans that he gets himself into it's a kind of horrifying and scary film because it is definitely lynchian and surrealist and kind of nightmarish but there's there's a lot of humor in it um there's a lot a lot a lot of humor in it that translates very well i would say you know there's you know it's it's very universal a lot of the humor in it and uh it's it's a very striking film uh, you know, again, sucker for good visuals, and this movie had that, uh, you know, throughout its runtime. Um, it just, it felt so free and so, um, you know, so, so unburdened by any like sense of like formalism or what it, you know, what maybe we would feel like a movie like this has to be. And I think that works greatly to its benefit. I think it's one of the best films to come out of Nigeria in in recent years, and I. I obviously thought it was one of the best films of the year in yeah. general i'm just looking at it now it's only 94 minutes long and it's on netflix so pretty easy to check out if uh, that piques anyone's interest uh what is your number two my number two film was the painted bird all right that's another one i haven't heard of what so tell me about that uh it is it's a three-hour black and white holocaust film Oh, wow. You're really doing a great job of making me uh, run to play, press play on this one. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to preach this film as like, you know, something everybody should really watch. It is incredibly <laughs> difficult uh, at times to watch. It's just, it's basically the story about a, a young boy who gets sent to live with his grandmother during, uh, you know, during World War II out in the countryside in what is, you know, now the, the Czech Republic and then... I'm actually not exactly sure where it, you know, what what country it would have been in at the time. I guess Czechoslovakia. He gets sent out to the countryside to live with his grandmother. His grandmother dies uh, shortly after he gets sent out there, so all he's right. all alone. Really, really sounds like a fun hang. Yep, yeah. <laughs> basically, he has to set out on his own, and the film just kind of follows him as he goes from town to town and is roundly abused, assaulted, and otherwise kind of dispensed of by these you know by the 
by the people that he comes across. It is, it, 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 I, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's a joyous watch. There was, I, I went to go see it at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival early last year. And I mean, it was a packed theater and surprisingly stayed pretty packed, but there was definitely walkouts. There were definitely <laughs> people who couldn't deal with it. And I, I get it. You know, it is a very difficult watch, but it is done in such a way that to me did not feel exploitative. It felt, um, you know, very much, you know, it was it was trying to be realistic and not impressionistic. And uh, I thought that was greatly to its benefit. And uh, I think it's just a very important film for, you know, for people to see to kind of get back in touch with something that maybe we miss a lot of the time in, in war films like this, which is you know how things like this affect young people right and I, I thought it was it did a really fantastic job of you know examining that and and it's very long and unsettling runtime it's also a really cool film in that it was um it's it is mostly in uh in the inter-slavic language which is kind of not really a language anymore uh, i believe it's only really spoken in some small communities and in an academic setting but was a lot more prevalent before world war ii and so that was uh, that's a kind of from a you know just from a cultural perspective that was an, another really cool part of it. Oh, that's an interesting uh, flourish and challenge that I guess they would have to fake it, face in uh, making the movie. So that one is, is again. I'm sorry. I was about to say it is on Hulu, I believe. That's, that's, that's what I was going to say. I looked that up too. So if you, I I mean. If, hey, if I'm in the right mood, I could see myself starting it, but I feel like I got to be in the right mood to uh, to go on that journey for three hours during the Holocaust and watching a little kid uh, have a time of it. But uh, yeah, there there you go. If, if someone wants to see that movie, it's it's easily available on Hulu. Uh, what is your favorite? What was your favorite movie of 2020, Elijah? My top film for 2020 was Beanpole. Okay, and uh, I, I I just I just pulled that one up too. So uh, is uh, it's another World War II one, huh? It, it's or post-war, post-war too. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah big distinction there. Right. Um, yeah, this is a, a Russian film by uh, Kantemir Balagov, um, and it's set in post-war Leningrad, uh, and it follows two female soldiers who um, are kind of reintegrating into the world after the war. And there, there's a beauty to it. It is also a, an incredibly sad film. So again, another one that you know, if people are having some struggles, maybe not something they want to go out and, uh, you know, immediately seek out. But uh, I thought um, uh, Victoria uh, Miroshenko, who plays Miroshenko, Miroshenko, who plays the, the titular quote-unquote beanpole, um, that's her nickname, uh, I just thought she was, she was absolutely stunning. Um, she did a really phenomenal job. And I think it's, it's one of the best films that I've seen that deals about, deals with kind of the fallout of World War II in a realistic and um, empathetic way. It, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't rely on, on flashbacks or triumphalism, like, you know, something like a Saving Private Ryan. It just kind of talks about these things in a, in a subtle and, you know, heartbreaking, but, but very uh, impactful way. All right. Well, I, man, I, 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 like you said, I guess you found stuff to like in 2020, but it feels like you had a fairly heavy year though, as far as what you did find that you're pretty into, huh? Um, so yeah, man. If we were talking about my tenth, my you know eleven through fifteen, that, that's when I get into all the kooky stuff. But no, <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, maybe that's a little reflective of the uh, of uh, how we we're all feeling last year, and uh, and 
but it seems like you just kind of you did a good job though of searching far and wide to still find stuff to make it feel like a list that you felt good about. So I'm glad you were able to uh, find enough to enjoy in a year in which we were all enjoying less things. So Elijah, thank you for being a consistent presence on the movie. On on the podcast in the year of 2020 and kind of 2021 because we talked a lot about a 20 a lot about 2020 movies in 2021 with how this schedule got messed up. But again, thanks for all your time this year. We look forward to seeing you next year. In fact, we'll probably see you talking about a not as uh, heavy movie when I think we're going to end up maybe talking about Mortal Kombat soon. So uh, looking forward to having you for that. Just after talking about a monster movie, so glad we're not just making you talk about the super heavy stuff. And uh, we'll see you next year. All right, and now we are joined by Lisa Koshbakti, regular guest, who uh, joined us for a lot of different kinds of movies last year, because Lisa has a very wide variety of tastes like I do, so I'm very excited to see how her list shook out. But first, Lisa, before I get to your list, I'm curious, I know uh, you were gracious enough to do a little bit of homework over the last week, cause, and watch a few things in my top 10. I'm not going to hold it against you if none of those pop up, but I am curious, you know, because it's been a kind of an ongoing theme throughout the episode so far, a lot of people are a little down on the year in movies. Uh, I don't know if you were having more bigger picture thoughts on the year in movies as we approach the Oscars or if you've been thinking oh this wasn't so great uh how do you feel 2020 stacked up to years past since you've become a big film fan and was it actually you know hey this is a still a pretty solid year or was it a little lower did your opinion of the year in movies go up a little bit as you kind of binge some stuff the last couple of weeks how are you really feeling about how 2020 was as a year in movies because it was obviously an unconventional one for many reasons yes really good question Josh and I feel like it's kind of a loaded question because the year was so weird with COVID, and I'm sure the other guests have said something similar. But for me, 2020 was kind of all over the place, just like everyone's emotions were. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was a range of really well done films to the point of masterpieces, all the way down to films that I can't believe I wasted my time watching. <laughs> so I think it was all over the place. But what I kind of learned this past year, I think, for me with the films is that ultimately bottom line especially being in production during covid that films are so hard to make so i think i'm judging them a little less harshly every year but especially after this year but that's not to say that i still don't have standards i feel like when i watch certain films but overall in general a lot of the films that stuck with me this year and kind of made my top 10 were films that tugged at my heart stream heartstrings in terms of enjoying life to the fullest. So I might be a little bit biased in my top 10 because of that theme. Interesting. So while I'm sure there might be a a sad movie or two in your top 10, you thought, and I think some people during COVID, they might've been drawn to the sad stuff because they just wanted to be in their feelings. And understandably, a lot of people were sad for various reasons at various points last year, but it seems like you might've actually just gravitated towards the stuff that maybe made you not feel so sad. Yes, exactly. It was a mix of like gravitating towards stuff that make you made you feel sad but and made you appreciate life but also the films that might not have seemed so oscar worthy but were really fun to watch and really well done script wise that kind of stood out so i have to thank you for the last minute rex too ah interesting okay so what was your number 10 movie of 2020 okay so my number 10 film for 2020 was pieces of a woman Ah, we talked about it. Okay, well, we talked about it on that podcast. So I'm not going to make you go too far into it because people can go listen to that podcast we did with Denise. I made you guys talk about a sad movie, uh, and and you said I think before we started recording, 
you might have moved this up at the last minute. So did you revisit it or did you think about it some more? Because it said you said you were like, hey, I was maybe more gravitating towards some of the happy stuff. This one, yes. not so happy. So did you have any extra reflection on it that uh, made you appreciate it more as we kind of wind down to the, I'll call it the fiscal year movies, you know, 2020s, <laughs> you know, because like we were watching 2020 movies well into 2021. But what was it about Pieces of a Woman that stuck with you? Yes. So for me, you know, we talked about it on the podcast, so everyone should go listen to it um, because it's a really well done conversation. Mm-hmm. But just for me reflecting on it, you know, number 11, I have Def- Defy Bloods and it was really hard to put a Spike Lee movie um, after that. But for me, Vanessa Kirby's performance in that film just really brought it up for me. I've never seen her in a role like this. She's a brilliant actress and um, I'm, I'm rooting for her. But the way she held this film and kind of brought the rawness, as we discussed on the podcast, uh, to this position and to this situation just really stood out for me. And, and the ending kind of still sits with me to this day. So that's why I kept it at number 10. Oh, well, very good. And yeah, I think, as I mentioned on the pod myself, like, I think the, I, I think the ending did strike a good note with me. I though I mean, I think other stuff in the back half of the movie, like, you know, maybe not so much, and that might just be the lawyer in me. Uh, and I think uh, someone that's not a lawyer might not have picked it apart in the way I did. So totally respect anyone that has it that high in their list, because it was just a very, 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 uh, powerfully a very powerful movie and no one can take that away from it what was your number nine so my number nine was thanks to you josh it is actually banana split oh wow uh that i i I, you know it's in my top 10 too it's my number eight uh but like i you know it's just a fun movie i didn't necessarily expect it to crack your top 10 but it was it's like i think less than 90 minutes and just like a really solid flick and i was like i don't know if she's gonna put it in her top 10 but i have a feeling she'll like this so what do you like about that movie I am so glad you brought it to my attention because this would have completely flown under my radar. And it's a pretty, I mean, the bigger the bigger actor in here is Dylan Sprouse, of course, but I'm just kind of shocked that it didn't get as much attention. Yeah, I mean, because especially because stuff on Netflix t- kind of blows up, you know, just so right. many people have it. And just by virtue of being on Netflix, like a, the actors and stuff will get a lot of Instagram followers and a lot of people yes. will talk about it. And, I, uh, you know, I mean, again, it wasn't I think it wasn't something that was like an original Netflix production. It got bought by them uh, at some point so and put on the service and after it had kind of been seen in a few other spots. But I don't know, just like a you know, a very tight story and a right. very, you know, uh, you know, there's different kinds of high school relationship movies. And this, this felt like it found a, its very own unique lane, you know? Exactly. I echo your words too. Cause it was just a very tight film. If the script would have gone on any longer, it wouldn't have worked as well. I thought it was a really tight film. And also it's really nice to, you know, watch a movie about high school teenage romance and friendship and it actually get it right, which is super rare. And, you know, the actresses, Hannah Marks and Liana Liberto really had a good chemistry. Hannah Marks also wrote it, very talented. And, oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, and she's, she's gonna she's gonna do big things. And I, um, yes. I just I just thought the dialogue was pretty sharp. You know, sometimes you can kind of pick apart dialogue in teen movies. And uh, it, I mean, not that I've been a teen anytime recently. Uh, it, it's, it's been more than a <laughs> decade. Since, it's been more than a decade though since I've been a teen. But the fact is, it's still. I, I, so maybe may, maybe sometimes it's just on me for being an old man. Though it just felt more true to life than um, a lot of those are. So uh, I highly recommend people check out Banana Split. I think it's still on Netflix and. Uh, just if you're if you're just looking for a fun movie about you know high school relationships where you know two two girls you know become friends and one of them's dating the other's ex and it just sounds like a it's a very it's a quick elevator pitch of a setup but there's it's it's still pretty potent and powerful at the same time. What's your number eight? So my number eight we also talked about on the podcast. It's actually the photograph. Ah, okay. You know it was Daniel's number seven. So you you both came on that podcast with me 
and that was mm-hmm. one of the last movies people saw pre-COVID. That was a, I think, a Valentine's Day release. So uh, I think we might have we recorded at some point in those last two weeks of February. So really within two weeks before we stopped going to movies. So were you surprised when you went to make a list? Because I don't know if you keep a running list throughout the year like I do or not. I, I do kind of keep a running list. Uh, but like when you saw that movie at that point last year, I mean, I know you, we all talked about it and we all liked it on the podcast. But did you come back and make a list and be like, wow, like I, this really stacks up? Uh, were you surprised to see it? And do you think that's a product of the year in movies without as much getting released? Or you really think it kind of would uh, be not be out of place in top tens of past for you? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think when we were still in person, the film got a lot of hype, but then it also got a lot of kind of negative reviews. And I remember reading the negative reviews before I actually watched it. So I was a little bit nervous as it as reviews kind of unfortunately persuade me. But when I watched it, I immediately fell in love with it. And I was confused about the negative reviews. And I was kind of shocked because I also keep a list throughout the year, but I okay. kind of move it around when I watch things on Letterboxd. Same, same. But it really stuck with me, and I, I, it really didn't budge that much. Maybe one or two spots down, but not too much. Yeah, and I just, I think I should reiterate for anyone because I don't remember what I honestly at this point I don't remember what all I said about it when it came up on Daniel's list. But I think it's just like a really solid movie about like a. I, there's not a ton of like simple romances like that that are just like more drama. There's some really yeah. fun. There's a few really funny moments in it, but it's you know more of a dramatic romance. But at the same time, you know it, it, it's not like a sad movie though. At the same time, with the, with dr- dr- sad dramatic stakes, it's just like a it's just yeah. a romance where it's like two two people, two likable actors doing their thing. And I, I mean, uh, Lakeith Stanfield now an Oscar nominee, and I thought it was kind of cool because that showed me something new last year when it's like I could buy him as a romantic lead. Like he had, you know, he had popped up as like in kind of rom com, a couple of Netflix rom coms before, but like this is a, a different right. thing where he was like the main part of a two hander, and I. I was just really impressed with him and and Issa Rae, obviously, but I mean, I think it was a little more in her lane with what she had done on Insecure than Lakeith, and cool to see yeah. Lakeith like own it in a movie like that, but then like you know do something like he did in Judas and the Black Messiah and get recognized by the Academy. So very excited for him, and I think people out there like rom- people out there like to talk probably like liking, liking romance, might read romance novels, but not a lot of movies like that actually come out, you know. So exactly, and I'm probably biased because I'm a huge fan of Issa and Lakeith, but it's also really nice to see. Um, a love story focused on a black couple. I feel like you don't see that a lot, and so it was really, it was really nice to see it on the big screen. And also, the director uh, Stella McGee directed Everything, Everything, and I was also a big fan of that movie. So it's probably why I also love. Ooh, I have not seen that, so I'm, oh. I'm curious to curious to check that out now that I people don't know like that. that movie either. But oh. <laughs> I, I, I think I think you might be selling the photograph a little short as far as the critical reception. Like it did okay, though. I'm sure there were some detractors. I'm pretty sure it's fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So. Uh, I know. I think for me, people give it a three out of five stars. I always assume oh, they didn't like haters. It. Haters, you gave it three. Yeah. <laughs> Deserve more for that score. Okay, what's your number seven? Okay, number seven is uh, people are going to hate on me because I work for the company, but um, number seven was actually Soul. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not going to hate. I, I don't. It, it wasn't quite what I wanted from. Like it is fine, but like it wasn't like you know top tier Pixar for me. What did you really like about Soul? Because I haven't gotten to talk to you about that one yet. Yes. So for me, the biggest thing was the concept. Um, It really kind of drew my attention and the other ways that they kind of talked about the idea of looking at your life outside of your life. Like getting that ability is so interesting to me and kind of how to incorporate it. But on on top of that, it was just how far animation has come. And uh, again, focusing on a black story uh, was really important to me. But also 
little things that resonated with my life. Like when I was younger, those like stupid little helicopter leaves that like fell from the sky. I was always <laughs> so fascinated by them. So like I almost shed a tear when I saw that in the movie. And it was just like a nice reminder that, you know, especially during COVID to enjoy what you have and kind of branch out from certain things because life is too short and all those, you know, fun Hollister quotes or whatever. So <laughs> for me, it was just a combination of the concept, but also the animation was top notch for how far the company's come. Well, yeah, I think, as I, and I said this on the pod I did on that one with Joe, that the animation of New York was really, really impressive to me. The the great before, not as much, but, like, there are a couple moments, because I watched it again, because I wanted to, like, give it a fair shake the first time I watched it. I was, like, at a place with two TVs, and there was a basketball game on one. I was like, I owe this another watch. Right. And there was, like, a moment where the uh, it, where it was just, like, on a New York street corner. I think it might have been one of the moments where I think maybe they follow Leaf or something like that, where I was, like, I was just more, it more struck me on that second viewing, just, like, seeing how New York was rendered and just taking yeah. it all in because, I mean, I know you spent a lot of time in that city too, and it was cool to see Pixar taken on and capture some, like, really beautiful moments that uh, really show just – how the city contains multitudes and that that's what kind of game that's that and that was the biggest reason why i would get the movie a thumbs up even if it wasn't like you know quite top 10 good for me it just the, a, a, rendering a city like that in such vivid detail allows you to like kind of you know just by nature of doing that as effectively as they did it allows you to show so many like little small moments in life that you can appreciate and mm-hmm. i think that that was the biggest thing about this movie. It's like, you got to appreciate those kind of things and uh, not maybe not worry so much about, you know, certain kind of materialistic things. And we, people should, I think still trace your dream if you want to go be a musician, but you know, I think the right. movie kind of made its point well on that too. So exactly. And it came at the perfect time when we were all going through an existential crisis. So. <laughs> Very true. What's your number six? Number six is actually another round. Ah, okay. This is showing up on a few. I didn't. I. I. I, didn't, I think you might have told me you watched this. I didn't realize you had. It was. I think Josh is number two, and I think it made uh, Joe's top ten as well. So uh, yes. Did you did one number number one? Did you pregame this podcast? Number two. What did you like about the movie? Did I pregame this podcast <laughs> in terms of? I was uh, just <laughs> you know, it was, it was actually funny. Um, I have to thank my friend Kyle for it because he flagged it for me a few months before it came out, and I don't think I would have heard of it. But I'm a huge fan of Mads, so. I'm glad he did, but uh, I, I made a joke to another friend. I was like, I get what they're doing. Like, I started taking CBD drops. Like, it's the same thing, but it's obviously completely different. But I'm only admitting that because I think, you know, it only adds to the whole theme of life is too short and we're so stressed and we're so nervous for all, for what, you know? So I like the concept again. Um, but for me, what took it up another round is just like this another round. Oh my uh. God. It's, <laughs> Sorry, p- bad pun. Um, what took it up at like a, a higher notch for me is the cinematography out of it all and, you know, Matt's portrayal of the character and just how raw and like how much of a roller coaster they made the film seem like because it really felt like you were with the, them during the lows and the highs. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've I'm sure you've seen a gif of the ending or a video of the ending, but like an insane fun ending for the film, for the concept. So I keep saying concept and film, but um, the script is also really tight and is also really dramatic to the point of um, making you feel like you were in that situation as well, too. And 
And um, again, another really good film to watch during COVID to make you appreciate life and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily uh, get as into drinking as I think some people did during COVID, but I think uh, <laughs> it, could, it could maybe hit some people like that too. And uh, again, I think uh, a lot of people can like you know it was it's such an interesting idea for a movie though it's at the same because it is like like you said it's a kind of a thing a lot of people can experience like maybe taking some kind of substance that might alter you a little bit just to make you a little yeah. more effective but again it's very very clear how something like that could uh just you know seem like a much better idea in theory than in practice so exactly so it's an interesting concept but they did it a really good job about portraying it and what's good and what's bad but that's up to the viewer's discretion <laughs> yeah what is your number five my number five is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, I've already talked about this because it's my number one. Uh, I, yes. And I know it wasn't like I told you about it. I'm sure you'd heard about it, but uh, <laughs> I, I gave you the push to watch it, so I'm glad it cracked it. Uh, I mean, yes. I, it's obvious to me what is great about this movie because, again, it's my number one, but I, uh, I want to he hear you explain uh, why it resonated with you. So I had to shout out my friend Sam, who also flagged this for me last year when he saw it at Sundance because I have been I heard about it for like a full year and I can't believe I forgot. So thank you again, Josh, <laughs> for for reminding me. But I had been meaning to watch it. But honestly, this film was in was number five for me because it was the best horror film of the year. I don't know if there's a better way to explain it. But for me, I was trying to find the words after watching the film and I saw a letterbox user call it you know, a horror film. And for me, that ex that's exactly what it feels like. And so, you know, another film in my top 10 that really shows what we go through as humans, but especially as, as girls. And, and, and so the fact that the two of them were able to bring that to light in such a condensed movie, like you don't realize when you watch the film, you meet so many little characters, but you don't get tired of the main characters. And that's really hard to do. I feel like sometimes, in a, in a film that focuses on such a short time span. So for me, that was really hard to accomplish, but they did it so well. And and just kind of the horror they created around uh, not having access to to clinics and, and healthcare items really created a horror-esque film for me. So for, for me, this film was, was, was too raw to not be in my top 10. Yeah, you know, I already talked about how I thought it handles the issues really well, and, and uh, so I won't go into that again. But I, one thing I thought about when you said it was a horror movie, which I again, a very astute observation, was that one way in which it was that I didn't already talk about on this episode was that, mm -hmm. and we just talked about New York and how it can look so beautiful. I think it kind of <laughs> like for someone that, that hasn't spent a lot of time in New York, just navigating a night there, which again that ties into the movie's larger messaging too, just with respect to like the resources that people should have to have yeah. access to abortion but i was so convinced like it was going to go way worse for them in the movie than it actually did just by virtue of hanging out in new york uh and like they have their own you know ways they end up being resourceful and and trying to you know uh keep going back to that guy for money whatever i mean i yeah. uh, I, I was i was a weird character though I, I get what the movie's going for it's like you're gonna have to resort to stuff like that if you're in this situation but just you know Every time, basically, they, they saw a man or on the subway in the in the in the fort in the background of a shot, or you were nervous. Uh, yeah, it was just like I mean, it was just so scary. And it's because I, I I've been to New York enough now that like I'm good enough at using the subway that uh, I can go there for like a week and not have not even take a single Uber. But like if you're girls from rural Pennsylvania that have never been there, I, I was just like, oh my god, I, I'm like so worried, like something's going to go wrong here. Like the tension it builds is like horror, like almost. Yeah, and just just by virtue of being in a city like that, sh having it shot the way it was shot, was just a mm -hmm. different way of like 
you know, conveying horror beyond the core of like the, you know, the, the, the micro of their situation, uh, with respect to just abortion access. Uh, and it, it so it, it, it found a way to be harrowing in just about every single way. So, uh, mm-hmm. very well done movie. Uh, what is your number four? Number four is Nomadland. Ah, okay. Uh, I, this is popping up on a lot of people's wish. It was also Elijah's number four. I, what, I, hasn't, what hasn't been said about Nomadland? <laughs> right. I should I should tell you it's it's my number ten, so it, it's there too. I um. Oh, wow, it's low on your top ten. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, uh, I I I'm like at a loss for words. I I feel like I've talked about this movie a lot. I'm curious. Uh, was there something about it? Was it you know it's a beautiful movie. It's impressive what she does with the non-professional actors. Uh, it's cool how Fran McDormand fits in seamlessly with them. And uh, I think it, the movie has a really good message. What what did you like about it the most? Yes, I think what stuck out for me the most, and I believe I saw an interview with Chloe where she said this, is that um, I believe in the book or or she was originally planning on choosing a main character that was younger. I have to triple check my resources, but that being said. I really loved the idea of following someone who is older on this type of journey. I feel like we always see a lot of young couples, gentrification, like renovating a school bus and like going on these crazy trips. But it was really nice to see a perspective of an older person trying to figure out their life. And like Francis is not old in any capacity, but just her generation is different. And that really reflected in the movie and it was really inspiring to see because I feel like going back to the theme of life, you know, as as young people, we, we tend to forget that our parents and our grandparents are at that stage in their life for the first time, hmm. just the way that we are. So the way Chloe was able to reflect that in the film on top of my personal new love for traveling and national parks and everything, hmm. that combination of that for me is what what really kept it high on my top 10. Okay, yeah, I, re- I really like that observation. I hadn't even cr- quite thought about it in that way from my own perspective, but uh, definitely. I mean, I think as a young person, it's like we have our own ways. We would probably maybe handle that. We might be a little more adept with technology. We personally might be a little more skilled. So uh, having you know, watching something about a, a person of that age that maybe isn't resourceful in the same way, she's certainly more resourceful than me in a lot of other ways about like just basic, survi- basic survival. But uh, it gives you uh, some insight into just like how um, – how, how just a much different generation um, sees the world and how they might try and, you know, navigate it. Um, exactly. What is your number three? Number three for me is Sound of Metal. Oh, man. This is popping up <laughs> high, high on, it was on a lot of people's list. It was Joe's number one. So, uh, it was a really and, good film. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Fred's number two. So this movie, like, you know, as I've already kind of said before, like it – you know, it just had a slow build and like exploded in Oscar season more than I would have ever expected beyond just Riz getting nominated. So, uh, yeah. and I think this movie works on a lot of levels. Uh, is there is there one way in which you connected with it the most? Because I mean, it's a movie about addiction. It's a movie about uh, why something isn't a disability, though. It's uh, you know, deaf, deafness is something that a lot of people consider a disability. It's very important to these characters that it's not that, and also kind of a movie about just like finding your purpose in life because and how that can change. Right. So. Uh, how, how did you really take this movie in? Because I think it can hit you in a lot of ways. Exactly. I want to prep my review of Sound of Metal by saying I made my myself and my poor mom watch uh, Sound of Metal, um, Nomadland, and I think another round back to back. And so we were going through an existential crisis in terms of like, 
our lives are perfect. Why are we complaining? So I think Sound of Metal that, was that, the that, that, that was at least a little after I made your mom watch Pieces of a Woman, right? <laughs> yes, there was like, we watched Pieces of a Woman, and then like the next weekend we watched like all of those three because I, I, I wanted to watch them. Give her a break. <laughs> I know, poor woman. What? Uh, and then I made her watch The Shining last night, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but I really liked Sound of Metal. I was very shocked about how much I loved it. I'm trying to think of words to express why that are probably different than the other folks. But it really boils down again to me for for concept and script. This this film really fascinated me because it wasn't just dealing with his loss of hearing. It was dealing with a layer of, of addiction on top of that and kind of learning how to rebuild. And for me, that score was just was just top notch. That ending song, Green, like it was haunting in the most beautiful way. And that's really stuck with me. But but Riz really did his research for the film and and the way he played it was so visceral. It felt like you were in that position as well. Um, yeah, I don't but, think I don't think we talked too much about that yet when it's popped up before. Like, obviously, everyone agrees Riz is great. But like mm-hmm. that's a risk that's a risky thing to like you know go go into a member of a community that you're not a part of and like portray them yeah. like but people get you know criticized for that and I get why you might not have someone from the deaf community for this because he's uh you know he can hear for you know part of the movie or whatever but and right. the, the the idea being like you know he's heavy metal drummer at a point where he can hear but like the fact is like that has not even been part of the discussion because he obviously like really threw himself into it i've watched interviews with him and Same. i learned a lot about the deaf community and the, i learned a lot about the deaf community and just like addict yeah. co- addict culture i guess or uh, or what, what it means to be an addict and be in rehab and uh was very sensitive to those issues and handled it very well in his performance Right. I think there's a difference, in my personal opinion, between uh, being cast for for a role that you know nothing about, but also but there's a difference that, you know, that Riz showed, like you mentioned, that he put his effort in, he put his time, he learned ASL, he broke with the, the uh, a, a community of addicts, and so he, he did his research, and I think you can really tell in the film, which is why he's getting so much credit for for this role. But also, on top of that, the way that Riz portrays grief in terms of you know, it's not grief of someone passing away, but it's grief of like losing something that you that you've done for so long and that you love. It was such a interesting concept because quick backstory. I was talking to my mom the other week and she has like insurance for her hands because she's an ultrasound technician. And I was like, Why do you have insurance for your hands? And she's like, Something happens to me, I can't do my job and you don't think about a musician losing their hearing and having to kind of rebuild their whole life again. But just the way he portrayed living grief like that was 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 haunting in in the most beautiful way it's like the best way to describe it yeah really well done super glad he got oscar mm-hmm. nominated because he should have been nominated for an oscar in 2014 for nightcrawler but uh that's yes that's, that's, that's a discussion for another time and place but we that's had, another hour long podcast we, we, that would have been like the best supporting actor lineup yeah. category ever if he'd been in there because that was the same year of you know uh jk simmons and ethan hawk for boyhood and uh edward norton for birdman and uh mark ruffalo for foxcatcher like i mean i don't mm-hmm. I, I, I mean i care about the oscars but there's not too many years where i can just pull a full category off the top of my head and that was like man riz ahmed would have been a great addition to that because he's great in nightcrawler and i'm glad he so finally got nominated uh, finally got recognized by uh the oscars uh this year what is your number two my number two is actually very timely it is first cow and it was the first and last film i saw at arc light in los oh, angeles God. And i'm very sad but if that is the last film i ever do get to watch then it is worth it because it was a really good film yeah you know i might be coming to los angeles in june 
and I'll be fully <gasps> vaccinated at that point. Uh, it has, it depends if I can, you know, work some stuff out on my work schedule, but I got some vacation days I need to burn and, but because I lose them by the end of June, it's like, if there's ever a time to make a trip to the West coast, I'm sure you know how hard it is to travel out there and back from Florida. Uh, yes. now will be the time. And one thing I would like to do when I'm there, since I'd be fully vaccinated is, you know, see a movie or two in like one of the best cities for, uh, in theory to see movies. And it, it was very sad to see that news. So I'm glad you got to Thank see first cow in a movie theater though, even if it's a little sad in retrospect, I, uh, hopefully someone saves the arc light or whatever, but, uh, uh, you know, it was funny. I saw, I did the podcast on that with our friend Ben and it was like one of the last ones he saw in theaters too. I think before, uh, before COVID started, I waited a while, uh, till there was a time where it could work for Ben and I. So I just had to, and it wasn't even here. It wasn't even theaters yet when in places that weren't LA when COVID happened. So yeah. I didn't get to see it in theaters. Uh, looking back on it now, uh, what, what do you think about seeing that movie in a theater, uh, added to it for you? And what did you like about it overall? Oh man, I'm so glad I saw it in theaters because the best way to describe this film is like the most soothing, boring drama ever, but it <laughs> works. And I don't know if that's a good um, descriptor for it, but I feel like people who have seen it will will agree with me. But I was really glad I saw it in, in, in theaters because uh, the lusciousness of the cinematography was breathtaking. Like you're in the same scenes, but the way that you see it on the big screen just like takes your breath away. And so it's the most simplest story, simplest, simplest, it's a, that's yeah, a word, right? Simplest story. Yeah. It's the most simplest. Story. I don't know. My brain's broken. The most simple way to tell the story. I don't know. Yeah. Most simple way to tell the story, but that's what makes it so beautiful at the end. And without spoiling it, um, the end really captures your heart. And it's actually kind of hard to spoil it because of the opening shot of the movie, you know, uh, Oh, you're right. Yeah, it shows. It shows. It shows. But you don't realize it until the end. I yeah, I guess. I mean, the the end makes it clear, but you kind of know where it's going, and we won't spoil that now because I want people to watch the movie. But like, you know, the fact is, uh, or maybe we just kind of did. Whatever. Watch First Cow anyway because it's a movie that you know, in some ways is unspoilable because it's more about the journey that the movie takes you on more so than actually the very very end of it. And yes, the uh, friendships. Yeah, it's 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 a movie about a friendship more so than anything else, and. I, I, I agree with everything you said. Like, I mean, it's really beautiful. It accomplishes a lot of different things. I've already talked about it too because it's, it's my number five and it showed up on um, on, 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 both, uh, on both Elijah and uh, maybe one other list. I'm not really sure. But, you know, I, I'm just like very, very uh, – I, I was very, very moved by it also. And, I mean, I wish I could have seen it in theaters, but I'm just, I'm just yeah. glad it exists and I'm uh, mm-hmm. glad that Kelly Record made that movie. Uh, did, yes, I need to see more of her other stuff too. Yeah, 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 it, and she's got she's making another movie with Michelle Williams next year, so I highly recommend going back and uh, checking out their other collaborations. Mm-hmm. I think I know what your number one is, but do you want to tell us? <laughs> yes, so my number one is something we've already discussed, which I'm happy about. But my number one is Minari. Yeah, I don't. I think did we? I did, I, did, I don't know if we talked about it before or after the Oscar nominations came out. I can't remember uh, if if it's if it's since then. Uh, it was uh, it, it got six of them. And uh, in, in Stephen Yen, you know, he he got in. So talking about people that should have gotten in before because he should have gotten one for burning, like we were just talking about with Riz. Uh, and it's funny, I, I saw them do the actors on actors on Variety. I don't know if you ever watched mm-hmm. those. And they they both they both like they both went out for the Nightcrawler part. Um, <laughs> so it's cool. They're, it's cool they're both nominated. But uh, like yeah, we already we already talked about Minari a lot. Do you have anything you feel the need yes. to add that you didn't already say on the podcast about it though? Uh, other than the fact that it like obviously you think it rules because it's your number one. <laughs> I know Alan Kim for president. That's all I want that no but i talked about alan kim too but um just like i reiterated on the podcast but you know uh holistic american film steven 
crush this role. It it really is a raw film that tugs at your heartstrings and the cinematography and the score, like everything was five out of five for me. So for that reason, I made it my number one. Yeah, I, we we talked about the we talked about it on March seventh. So I think the 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 yes. Oscar the Oscar nominations were after that. So uh, yeah, so we didn't we didn't quite know, but it got it got recognized with uh, I believe score, mm-hmm. uh, score lead actor supporting actress Union June is uh, maybe now the favorite to win that award. Uh, yes, and you know picture screenplay director. So just uh, really cool that the Academy recognized a movie like this. Uh, I already I, I'm not going to hash it out again. I already kind of said one of my uh, I, I've already kind of talked about why it wasn't quite in my top ten, but I'm like really happy it got everything that it got, and I, it's it's cool that it, uh, it it's cool that that movie worked that much for you. And I'm really glad you're able to uh, join join us on that podcast because it was kind of cool yes. that you you had so many personal you, you felt personally connect, connected to it in so many ways. So Lisa, thank you so much for being a consistent presence on the rewind in 2020 we hope to see you back here uh talking about movies that we've gotten to enjoy in theaters in uh in 2021 and we'll have hopefully have a different varied uh movie year then but until then uh i guess we'll see you in the next movie year thanks josh